So let's get straight to the big news. There's a new Star Wars trailer. That's right. The first preview for Star Wars Rogue One dropped this morning. The movie comes out in December, and I cannot wait. My only issue is, shouldn't I have to wait? I'm used to waiting 10 years for a new Star Wars movie, 20 for a good one. State your name for the record. Jin Erso. Forgery of Imperial documents, possession of stolen property, aggravated assault, resisting arrest. On your own from the age of 15, reckless, aggressive, and undisciplined. This is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. Welcome to the Vintage Rebellion Podcast. I'm Stuart Skinner, your host for the show, and you are listening to episode 23, Bobby Fett and the Great Pit of Carnus. Joining me, as always, are a few select simpletons. First, a man who this year has already informed us he has never seen a single Bond or Rocky movie. I'm waiting for him to announce that he's yet to see a Star Wars one either. A loose collector of vintage and modern, and an R5-D4 focus collector. He walks with a limp. It's Dickie Hutchinson. Good evening, Rich. Evening, guys. How is the ankle, pal? Touch wood, last operation, and it's the best I've felt in about a year and a half. And you're definitely going to make it down to Father's Farm? I'm definitely going to make it to Father's Farm, yeah. Okay, Rich, a, li- a little question. Just want to give you a little test. Uh, true or false, Uncle Owen wants to make sure the translator droid he purchases speaks bocce. Bocce? Bocce or bocce? I'll go over true if you're pronouncing it wrong. It's actually false, Rich. Aunt Baru wants it to speak Barchi. Uncle Owen wants it to speak the binary language of moisture evaporators. Next up is our Star Wars completist, a vintage collector for over two decades who now has a vast array of items, ranging from the toy line through to the more obscure oddball items. A TIE fighter pilot focus collector, it's Grant Criddle. Good evening, sir. Hello, Yubnub. <laughs> now, Grant, you've been moonlighting recently, haven't you? And you are on the Kivecast last show. Uh, A great podcast, which I know we all listen to. Uh Why were you on their show? International relations to discuss the TIE fighter pilot. Exactly. And if you haven't listened to their recent episode, go along and listen. It is packed with information regarding the TIE fighter. And obviously, you get to hear our little Welsh wizard. Uh, We've actually got Steve Danley from the Kivecast on our show next month. So that's something to look forward to. Now, Grant... Yes, sir. True or false, mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back has the lowest body count of all the Star Wars movies. That is a fantastic question. Hmm. Let me see. Star Wars is definitely up there. Force Awakens is definitely up there. It's got to be quite a lot on uh, Revenge of the Sith. Hmm. Empire Strikes Back. Do you know what? I think... Hmm. I would say no. You've gone false. False. 
It's actually true. It's kind of amazing that that film is considered to be the darkest, but it actually features the fewest deaths and only has 30 on-screen deaths. What about what about Jack? There's a few um, I like a, in there. There's a, a few in the forest. That's about it. There's not many there. Dead Ewok. Dead Ewok, yeah. Dead Yoda. There's pretty yeah, there much tens of thousands of people on the Death Star, maybe? Oh, yeah. There's loads on there, isn't there? Or is there? Can we just, like, five... <laughs> Well, next up is the market man himself, spending several hours a day chuckling to himself whilst reading the fantastic Star Wars tracker. A vintage and modern fanatic who has a love for the women in the movies. It's okay. Peter Davis. Good evening, Peter Weedy. Oh, hello there, Stuart. Oh, hello. How are you? I'm, I'm all good, Pete. Now, we don't normally mention modern purchases in our acquisitions, oh. but I've got to bring up your modern purchases because you have bought some very random Ray products, haven't you? I have, Stu. I have. I, it is all a bit random this month. I spent a a lot of well, not a lot of money actually. Just I bought lots of things. I haven't spent too much money though, which is good. Can you tell me what the most random piece is? Well, I have to say there's a slight affection for the vinylmation Ray, who has Mickey Mouse ears, and is about <laughs> what two or three inches high. But my favourite, as I've been posting all over the place, is my little itty bitty Ray, which is so cute. It's ridiculous. But I've got all sorts: cards, um, other figurines. And uh, a variety of Ray, Slave Layer, and Impostor Spark purchases this month. True or false? Ooh. <laughs> the working title for episode two was Jar Jar's Big Adventure. Oh, that's got to be true, Stu. It's got to be. It is. Please make it true. Is it true? Oh, awesome. It is true. It is true, Pete, yes. And finally, making up the squadron for this evening is our rhyming king, our naval officer, our running stormtrooper. It's Jezebel. Good evening, Sweet Cheeks. Good evening, Stu. Good evening, lads. Good evening, everyone. He's on mute. He's forgotten to turn it off. Hello? Who else? So, sorry, Jez, I heard you. I don't know what Pete's going on about. Oh, right, yeah. I'm, I'm here, definitely. Now, Jez, you've had a birthday since the last podcast. I have. And being the eldest on the podcast... What is it actually like to be under two years from your fiftieth birthday? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, that's a that's that's a really easy one to answer because the older I'm getting, mate, the better I'm getting, and I'm loving life. There you go. Come and join now, me on the second episode, Jez. When you were on for the interview, we discussed your wife's birthday cake she makes for you, and without question, she's done it again. Another Star Wars baked goodie. What was it? Yeah, she uh, she made me a birthday cake BB-8. Or, um, yeah, a BB cake, a BB-8 cake, whatever you want. It's, it was just an awesome BB-8 cake on edible sand. Uh, it just looked absolutely stunning. Really, really nice sponge cake. And she's actually put loads of um, sweets inside it, which was an extra buzz. But, yeah, it looked brilliant. Really Where's good. our piece, Jess? <laughs> it's all gone. It's what? Gone. You need to feed the machine. I am a what? machine and I need to be fed. Nom, nom, nom. Well, Jez, a huge, huge happy birthday. Um, Jez, true or false? You ready? Oh, uh, yes, I am ready. I'm standing by, sir. Yoda's first name is Minch. False. You're going false? It's true. You oh, thought he was Jez. like Cher or Madonna, didn't you? <laughs> Midge? Did, did you first say name Midge? is actually Minch. M-I-N-C-H. I thought it was Dave. Well, I, I didn't think Yoda was called Minch at all. That's mental. Right. Now, it's been a pretty big day, well, actually week, when it comes to being a Star Wars fan. As today, we have seen the release of the first trailer for Rogue One, and I must say I was totally blown away. Attack Walkers, Death Star, Mothma, Rebels, Stormtroopers, X-Wings, Star Destroyers, another lead female, Yavin. This is going to be epic. So what did everyone make of it? 
I loved it. I mean, I was waiting with tender hooks to uh, to get my bits into that one, um, and it just felt like Star Wars. Yeah. And did you um, did you fall in love with the leading lady? Well, it's Felicity Jones. She's gorgeous anyway, isn't she? I should be buying all of her products. <laughs> I didn't doubt that. Uh, Rich, what did you think? I really enjoyed it, Stu. Um, I was pleased to see lots of familiar scenes, familiar environments, but I was also pleased to see new things that made us go, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to see how they're going to go with that. So I thought, great, uh, great trailer. In particular, the cloaked figure. I thought the cloak figure was really good, so I'm really intrigued to find out who that is. Uh, Grant, what did you think of it? It's uh, surreal. <laughs> did you, can I ask a question? Did you, did you watch it standing in Asda? No, I watched it just outside Asda, and then I went into Asda, and I forgot what I went for. So I ended up just buying a pack of mints. <laughs> <laughs> what did you make of it? Yeah, really surreal. Uh, amazing. I want to know what that robot is that's hanging around Felicity Jones, that big grey robot. Mind, mind blown. What a, what a really surreal time to be a Star Wars fan, to think these films are actually being made. I, I tell you what I really liked was a shot where it looks like some sand troopers coming around the corner and they sort of look over. It's almost like a documentary-style camera shot and they look over to someone who looks like they've been bound. That that was that was quite spooky. I like that. And Jezebel. Totally my type of film. Love it. You know, after Anaheim, I was up for this, so up for this. My avatar has been Rogue One, seen um, from the concept artwork since Anaheim. This just looks utterly brilliant i'm yeah getting all fanboy about this uh i apologize uh, it looks brilliant the bit where it says you know this december where you hear the uh um the noise um i didn't really do that justice then but it's just oh man brilliant 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 i'd like to see the emperor's royal guards do something because i mean so they're supposed to be like these elite troops aren't they so it'd be nice if we see them in a bit of action somewhere that'd, well, that'd be pretty cool they did a bit of action in episode three though but they obviously picked on minch it's a bad <laughs> idea <laughs> <laughs> well exactly they just kind of died but i'd love to see them just kind of get out there and shoot some people there were so many good one-off little scenes weren't there were real epic shots really nicely shot scenes yeah, like a it is it's a war film, isn't it? It's gonna be it is an actual war film, it's crazy. That's why Jez is up for it, so he loves I'm so, it. So so up for this. Look, is, it just like, is that what it's like being in the army? Hang on. I was in the Navy earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> Navy Army. Well they're all the same thing. Did you just say is there just loads of violence? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just that, um, That's just Jez. Yeah, that's just me. I, I'm I'm a really, really rough person. What will you do when they catch you? What will you do if they break you? If you continue to fight? What will you become? Now, last month, we mentioned we were holding a birthday competition to commemorate our second year, which is in a couple of months' time. And I can now give a few more details about this, which you may or may not have seen on our Facebook page. Uh, we've been working together with Ian Sanderson, and we will be giving away £100 worth of credit, which can be spent with Ian on figures or mint on cards. Now, all you have to do to win this prize is to log into the iTunes store, search for The Vintage Rebellion, and leave us an iTunes review. That is it. Once you have left the review, you will be automatically entered into this competition. Closing date for leaving the review is midnight 
on May the 31st, and the winner will be announced on June's show. It really is that simple to enter, so get involved. Got to be in it to win it. Now, Jez, you've had your 54th birthday on the 2nd of April. Now, most of us would have overindulged, maybe a meal out, a few cheeky drinks. Um, so what did you do for your birthday? <laughs> uh, my, 50, <laughs> my 54th. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I put my Stormtrooper costume on and I went for a run, mate. And how far? I ran 13.1 miles. Well, probably a little bit further, actually, by the time I went around all the corners. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I ran a half marathon on my birthday and I loved it. And you did this full full armor, yeah? Yeah, full armor, um, helmet, the works. It, it was uh, part of my training for the London, which is now just in two weeks' time. <laughs> um, and it was just uh, it was a great opportunity to. It was the furthest distance that I had run in the uh, in the armor, and uh, it was a good opportunity. And it was a good it was a good opportunity also to to you know get out there, spread the word, and, and see uh, see what could come of it for me social media point of view as well because uh, all in the name of make a wish well you end you ended up on a on gmtv this time didn't you yeah <laughs> i did i did end up on tv yeah i i didn't realize i um i was running the race i wasn't thinking about time i absolutely loved it i was really well once i got over the heat because i must say about three miles in i was thinking i have massively underestimated this and i'm now starting to get l- really worried that um, I I could end up in a really serious way because it was redders. It was um, apparently the warmest day of the year, which wasn't good. Um, so yeah, lots of waving, lots of high fives to to all the kids, and just thanking all the people who were watching and showing their support to all the racers. And um, I, I ended up having I don't know a couple of dozen selfies i would imagine with with a lot of runners they were running with phones and i didn't realize one of these selfie um people asking for a selfie was a a tv reporter from good morning britain so he was the sports um sportsman sean fletcher i had no idea so he was doing the sports the next day and said that oh yeah he's doing the london marathon and he he was also practicing and he put up the picture on tv of me and him with the London Marathon just three weeks away. I've been training hard for it, uh, so I've taken part in the Reading Half Marathon. I ran with my wife. No, that isn't her. <laughs> that's a guy in a Stormtrooper outfit. Is that Reading? Uh, <laughs> that's the Reading Half Marathon. And, uh, I mean, there were loads of people raising money for charity, uh, racing in outfits like that. I don't know how you get around a half marathon in the Stormtrooper outfit. Uh, and there we go. That was it. So I... Uh... The Stormtrooper has got his own Twitter account, so I, I sent a tweet to this chap saying, oh, yeah, that was me, and he came straight back saying, aha, now I found you, I'm going to put you on again at 8 o'clock. So I um, I was on at half six in the morning and 8 o'clock. And it, was all, it was all good, it was all good fun. Uh, it's, it's spreading the word, it's getting out there, and it's, it's all great. Make-A-Wish are delighted. They're really, really pleased with uh, with what's happening. <laughs> for you on a story that we heard earlier Sean has been in training for the London Marathon and over the weekend here we go here's a picture of him joined by an anonymous stormtrooper at the Reading Half Marathon well this stormtrooper has now been in touch Uh, Sean's here now Sean what are they saying you know 
fancy that? You were only narrowly beaten by Stormtrooper. Well, yeah, he days. wasn't that far behind me. I actually ran the Reading Half Marathon with my wife. Contrary to popular belief, that wasn't Not her. the Stormtrooper. Uh, the Stormtrooper's been in touch on Twitter, uh, and he has said he was absolutely boiling. It was a really hot day. Uh, he said he's really, really hot. He's in training for the London Marathon, so he's going to be doing twice what we did on Sunday. Uh, he was great sport. Took a little selfie with him. Uh, and, uh, well, yeah, he did it in two hours, 23, which is a really good time when you're wearing a suit like that. Well, this is your last chance to plug it, Jez. So what is that Just Giving page? Right. Thank you very much, guys. Um, the Just Giving page is www.justgiving.com forward slash the force awakens and if you can't quite remember that or if you don't have a pen and pad next time you're on facebook check out make a star wars wish just type that into the search engine make a star wars wish and you'll find me alternatively if you're on twitter and you need to think about me with regards to what i'm doing i'm a stormtrooper and i'm going for a run so at stormtrooper run i've made it as easy as i can please check it out and show your support because, yeah, this is this is really really tough. <laughs> and one last thing before we move on, and just do you find it strange that your fifteen minutes of fame are coming with a mask on? Oh, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I I've got a face for radio. Uh, this is why I, I do podcasts. Um, you know, um, so it, it's all good. I um, I'm quite happy to to do stuff with the helmet on. This isn't. This isn't me. This isn't me and work or anything. This is just the stormtrooper running. This is, you know, I'm I'm quite happy to stay out of this and just let the stormtrooper do the work. And as long as Make a Wish is just getting mentioned as often as possible, and the charity who desperately need this money to do what they do so well um, gets more money, then fantastic. Right then, lads, so let's move on to our latest acquisitions and see what we've all been adding to our ever-growing collections. We had a bit of a pathetic month jointly last month, so let's hope you've all pulled your finger out. So, uh, Rich, what have you been buying? Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to let this lie down again, lads. I haven't got much this month. I kicked it off with a set of um, sealed Oldbury toothbrushes, a pack of 12, which I was pleased to pick up on the Star Wars auction block on Facebook, which is a, a great Facebook page, and I encourage everybody to go and visit that. I also picked up an Ewok um, battle wagon ladder, uh, a set of yellow tops trading cards. I picked up a tri-logo R5D4 Biker Scout Miss card, uh, and a big shout-out to Joe O and Todd Thornhill for their assistance in tracking that one down and collecting it for us. Um, I picked up a tri-logo R5D4 with the French sticker, which now gives me four out of the six tri-logos for R5. And finally, an Empire Strikes Back A baggy um, for R5-D4, which means I've hit five out of six of the R5 baggies now. Whew. Better stand with that Ewok ladder, mate. Oh, the Ewok ladder. <laughs> you, know, you, know what? you know what I'm really pleased about that? It's because on another page, Ross Barr said, that Ewok battle wagon ladder is mine. So, got you, Ross. It was mine. <laughs> um... Miss card sounds lovely as well. Yeah, um, again, that one was Joe O. He just said, um, are you aware that there was a post, something like, I don't know, it was about four years ago of some guy who had one for sale? And uh, I said, you know, Joe, if you've got any contact details, send them to us. And the guy, by all accounts, still had it and we agreed a deal. And uh, Todd in Canada has went and collected that for us and has posted it out. So cheers to both of them. Beautiful. Um, Jezebel, can you match that? 
I'd love to match that. I um, it always makes me laugh when Rich says, "Oh, I haven't, I haven't got much." Blah 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 blah. Sounds amazing. Some of the stuff you get, Rich, blows my mind. Um, I can't match a miss card. I'd love to. You know, I want a miss card, and I will get one by the end of the year. What did I get? I got a Sigma mug. My first Sigma mug. Hey. Luke Skywalker Sigma mug, and um, I didn't realise how great they were. I totally get it, Stu. I totally get why you've gone down that route and uh, and bought a... Um, is your wife on? Is your wife listening? Is she aware that you've bought loads? Oh, yeah, yeah. She knows, yeah. Oh, cool, cool, cool. She just bought didn't... some of it. Hey, man, I'm just it's checking your six, dude. That's what we do, you know? Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I love my Sigma mug. That's really, really cool. I got a B-Wing uh, mint on card tri-logo. B-Wing pilot, that is, rather than a B-Wing. Imagine a B-Wing mint on card. That would be huge. Um, so, yeah, B-Wing pilot mint on card. And I got a new bootleg, a new Polish bootleg to go with his nine, I think, other Polish bootleg friends. Um, but this one is the slightly rarer, and in fact, it's the only one I've seen, Turd Brown variation. So there we go. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, so two have done so fantastic. Grant. Can you keep this going? Uh, yeah, to try my best, I've picked up uh, what, something I've been after a long time, which is a full set of US fan club badges from 1970, 1978, I believe. It's one of the uh, only vintage collectibles that you get with uh, Grandma Tarkin on it. Um, but I don't know if they are original. They're in a sealed bag, and one of the ways I tell... If you buy like factors badges, for example, you can tell they're vintage because they're aged a lot. You know, they might be a bit rusty or there's scratches on them or whatever. But because these have been sealed in a bag, uh, there's no way they, you know they're in perfect condition. So I can't tell if they are genuine vintage fan club badges. But I've seen quite a few of them for sale. I think I, it's because I got it really cheap as well. Made me uh, made me a bit paranoid. So I'm gonna have to do a bit more research on that. But I, you know, they could be genuine. They are on my hit list, those badges. Uh, I picked up a Ralph Macquarie autographed uh, print, which was one of 200 that he did, especially for Celebration Europe 1 in London, which is fantastic because it's got like the original uh, Star Wars art that he did You know when uh, Chewbacca looked like Zeb off Rebels now, and I think you know, uh, Luke Skywalker was a girl, so it's you know, fantastic vintage original artwork there. And hopefully tomorrow... If everything goes to plan, we'll be picking up the first of our Rogue One collectibles, which will be a, a Rogue One cast and crew bag. So, oh yeah, all good, all good. They seem to be buying a lot of higher-end items this year. Very few items, but when they do land, they do seem to cost us a fortune. And Petey Weedy? Um, I've, been, <laughs> I've been quite busy with modern stuff, like Slave Lair collectibles. Uh, lovely Uncle Ian helped me find an item which I've been after for years. Finally, one popped up. Uh, we bought it, and he's helped me get it over from the States. And then another one, straight away, popped up. They obviously saw that I spent a fortune on it. And another one suddenly appeared. It's like, oh, my goodness. But thankfully, there weren't a line of them. But that was a, a Slave Lair modern cardback collectible, which is ultra rare. And I haven't seen any for years and years and years, so that was nice. Uh, a bunch of Slave Lair cards, some badges, um, some Bendoms. I decided to go for the loose run of Bendoms, which is nice. Um, and I also got some vintage Empire Stretch back items. Um, I got a space trunk. Have you ever seen a space trunk, Stu? No. Empire Strikes Back space trunk. It's just a tin, basically. But it's called a space trunk. It's got a lovely picture of 
Um, uh, the one I got a little bit faded, only cost me a couple of quid, which is nice. They, they usually go for about 25, 30 in good condition, but you know I haven't seen any for a while. Um, it's just a, a big tin with pictures on for the Impostor Expo. Uh, very nice Lear Bespin on the side. Um, I also got uh, a party invitation, Empire Strikes Back, uh, loose birthday party invitation, uh, which looks really smart and meets in the rest of my kind of uh, weird Empire Strikes Back um, kind of party goods. Um, I also picked a, a fan club flyer um, with Slave Lair on it, so that's another vintage item, um, which is nice. We're going to talk about this later on, but I've, I've also got the Burger King sweepstakes scratch off card um, and a Burger King. Um, little plastic Empire Strikes Back cup, which is lovely. Well, I, I can't, uh, I can't match any of you boys. I the other morning when I was cleaning my teeth, um, about two years ago, I bought the old Clyro. Do you know the character soap? There's only two of them: C3PO and R2D2, the yep. character-shaped ones. I, I bought the th- um, the R2D2 one a couple of years ago, and I was brushing my teeth the other day, and I just came across one. Bought it 70p mint, as me at the box. So over the course of that day, I ended up buying numerous soaps. <laughs> from between 1978 and 1985. Um, so Christ knows what I'm going to do with them. Uh, I purchased a Return of the Jedi carded Luke Hoff, which was one of my favourite figures growing up. Um, I got the Trilogo Mist card, which Jez tagged me in, the Klaatu on a Klaatu skiff card. Now, not the most exciting Mist card, but it was only 70 quid, so a bargain nonetheless. And then basically just some other small bits and pieces, some loose, some modern... Um, I've added the Rancor Keeper on a card. So just a few odds and sods, but I will be looking to treat myself to something nice at farthest from next month. Um, now, last month, Pete gave us a teaser about this month's question. So let's go over to PD. And now, the Vintage Rebellion's Question of the Month. Cue the music. Now, I did put this question out for the forum... And did have one rather enthusiastic entry, so you guys will be playing off against the forum, or Mumbo, as I'm going to have to call him. So the question was, Kathleen Kennedy has decided to redo the first six films, and uh, going to put them all into one big film. She wants some casting suggestions off you guys, because obviously she trusts me to ask you. They want the casting suggestions from various areas. Now, the topics were the Padme and Anakin love story, Luke Lehan, Palpatine, or Palpatine, depending on which country you come from, and a random role of your choice. Now, I gave Grant, music people, Richard, British comedy persons, Jez, Hollywood, and Stewpot, sports stars. Let's go for the first one. Rich, who have you got down for Padme and Anakin love story from your British comedy person? This was probably the most difficult of the categories you give me. But Anakin, I went for Rick Neal. The reason why I went for Rick Neal was because when he's Lord Flash Hart, he has moments where he's really brave and he's full of bravado. But overall, he's meaning like Rick from The Young Ones and that he always wanted to be more than something that he was ever going to be. This was the winner, right? Because there aren't too many female comedy stars Okay, compared to meals, so I had a small selection to look through. So I went back and thought, right, Rick, Richie from Bottom, Young Ones, always wanted to, um, let's just say, to keep it clean, get his end away. So I went for Bella Emberg. <laughs> now, for those who can't remember who Bella Emberg was, 
she played the overweight woman in Vos Abbott's sketches, and if you Google a picture of Blunder Woman, that's what she looks like. Now, you're going to go, why her? Well, because I think that Rick Meal, when he plays Rick from the Young Ones, and Bella Emberg will have the same chemistry as Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen had on Attack of the Clones. Right, Stu, you've got a lot to say for yourself. Can you outdo that with your sports stars? I don't really know what he was banging on about, to be honest with you. I went down a bit of a different route on this. Um, I've gone with the ice skaters, Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Um, Interesting. Who, I'm sure, when they were growing up, they were the same age, competing against each other. I'm sure they were very much in love and very, very friendly. But then when they became the two best in the world, Tonya got a hitman to try and um, injure Nancy before the trials for the 94 Olympics. And uh, I just think it's kind of like... When he goes bad, he starts to, um, he kind of kills his, uh, his love. And I think, uh, Tonya did love Nancy deep down. Uh, that's, that's interesting, Stu. Very interesting. <laughs> um, let's move on there to Jezebel. I, I don't really care for Padme at all. I thought, right, I need to go with an actress who, again, I don't really care for. And, um, and who could I completely switch off with? So I've gone for Susan Sarandon. Um, because I think she's she's quite chopsy, isn't she? I mean, I don't even know what it is she talks about. I know, but she gets very vocal about various different bits and pieces. It's just like, yeah, whatever, Susan. Um, no one's listening to you. You've got nothing to say. Move on. Harsh. Got, well, you know, she, yeah, <laughs> Susan Sarandon, because I don't really care for her. Who could she be put together with? Hayden Christensen, I, I was trying to match him up, not only for chemistry, but for acting and all sorts of stuff like that. And bearing in mind that this is a Disney um, franchise now as well, I've gone for Pinocchio. So Susan Sarandon and the little wooden boy, Pinocchio. <laughs> Jez, that's an even more bizarre combination I could have thought of. Um, I've got to say well done on that one. Thank you very and much. finally, Grant, what on earth have you come up with for this one? Now, remember... Your subject was... Music. Yes. Yes, okay. Uh, I probably went down a little bit of a different path than that, but it seemed quite obvious to me at the time. Uh, Anakin Skywalker, I've got as George Michael, the singer. And Padme, I've got as Kanye West. (laughs) (laughs) That is quality. I love that one now. Hang on, hang on. The, the, The Star Wars link is Forbidden Love. And it, on my notes here, it says real life link. They both like. Mumbo has beautifully gone through every single person's uh, um, <laughs> attempts, and uh, I think his his best one was um, against Richard. He went in there with Wayne and Wayne Netta Slob for the, uh, for the which I thought would be a a beautiful beautiful relationship. <laughs> Luke, lay a hand. So quickly, let's go over to Jez. And I, I think you're like this so much that I probably don't really need Luke, to be honest with you. So I'm going for Princess Leia. To me, she's royalty. I've gone for Dame Helen Mirren. Oh. Go with me on this, because she plays the queen. It's quite she old, is. though, Jez. It's quite old there, though. Hang on. Dame Helen Mirren. She can play anything. She's an actress. She's going to get in the moment, and she will. She will do it. She will do it justice. 
uh, and it will be great. And she's going to be partnered up with a professional, a guy who's been around and he's been in several movies, multiple movies, and and he steps up to it time and time again. And I think that theirs will be a, a lovely relationship. And Dame Helen Mirren is going to be matched up with Ron Jeremy. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't. Interesting. Have, surprised you didn't have Harrison Ford for Han Solo. Are you doing the Hollywood ones? I think he's a really good casting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would, I would have probably gone for that to be fair. <laughs> right. So, uh, what well, things you've put in there, Stu? <laughs> Who have you got? Well, for your sports star. Okay. Well, this one, this one's tough, isn't it? Cause it's um, a love triangle. It's a bit close to home, yet they all get on. Yes. So I have gone with John Terry as Han Solo. He's a bit oh. of a wide boy, does nothing by the book, a law unto himself. Luke as Wayne Bridge, because he's quite unassuming kind of guy, quite gentle. And Leia as Wayne Bridge's wife, who loves Ooh. her guy Luke, but he's also enjoy being nailed by the best friend John Terry. <laughs> I'm enjoying the context of that one, uh, Stu, like that one. Um, our American friends who have no idea what's going on, but don't worry. Um, Grant, let's get you in there first. Because I know Rich is biting to get in there. Oh, okay. Um, Luke, Leia, Han. Let me just have a look at my notes again. Um, okay. Luke and Leia, that is Johnny Rotten and Courtney Love, because oh. they're all a bunch of whiners. And Han Solo is Justin Bieber, because girls love him, guys want to be him. Oh. Hey, it's not my choice, <laughs> it's society today. You know? They had Harrison Ford, they had Justin Bieber. That is a societal choice. Come on, Rich. I've yet to meet a guy who wants to be Justin Bieber, mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Luke, I've gone for Hugh Laurie, and I've specifically went for him when he's the Prince Regent from Blackadder, because oh, he's a wanky brat. Particularly yeah. dim, but comes good in the end. Uh, for Leah, I went for Miranda Richardson, also from Blackadder, because she pretends to be all girly and down with the lads, but you know, deep down she's royalty, and at any moment she would lock your head off if things didn't go her own way. And for Han, I've actually went for Ron Atkinson in Blackadder. Sarcastic and witty put downs being his speciality. Ooh, that's a tough one. Now, Mumbo, I think his best attempt here was against you, Stuart, his, his sports stars one. Uh, he's gone for a young, petulant David Beckham, Anna Kornikova, and I'll, I can never argue against Anna Kornikova, and John McEnroe for Han Solo. But I think, I think, uh, I think, ooh, I think Richards wins that one, to be fair, as his round. <laughs> Next round, let's start with Stu, and this is Palpatine or Palpatine, depending how you, you swing. I think there's quite an obvious one for sport on here, because the Emperor oh. is aged, pale-faced, deceptive, manipulative, corrupt, controlling, and it has to be set blatter. In fact, I wouldn't be at all surprised <laughs> if they're the same person. I'm sure Palpatine would rather female footballers wear shorter shorts too. Like that one? That was a good lolling moment. Rich, you can go second. Palpatine. Right, I went for Chris Barry as Arnold Rimmer. Oh, good, because good. Because he's the ultimate evil character. And you'd have to think that Palpatine would also keep his underpants on coat hangers and have his name label shown on his ship issue condoms. <laughs> How random. Granty Grant. Okay, uh, let's have a look at my notes again. <laughs> uh, the Emperor. Pretends he's nice, cosy with royals, leathery face, evil, obvious really, Cliff Richard. <laughs> right, Palpatine, yeah, Hollywood. I've got it. Mrs. Doubtfire. 
Is that it? Hello, Vader. Uh, that, that was a tough one, but I've got to give that round to Stu. What? I have to give it to Stu. I'm afraid Mumba didn't come up with a good one there. Apart from in the Sports Stars, he did say Alex Ferguson, and that's not a bad shout. Final round. This 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 was. Let's be careful here. This was a character of your choice. Let's start with Grant. Okay, the character of my choice is Ankar Plutt. <laughs> go on. And the go reason on, like is, it. is like you know he's giving his portions away to Ray, and he's thinking to himself like, I wonder you know who's who's that girl's parents? You know she seems so mysterious. That girl and uh, Ankar Plutt is Peter Andre. <laughs> How random! <laughs> that's that's interesting. That was very interesting. What you, you know, it's, it's a mysterious girl connection, you know. <laughs> Jez, let's see what you've got for your your character of choice. Well, I've gone with the this new theme of a strong female lead. Mm. Quite like it. I yes. think it's about time. Ray, now we've got strong leads again in Rogue One. So, they've done the same. So, Crix Medine is actually now going to be Trish Nadine and is going to be played by Sandra Bullock because, let's face it, she's just, um, she just transforms every movie. And, uh, and Sandra Bullock will be Crix Medine. Do you just fancy Sandra Bullock? Is that what you're yeah. trying to tell us? Or bearded men. <laughs> bearded men. One of the bearded ladies. Oh. <laughs> Rich, let's uh, let's go with you for your British comedy stars. Yep. Well, I worked backwards on this one. I actually picked the star as being John Cleese because I thought I've got to have one of the Monty Pythons in there somewhere. Okay. And I thought, right, okay, what kind of character could he be? Tall, lanky, and you, know, you would think 88, EV 99, something like that. But then I thought, no. And I've gone with Gonk. Now, can you imagine Gonk? Can you imagine Gonk doing the silly walk? He's the best character to lean back and you can push his legs out, and you can imagine John Cleese walking back one Gonk Gonk. <laughs> Just as random as gross. But I like it. I like that. And I can visualise it brilliantly. Right, Stu, now, be careful. <laughs> now, I have gone with Finn, okay? Now, Finn is on the run from the First Order. And to be honest with you, if, if Jez left the Navy he would and deflected, he would be court-martialed, you know? It's, it's treason. He should be banged up. Yeah, same as, the same as Finn. Finn should be banged up. And he denies doing any wrong. So to me, Finn is O.J. Simpson. Okay. Um, deflected? <laughs> How strange. Now, Mumbo, I think, wins this round for me because when I saw it, I burst into laughter. And uh, he's gone with um, Luis Suarez as the Rancor. So uh, <laughs> that concludes the quiz, and uh, Mumbo wins, and I'll send him a prize. All right, thank you very much. Good night.
on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. And on, and on. With Ron. Waiting for Star Wars gets a little bit easier. Strip this bad boy. I dare you. Back to life from the morgue. The rebel base is on a moon on the far side. We are preparing to orbit the planet. Rich, wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. Have you been doing your legs again? <laughs> yeah, so I had the pleasure to talk to Ron about one of his SWCA articles on the blog, so let's cut to that interview now. I'm delighted to be joined tonight by none other than SWCA blog editor and contributor Ron Salvatore. Welcome, Ron. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me. Now, we've invited you on tonight to discuss your blog post of the 29th of February entitled Do-Overs Repurposed Action Figure Sculpts. Now, from my very limited understanding, the wax sculpt is the first step in the 3D pre-production process for figures. Yeah, you're right that it's a uh, that's basically the three-dimensional art for the figure. Um, it's not necessarily the first thing that's made. A lot of sculptors would have first done a rough sculpt in clay, basically a, an oil-based clay, and then they'd make a mold out of that, and then that gives you kind of the rough shape of the figure. And then they would pour wax into those molds because there'd be a mold for each part of the figure. And then they'd do the fine detail work in wax. And so when they're finished with that wax, typically that would be the actual three-dimensional art for the action figure. So it would basically be a super detailed representation of what was eventually produced in plastic. So how many wax sculpts would have been made per figure and would they have been made to scale? Most, there would only be one, although it probably be, would be modified going forward. So, I mean, the sculptor would continually revise it uh, as needed. Uh, that's kind of the beauty of wax is that you can you can rework it as you're working on it. So, more or less one. Sometimes they would do multiple ones. Um, one sculptor named Bill Lemon worked in a material called acetate, which you can't really you can't really modify it once it's done. So, sometimes if they wanted to change his work, they would redo the whole figure in wax. And so there's multiple sculpts for some of those that he did. They're all done at one-to-one, except for a few that we know. I mean, we know EV-99 and 88 were sculpted at two times the size. I'm not aware of any others, although there could be some that just haven't turned up that were sculpted larger, for all we know. If there was only one of these made per figure, I mean, I imagine these were pretty fragile. How were they protected around the joints and things? Uh, the joints typically have... Uh, nylon, you know, sort of like plastic discs embedded in them, which kind of prevent the wax from breaking up around the steel pin. And, you know, they provide a nice solid flat joint. So that helps, Um, you know, but in general, they're not made to last, Richard. So they are pretty fragile, but if they break or something, when when mold is made off them or something like that, that that just is what it is. And they got thrown into a drawer or something uh, only to be rediscovered years later. You know, they were not made necessarily to be really sturdy to begin with. Your article informs us that some of these wax sculpts were actually hiding a previous sculpt underneath, a bit like a long-lost Da Vinci painting. What was the thinking behind this? Well, uh, there's a significant time um, and work put into sculpting a figure. You know, the sculptor is going to work on that for days or even a couple of weeks getting that thing correct. So when they're under pressure, a sculptor might reuse some existing piece that's been done already in order to save some time. So when the figures, when you think about it, there's six pieces, right? For most of them, there's a head, two arms, two legs, and a torso. And when a figure is finished, the torso has a copper buck inside of it. It's called a buck. It's basically like a, 
a rectangular base that the wax is put around that has the joints in there for the hardware that the pins to fit into. So that, that's time consuming, getting that in there correctly, putting the, the nylon discs I mentioned into the joints is time consuming. And it's, you know, it's exacting work. Um, so when you're finished with a sculpt and you have it all set up and you've used that sculpt to make a figure and you have to make another figure that's basically the same size and has the same engineering as your earlier figure, you know, it has a head, arms, legs, and a torso. It's easy, more or less, to take that wax and just rework it into another figure without having to start from scratch. So the article on the blog is really about occasions when we know or we think one figure, a sculpt for one figure, was taken and actually sculpted over into another figure without, you know, starting from scratch. So sculpt existing for figure X was completely redone into figure Y, and then the sculpt for X no longer exists, and now you just have the, the sculpt for figure Y. That's kind of what it's about. Now, you've identified that the Stormtrooper was used as a basis for the Hoth Trooper. What evidence do you have to support this? Well, when the those Hoth Stormtrooper sculpt actually surfaced, and I was there with a few other people, it actually had a little note with it that said, sculpted over Stormtrooper, original Stormtrooper, I think is what it said, something like that, which is pretty much... You know, when you're buying that from an original sculptor and it's been sitting in a box in a bag for all these years and there's an actual piece of documentation with it, that's pretty solid proof that they did that. And those two figures are basically organized in the same way. You know, there's no separate head. The head is incorporated into the torso and then there's the arms and the legs and they're the same height. So in 1979, when they're making that cloth Stormtrooper, you know, at some point they must have just went and grabbed the sculpt for the original Stormtrooper and redone it, which makes sense because the, the sculpt for the original Stormtrooper never turned up either. So, you know, that, that piece of evidence really explains some things about that whole history. Wow, discovering that note must have been a are-you-kidding-me moment. That must have really surprised a few of you. Well, put it into context, I mean, when you're there and you're pulling out the actual sculpts, that one and a few other ones, like, the note isn't exactly the most important <laughs> thing. But, yeah, it was a little bit like, oh, wow, look at that. It says it was sculpted over, sculpted over original Stormtrooper. I guess that makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where it's like a little light goes on and, and you realize something that you never realized before. What qualities would a sculpt need in order to be deemed suitable for another figure? Um, I think they're mainly looking for the stature, you know, the height, the pose, Mm -hmm. um, just the general bulk of it. And, you know, that's pretty much it. I think it's not just that, too. I mean, these guys are just like anybody else. And if you tell them we need to make a hot stormtrooper and they've already done a stormtrooper, ding, ding, ding. Like, well, we can just remake one of the, the stormtrooper. Go find the sculpt for that and we'll just redo it. And I think that happened with a lot of probably the main characters as well, the Lukes and the Leias and the Hans. It's pretty likely that, you know, original Leia was redone into Leia Bespin. We might have a follow-up blog post on that pretty soon. Han, probably Han, Hoth, and Leia into Leia Bespin. And if you look at all three of those figures, I think you'll see a lot of similarities. And also Luke and Luke Bespin. Again, if you're a sculptor and you have you have a familiarity with Star Wars and you know it was been worked on by that shop before and someone tells you we need to make the new version of Luke, well, we already have done a Luke. Why not? It's already the same height, same face, the same, you know, we, we're going to have a similar pose and they just go and rework it. That played into it too. Not just the, the pose and the height, but also just, hey, this is the same character. So that suggests to your mind that you're just going to go pull it out and re- remake it. Is it likely that it would have been the same sculptor working on his own piece of wax, or would you have thought that perhaps he may have grabbed one from somebody else? Probably not. I don't. I mean, keep in mind that we talk about this sculptor did that, that sculptor did that a lot of times, but 
especially early on, a lot of those figures are worked on by multiple people. Um, so uh, the same person could have done one and then another, but I wouldn't, you know, I don't think it fell that way or turned out that way very often necessarily. I think it's kind of random, you know, sculptor X is, is assigned Luke Bespin and he goes and grabs the original Luke and redoes it. It really mattered that he didn't do the original one. It's still there in wax, and he's just going to rework it. What about crossovers and the other toy lines? Do you think that would have been possible? I mean, it's not impossible that something like that happened. I don't. I wouldn't take it too far. I've never really seen solid evidence of that. I know people have said for years that um, the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid figures from the Butch and Sundance line were reworked from Luke original and Han original. The heads of those figures are very similar to those, but keep in mind that in order to reuse something, you don't have to necessarily re-sculpt it. You can also make a mold of it or something. So, I mean, to get those heads of the Butch and Sundance figures, they might have just taken molds of the hard copy heads, you know, put wax into there and re and redone them from there, which is a different thing than what I was talking about in the blog post. But, you know, it's possible. Um, there's also some Glamour Gals heads that look a little bit like Han, I think. And there may have been some reuse of stuff there, um, but we don't really have solid evidence. And I've never really seen anything that looks super close. Our tuck figure from the Robin Hood line is related to the Gamorrean guard figure, but they redid the torso on that, which is a whole different sculpt, although it's similar to the Gamorrean guard. And I think they just straight, they reused the tooling that probably pre, was pre-existing for the, the arms and legs of that figure. So that's not really what we were talking about either in the blog post, but it's it's an example of Kenner reusing tooling and then basing a sculpt off another sculpt. And they also, Superpowers figures are, were reused in the um, Robin Hood line as well, but I don't think those were re-sculpted. It's basically just an instance of them reusing pre-existing tooling. And I suppose the danger here is that you look too much at figures, and if you try really hard, you could probably see comparisons between a lot of different figures. Yeah, I mean, a bunch of people have sent good recommendations and ideas for stuff that was reworked, but some of it, I don't really see it. I see broadly what they're talking about, but I don't see the same level of suggestiveness to the ones I've already mentioned. But then again, the Stormtrooper, I never would have really guessed that the Stormtrooper was remade into the Hoth Stormtrooper without that evidence being out there. So, because there's substantial differences in the, the looks of those figures. So, I mean, it's possible. I mean, if someone comes out and tells you that, you know, this figure was made over that figure and, it, you know, maybe it will ring a bell five years down the road. But I think you're right that the more you look at it, the more you can sort of convince yourself of anything. One of the commenters on your blog post said that it really shows Kenner's ingenuity here. When you look at Bosk and you look at uh, Blue Snaggletooth and you don't actually see the similarity until it's pointed out. So it just shows how clever they were with paintwork and, and slight detail changes. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty clever to, to redo that figure like that and, and make it different enough that you wouldn't see it. I've certainly never looked at those figures a million times and I've never really realized the relationship. But when you line them up next to each other, um, it's hard to miss, isn't it? I mean, you see the collar and the, the face, how similar it is and all that. And I never would have known that unless somebody who I know, you know, a friend of mine, you know, he had some evidence relating to that figure and he showed it to me and he said he didn't mind if I shared it. So kudos to him because that's that's a pretty cool discovery. It certainly is. And before you go tonight, Ron, what do you think of the response so far that the blog has received since its creation back in 2014? Oh, it's been great so far. I mean, um, for 
a lot of years on the archive, we were trying to get better form for article type of content, you know, a more flexible thing where people could submit articles and we could post them. And it was pretty good. We had the special feature thing, which was nice, but it wasn't, wasn't updated that frequently. And it was kind of a bear to work with, you know, but since we've had the blog, we've been able to put a whole bunch of stuff on there and, and do it quickly and easily. And I think it's gotten some real good responses, you know, and really Sky Payne was the guy who came up with that idea. So he deserves credit for it. Uh, he brought it up to, to Gus and then me, and I really thought it was a great idea. And I, but it's been, I, I would say that the reaction to it's been probably even better than I thought. And the content of the blog has been probably better than I expected. So I'm real happy with it so far, and I hope people are getting a kick out of what's been on there. Well, I'd like to thank you, Ron, tonight for taking the time to speak to us this evening. And I urge all collectors to head over to the SWCA blog and to read the article in its entirety. And like all Ron's articles, it's written in a style that is both humorous and informative, but in a format that the regular collector can absorb. If you want to hear more of Ron, check out the SWCA's podcast, The Kivecast Vintage Pod, for a great interview. Ron, you had Steve Sonsweet and Sky on recently, and that sounded like an absolute blast to record. Did you have a great time on that one? Uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Sky and I had mentioned that to Steve a couple of years ago, and then it kind of got lost. And then Sky brought it up again recently, which I'm glad he did. And you know, Steve's always willing to, to do stuff like that, and he's a great guest. And it, it was fun because I don't think people the, – the topic of the talk was about his great book from the early 90s, which kind of kicked off the vintage collecting hobby. And I feel like not many people have talked about that book lately, and I felt like – Steve was probably appreciative that someone remembered it well and and wanted to do a whole talk about it because it sounded like obviously that was a big piece of his career when he did that and it kind of led to his being hired by Lucasfilm. So I thought it was great. One One of Sky's and Steve's better episodes and I was happy to be on there. Yeah, it was a fantastic episode. Many thanks for sharing everything, Ron. Not just your articles, but all of the blog posts that are on there. Us guys in the UK really do appreciate them. All right, Richard. Well, thanks for doing your podcast. It's been great. Keep up the good work. The moon with a rebel base will be in range in 30 minutes. Rich, waiting for Star Wars gets a little bit easier. Has this got anything to do with that Phil Heeks' new book? <laughs> Surprisingly, it has. So Phil Heeks posted on the Star Wars Forum UK Facebook page a little advert, which we're going to cut to now. saga spanning five decades, one man's heroic journey from childhood to middle age through the trials and rigours of watching a lot of films and hoarding vast amounts of tat. A candid account of a lifelong obsession with Star Wars, told with affection, humour and just the vaguest hint of embarrassment. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll wonder the hell why. Waiting for Star Wars, available from lulu.com. It's not just a book, it's the event of the century. So that advert obviously intrigued us. Let's cut to an interview that I've just recorded today with Phil Heeks discussing his latest book, Waiting for Star Wars. Good day to you, Phil. Hi there. Okay, Phil, Waiting for Star Wars. What can you tell us about this book? This is a memoir of sorts um, that I began writing about a year ago. And it basically begins in 1977 and ends just before The Force Awakens last year. And it's kind of an autobiography, but purely related to Star Wars experience. 
what was it like waking the Star Wars and right back to 1977? What were your earliest memories? The earliest memory is actually my uh, brother having the novelisation and he was always reading paperback books and this one just piqued my curiosity somewhat and he showed me the photographs and the medal and uh, I was intrigued by this. But it was still a few months away from making it to um, Stoke-on-Trent. It took, I think, until March of the following year, 1978, to actually make it to my area. It's amazing how when we talk to different guests, they all have a different experience about how they first found Star Wars. Some guys will say, oh yeah, I saw it in the movie theatre, but I think you're the first one to say a novel. We've had many say the Marvel comics was their introduction. The first words of the book are, I was a Star Wars fan long before I actually saw Star Wars. The first chunk of the book is um, about leading up to the film. There's quite a lot that goes on before I even see the film. And by the time I see the film, I'm already a Star Wars nut, um, and I haven't even seen the film yet. But the, the, you mentioned the, the Marvel comics. They were the next thing. My brother bought me both of the large Marvel treasuries, the 50p oversized comics. Um, and so that was my next ex- experience of, uh, of Star Wars. Um, and then there was things like the collector's edition when we had the Super 8 Sony film. So all these things um, I had exposure to be- before I actually saw the film, which is quite weird looking back to know so much and be so steeped in the lore before actually seeing the film. So did the film live up to your expectations? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I still remember going to see, we, we queued, it was a Sunday morning, it was Mother and Sunday actually, and queued on the pavement outside the cinema for about two hours, and myself, my elder brother and my cousin, and what I hadn't realised at the time, they only found out, thanks to a clipping my brother saved, is the attendance was quite low that day because the sun was shining in Stoke-on-Trent, which was quite unusual, and so um, it wasn't as well attended as I remembered it, because all I remember is sitting in a queue on the pavement outside, which was very much a phenomenon of the time, I think. But I don't remember much about watching it the first time because we've seen it so many times since. It all gets merged into one. But the main thing I do remember about the first time is being quite amazed at how the X-Wings exploded in mid-flight. Well, I've been used to seeing things like Space 1999 where everything's quite static when it exploded. So that's strangely my one memory of the first viewing is, is just how impressive the, the exploding spaceships were. Did you um, go back and see this multiple times at the movie theatre? Absolutely. I think we went back within the week. We saw um, very different then. It was a rainy night as opposed to a sunny morning. We saw it numerous times. There was one time when we even did the old trick of crouching down in the seats so you could stay in and watch it again. We also saw the very last showing of the run and then when it came back a few weeks later or whether it may have been a few months we went back again. I've completely lost count of how many times I saw it at the pictures. This is all thanks to having an older brother who used to spoil me rotten. Yeah, I was wondering that because I think back in the day, my parents would have absolutely forbidden me to go back to, in their words, waste money on a second viewing of the same movie. (laughs) Yeah. What we hear very little about is the waiting for Empire Strikes Back because it was quite a number of years after Star Wars. What was that waiting period like for you? That's um, a bit of a blur. I remember a lot about the period in terms of starting to collect uh, items on the first film. Um, primarily, my fandom is based on the first film. If there'd never been any other films, I'd still be a nut to this day, I believe. Um, and I still kind of lodged, even though I've got a lot of stuff on the other films, I, t- I tend to favour 
and I'm most drawn to, th- to things related to the first film, which I still consider to be called Star Wars. <laughs> so it was the, the beginning of collecting souvenirs related to the film, which I always saw as, because the film wasn't readily available, it's like taking a piece of the film home with you in some other form, whether it be a book or a, or a record or a magazine or a toy. And then I, the, there were inklings of Star Wars 2, as it was being referred to in, in things like Star Wars Weekly Comic and and then the photos and images started to come through and then finally arrived and we saw that on a 11 o'clock at night showing, a preview showing before before it started, started properly the next day. So I remember going to bed to try and get a couple of hours sleep because I didn't want to fall asleep through the film. That was yeah. unsuccessful, as you can imagine. I just lay there. And then uh, I'd been, I'd, I would have been about, I think I was 12 at the time. And then uh, off we went and watched a, essentially a midnight showing of The Empire Strikes Back. I don't think I was aware at the time of just how different it was to the first film, strangely, considering they are so very different stylistically, thematically, visually, everything. It's, it's only kind of in retrospect, I think, that I was aware. But then again, I, I don't think I ever quite noticed the difference between season two and season one of Space 1999 at the time, and they're yeah. drastically yeah. different as well. So, so yeah, that was the experience of, uh, of going to see The Empire Strikes Back. Um, my first, the first time I saw footage, I went to see Kramer versus Kramer, and they showed the trailer, and I remember seeing the attack walkers, and my first reaction, actually, was I thought they looked silly, which changed. But um, And I wasn't keen on the idea of a Muppet being in either, but that changed as well. Yeah. Talking to a few collectors, they have uh, memories where quite a lot of people were disappointing with the ending of Empire Strikes Back. Do you recall that at all? I don't think so. I already knew. I'd already read the novelisation, um, so I knew everything that was going to happen. And I loved the ending. I think it's hugely helped by John Williams' score. You do, that, the, the score gives you a huge sense of closure where there isn't really closure in the story um, just because it's so soaring and dramatic so no I've always loved the end I've always felt that the ending is satisfying that, you, that it kind of doesn't feel open ended in, in, in some ways and that it's so dramatic and it kind of mirrors the, the line up of the, the throne room shot at the end of, of Star Wars but I do remember then that it was a three year wait before we found out what happened to Han Solo and whether Vader was lying and now I love the fact that focusing on your book now that you've gone yeah. with the retro style 1977 novel colour. Was that always going to be the case? Were you always going to go with that design? Um, that was the initial design. I started playing around with other designs and, and because it, it was written over several months. I started, I wanted it to look more like an official Star Wars book um, without reaching copyrights. And, and for people who might not get the reference, I wanted it to kind of stand out a bit more um, as a official Star Wars book, but the more time went on and the more people convinced it needed to be the cover that it was. It's going to be an e-book published by Bear Manor Media in the US, so obviously there's just going to be um, a JPEG of that cover with it being an e-book, but that's going to be based on the junior novelisation, which had a red cover with yellow lettering on it, because I just thought that would be more striking if the book's not in a physical form, if it's only online. Yep. So there's uh, going to be an alternate cover for that. Now, the description online for the book reads thus. This is a candid account of a lifelong obsession with Star Wars told with affection, humour and just the vaguest hint of embarrassment. An epic saga spanning five decades, one man's heroic journey from childhood to middle age through the trials and rigours of watching a lot of films and hoarding vast amounts of tat. You'll laugh, you'll cry and you'll wonder the hell why. Is that a fairly accurate description? 
Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a bit self-effacing and it's kind of covering me too. Uh, I'm hoping that that shows that I am a geek, but I'm not what you think of as archetypal geek, in that I can see the funny side of this and I can even see the ridiculousness of it, but it doesn't stop me being obsessed with it. So that that's kind of designed to to say there's there's, there's some humour in it. It's written. In, in places quite tongue-in-cheek but it is affectionate it is um honest but there is there's a degree of humor in the whole thing i think by the sounds of it you captured a lot of what collectors are thinking about their own journeys through this whole period i hope so i'm, I'm, I'm hoping that um it's anybody who reads it it stirs memories it stirs familiarity empathy their own experience uh, makes them go oh yeah i remember that oh i felt that way it's it's really designed to evoke that kind of response and i hope um, people enjoy reading it as much as i enjoyed writing it and finally phil i'm really intrigued by this book where can i purchase a copy at the moment in the, in the coming months it will be available through Amazon and Barnes and Noble. At the moment, it can only be ordered as a physical copy through lulu.com. That's l-u-l-u.com. Uh, and just type in "waiting for Star Wars," it'll find it. And then, hopefully, within the next month or two, it will be available on Bear Manor. That's B-A-R-M-A-N-O-R Media. Uh, we're a company in the in the U.S. as a as an ebook. You'll be able to find it on there as an ebook. Okay, cool, and we'll put links to all of those places on our Facebook page. That'd be good. There's a page for my book yeah. um, on there, so if if you can link to that, that's the first step of the journey to getting the book going. Okay, thanks very much, Phil, for your time. Thanks. You've told us some great stories there, and we'll all look forward to ordering a copy of your book. That's great. Thanks very much. Death Star approaching. Estimated time to firing range, 15 minutes. Strip this bad boy. What kind of games are you playing up north now, Rich? <laughs> yeah, I've heard this a few times. So this was a, a for sale that appeared on the Stores Forum UK in one of the eBay sections, and it was a, a 45 back Death Star droid for sale. But what was special about that, guys? It was a different droid's body, wasn't it? It was. It was a C-3PO inside that had been painted with the Death Star droid colours. Now, a lot of people immediately looked at that and screamed fake, but the seller was quite clearly somebody who's very knowledgeable in this area. Collectible Investment Brokerage. Thanks for that, Grant. And he was absolutely adamant that the seal was as good as anything that he's ever seen before. So with that, it was kind of like, oh, the providence there, it's definitely appears genuine. So how could a C-3PO appear inside a dress store droid? Any theories? Wow, you got all production theories, haven't you? Just people, yeah, the company doing it had a bunch of bodies, didn't think anyone noticed, all the way down to the, just the, you know, the end of the run, they were still vacuum-metalising the bodies and try some various other droid bodies. I don't know, it could have been a proto- early prototype. It could be all sorts of reasons. There's a little bit of a clue in the figure, I think, the reason for this. What kind of C-3PO is it? Got to be a removable limbs, isn't it, if it's the Death Star droid? It's not. It's a fixed limbs 3PO. What does that suggest, and when did the fixed limbs C-3PO disappear? What was the latest cord back for that? 45? No, I don't think it was on the 45 back, was it? 30? 41? Let me have a little look. Look, Jez, look. Yeah, Jez, you look for that. I think it could be the 41. Now, what that suggests, of course, is that they've probably decided to switch over to the removable limbs C-3PO run about that time. Did that come out on the 45 back? Yeah. 
So it's around about that switch time. So what it suggests is there was probably a lot of fixed limbs 3PO's lying about. And they probably decided just to use them as what Pete said. We've got these 3PO's. We'll just bung them in and, you know, get them painted and stick them in. Nobody's going to notice. And up until this time, hardly anybody did notice. Plausible? I think it's a miracle that this exists on a card. Because it's a miracle that it exists, let alone that it's actually survived to be still in this packaging. Yeah, I think the proof of purchase has been cut out of it as well, which is even more of a surprise that somebody's actually had it, <laughs> cut the proof of purchase out, and then still left the figure inside. How much did it go for then, Jez? Any ideas? $7,100. $7,100. What's that in English money? About £5,000, is it? But yeah, probably, probably a tad more in the current rate. But yeah, that's a hell of a lot of money. Sorry about that, Rich. I said with confidence. It went for seven thousand one hundred, but I was on mute. Yeah, I was on mute. I was still looking at the back of it, and I was distracted because I was looking at my C3PO Empostrex back, which is a forty-one, and that was the original. And obviously, this being a forty-five, so I think your theory there is uh, is bob on. But it's not my theory. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here, Jez. I'm not going to take credit for it. $7,100. Now, a lot of people have said, what? Crazy money? Am I being stupid here? But I actually don't think that's too bad a price, considering what it is. Well, it's a one-off, Well, from what we know, isn't it? I mean, that's going to appeal to 3PO focus collectors. It's going to appeal to Destar droid focus collectors. It's going to appeal to the 45-back collectors. It's going to appeal to droids collectors. There's such a big market for that one item, and, and I thought it would have went for a lot more than that. Especially considering when you're seeing some common cards going for, you know, the the three four thousand dollar mark now, I, I really don't think that's a bad price. Just going back to the uh, C3PO uh, fixed limbs, according to the Star Wars tracker, it, it appeared on a 65D Palatoy Return of the Jedi card, an Empire Strikes Back 41C, an Empire Strikes Back 41E, an Empire Strikes Back 41A. So, yeah, it's quite li- quite late then. It does suggest that that theory is quite plausible, then, doesn't it? That there was an overstock from the 41s. Yeah. So how long before we see some <laughs> numpty paint stripping one of these oh dear. and then selling it as a, I've had this since a kid, bought this back in 1981 and it's a genuine loose painted C-3PO. I'm going to see, I'm going to put it out there now, I think before Celebration London, I think we're going to see the first one being advertised on the internet. Yeah, I think it has to be a carded one to be worth the thing because just all limbs out of these things, so repainting and all sorts. Was them? I know this is a really stupid question, but I'm going to say it anyway. Was there any C-3PO's appeared in a silvery paint at all? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's quite a fluctuation between the C-3PO's when it comes to sort of paint designs on them, and I think that depends on where they come from. Okay. I can remember even as a kid, um, I had the fixed limb C-3PO. My mate had the my neighbour had the solid limbs one, and there was a big paint difference between those two as well. Yeah, because mine looks more silvery than gold, but it might just be time, I don't know. But uh, um, yeah, because I mean, I mean, I guess that would make it even easier to, to manipulate those sort of things by, if there is a very silvery looking figure, pop the arms off. And that's, I think that's why, yes, Rich, I agree there'd be some, someone trying it on, but I think it would just, you know, people just won't take much notice because it would be so easy to fake that. And I think if you look at Vince Healy's limelight on his C-3PO collection on Star Wars Forum UK, you can see just in his loose collection, there's quite a variety of shiny C-3PO's. Yeah, it's a fantastic collection, that. But I think Grant has summed that up there pretty much by saying, how the hell has this survived? An absolute <laughs> miracle. I'm really glad I've seen it. Yeah, it's a cracking piece. I love it. That's how we'll be in range in five minutes. Back to the life from the morgue, and I'm sure you're not talking about Jez after his 61st birthday this week. This was actually quite an interesting story, and I really enjoyed reading about this. Have you heard of the term the morgue before? 
Yes, where dead bodies are put. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, not in Star Wars terms, which I have not. No. Right. Well, the morgue, by all accounts, was the term that was given to where Kenner kept their pre-production items. And from the pictures I've seen on the internet, it looked just like a garage, a bit like Stu's garage, with just a roller shutter on it. And Kenner kept all of the pre-production stuff in there. And there were a couple of guys, uh, well-known collectors, who would visit the morgue, and they, they would go diving in the skips and pulling, you know, whatever they could find lying around out of the morgue. And Jordan Hembra on, I think it was on the 1221 Bark Facebook group, posted an image which showed an illustration of the Hoth Rebel Troop Transport, which he claims that he got from the morgue find. Now, just think about that, the Hoth Rebel Troop Transport. What am I referring to there? The Imperial Transport. So the Imperial Transport, which we know was obviously used twice, it was used as the traditional Kenna release, but it was also released as the CR's exclusive, was actually shown to be used for the Hoth Rebel soldiers as well, is the kind of goodies side of it. So, guys, you've looked at this picture. What did you think of it? I like anything like that, Rich. Anything which shows some original work, some concept stuff, some look what you could have won, I think looks great and completely fitting because, after all, we we saw at the end of Episode 4 on Yavin, you did see troop transports more so than an Imperial side of it. So it completely makes sense. And, no, I really liked it. I couldn't believe that wasn't a photograph. It was actually... A drawing. Yeah, very, very good drawing as well. It was only yeah. when I read the text and Jordan said illustration, I was like, what? Yeah, Christ, that's mad. What I do you think of I... the colours of this compared to the grey one? Um, I kind of, I think I kind of prefer it. I mean, it didn't look as torturous as the other one because it hasn't got that little clip, you know, the little clip on it where on the box it's, you know, torturing, was it Princess Leia or whatever it was? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really liked it. I, I preferred it, uh, this one, actually. It looks more of a Star Warsy thing. The battery compartment was like the brownie colour, like the Hoth Rebel Soldier, and I was really attracted to the back. I know it sounds stupid talking about the battery cover, but I thought the colour on that was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I really like it. really like that one. What was kept in the storage compartment on that? What was it advertised? Did you notice? No. It was the Hoth backpacks. Oh, good idea. Mm-hmm. Finally, somewhere to put those things. Finally, yeah, somewhere to put them. That actually made sense. Did you see the size of the guns as well on it? It was huge <laughs> compared to the guns on the Imperial Troop Transport. There was some serious weaponry on, the, on that transport, obviously to take out Atats, I would imagine. To go along with this um, image, Jordan put a bit of text on there, and he's basically been seeing, he was, he's been looking for the photograph for 15 years. He'd said that 15 years ago, he'd said he'd seen this. A lot of collectors said, oh no, nobody's seen it before. He's really pleased to show it off. And a lot of long-established collectors have come out and said, wow, they, they hadn't seen anything like it. And some guys had said, you know, we thought we'd seen everything. So it still goes to show that even now, stuff still coming out that people have just not seen before and he's actually wants to know who actually owns that piece now it's possible that's went to a collector in france but he doesn't know much more than that so thanks jordan for sharing this it's an absolutely fantastic item to see and as things joe said it's a fantastic uh, piece of artwork so cheers jordan
Right, now I want to welcome to the Vintage Rebellion podcast a popular and charming member of the Star Wars community, a mod on the new Tantif 11 forum, as well as running the Luke Skywalker Focus Collectors Group, and not forgetting his wonderful blog at Vintage Star Wars Collector Blog. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Bobby Bob's Christian Carnus. Good evening, Christian. Hi, Stu. Very generous, mate. And joining us with his beats, no doubt, at some point, is Jezebel. <laughs> hey, how you doing, Christian? You all right, buddy? Hi, mate. So, Christian, a quick, a quick question. You're half French, half Australian? I am. My dad's uh, from Marseille. My mum's from Sydney. And you grew up in Sydney? Most of my most of my life, yeah. Yeah, and moved to Holland around six years ago? Yep, about six and a half years ago. So, you've got all of France, all of Australia, and all of Holland, but you went to Tunisia to pinch your bride. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you do see the connection, right? Well, yes. Have you? I, I was going to ask that. Have you been there? Uh, I have. I've been there oh, like a lot, like 10, 15 times. But um, I mean, it's Tatooine, so I always wanted a Tatooine bride. Oh, well, just out of interest then, what, what uh, Star Wars character does your wife most resemble? Who does she most resemble? I would say probably a cross between Chewbacca and Princess Leia. <laughs> oh. oh, dear. Right, well, Christian, am I right in believing that you're fairly new back to collecting? I am. I've only been collecting a bit over three years. And yet you have your fingers in quite a few pies, don't you? You're a, a forum mod, you run a Facebook group, you interview and write articles for your blog. What is it that makes you want to involve yourself in so many different projects? And how do you find the time? Well, the, the real answer is ADHD. So I have a million a million things on the go. I want to be involved in everything. I'm very, extremely hyperactive. Like, my, my brain doesn't stop. So, I mean, this is only one hobby I have. I also collect comics and a lot of other things. So... I don't know. I started collecting three years ago, and at the start, it was just it was just about the collectibles. And then I started just getting to know people, and I found that I liked the relationships sort of more than I actually liked the toys. And t- to be honest, it's I mean, th- th- there was a point where I was putting a lot of time in a blog, a lot of time into Facebook, a lot of time into forums, a lot of time into buying, into looking at eBay and trying to buy things. But I have found that I actually don't have the time for everything. So the more that I'm focusing on the blog and, you know, and, and the new forum, 10 to 11 and, and sort of making friendships, I've actually probably had to, uh, cut down a bit on my sort of trawling eBay and trawling the Facebook groups of figures. So I'm not buying as much anymore. So I actually don't have the time to do everything, but, um, I think I am enjoying what I'm doing now more than more than the sort of the first year where I was just focusing on the buying aspect of the hobby. I mean, like six months ago, I would engage in every every debate, every discussion on Facebook and standing up for everything. But it actually got to a point where I just couldn't chase every debate down every rabbit hole and it was just taking too much energy. So now I think I've sort of pretty focused on what I want to be involved in and, and I'm really happy with, you know, where I'm at in the hobby at the moment. Talk about your blog for a minute. Was this the first of the three things to come along? The blog from Facebook and Tantive? Obviously, Tantive's going to be last, isn't it? It was the first, yeah. It was, it's been two years now. So you, you started the blog quite soon after being back into the hobby? Yeah, about a year after it, yeah. What made you come back into the hobby, just out of interest? Because you're born in 70... 74. 74, so you're 42 this year? Yeah. So you came back into collecting at around about age 38. What made you suddenly dip back in? I mean, I've always been a collector. I'm a bit sort of OCD. I'm always collecting things. And at the time I started collecting Star Wars, I was collecting sort of first edition old books. But um, I've been reading Star Wars Expanded Universe comics sort of since 2010, 2011. And I was never, I was never a big Star Wars fanboy, you know, but, uh, but like I've, I've watched the movies like a hundred times and I was always into it, but I wasn't, I wasn't insane about Star Wars and I wouldn't have imagined that I would have started 
collecting the figures. But um, about three over three years ago, there was uh, my wife told me about a vintage Star Wars figure uh, exhibition in Paris. My wife used to live in Paris, so she's pretty connected with what's going on there. And so she took me there, and I was just sort of walking around this exhibition, looking at these just just amazing pieces, and I was just really bringing back childhood memories. And I, I felt a very strong connection to what was being displayed, and you know, came back a whole. And I was still thinking about it a lot, but I didn't really imagine that I'd start collecting them. And my wife just sort of said, you know, why don't you start collecting vintage figures? And, I, and that's a great idea. And now I think she really regrets it. <laughs> Does she let you have them displayed? One display case, the middle of our living room. But I've, I've got a pretty strict focus, so I don't, you know, have you know, a huge room with just boxes and boxes of stuff. But, um, yeah, it's displayed here, and I've got a few sort of things on the wall. But uh, So I also collect comics. I have, like, thousands of comics. You've got a complete keeper there. So hang on a second. Let me recap. She not only, you know... Gets the whole Star Wars thing, encourages you to get into it. She allows you to have comics all over the place and you've got display in your living room. And she's making out that this is a great idea. Yeah, good one there. And the fact that she hasn't punched you in the face because you called her Chewbacca. <laughs> and we have an open relationship, so it's just perfect. <laughs> no, we don't. Not what she knows about. So after a year back into collecting, what made you suddenly, you know, you say you jump around between collections. What, what made you come into this hobby and after a year want to start blogging about it and writing articles? I don't know. Like, like I was sort of saying that in my first year collecting, I was, I was just buying, buying, buying. I'm, I'm, I, I think a lot of people like that. You're getting pretty excited. You want to buy up as much as you can. I was mainly on RS on Rebel Scum and I was just finding after about a year that I was, I'd, I'd made a lot of friends and I was, and the kind of threads that I was starting were on forums more about like the relationships and dynamics between collectors and why people collect and, and, and how we should treat each other and philosophy collecting and the different kind of personalities involved and the different selling philosophies. And I was having more fun sort of talking to people than I was actually buying the collectibles. So I guess I'd been given a lot. After a year, a lot of people had taught me a lot about vintage collecting. I had a lot of kindness. I had a lot of sort of veteran collectors treat me really well. And I wanted to sort of put something back into the hobby. And I thought, well, you know, I, I love learning about collectors and I want to know what, what makes people tick. And I really like writing and I sort of always thought that I'd start a blog. And I thought, why not have a blog that focuses, you know, on the collectors rather than the actual collectibles? And at that time, there were a lot of people that were, well, a few people were doing interviews, like Rich was doing some stuff on the UK forum and Joe does some great stuff on Trilogo. And I think even James on T was doing interviews, but no one was just focusing on interviewing collectors and writing articles about relationships and social networking. There was no real sort of motive behind it. It wasn't like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to be someone in the hobby or I want to I want people to know me. I want to give something back. You've just released an interview recently, haven't you, with, um, was it Dwayne Smith? Dwayne Smith, yeah. Just in case someone's not come across your blog before. So let's let's talk about Dwayne's interview. What what does he talk about in his interview? And The, the interview I had with Dwayne, I don't know if, if, if anyone's ever seen the photo that I posted of uh, someone dressed up as a vintage hammerhead figure oh. at, at, at the celebration of Star Wars. The best outfit ever, isn't it? Yeah. You just seen him, Jess? Yeah, yeah, mate, I was there. Um, yeah, you had the gun and everything. That was that was definitely the best outfit of the evening. So, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Someone came along and told me that uh, that the guy in the costume was actually a collector. So, uh, you know, I thought I might interview this guy. But actually, I have, t- I have two types of interviews. 
my blog, I do an in-depth interview. I've only done eight of those, and it, it takes months. I mean, I do, like, sometimes 50 questions all up, and there's a lot of to and throwing. But uh, the interview I had of Dwayne was just what I call a collector snapshot. It's just it's 10 questions, and I give the same questions to every collector coming on for that segment. So the question is just, like, what's your grail? How long have you been collecting? Uh, do you prefer forums or Facebook? What would you change about a hobby? Who, who inspires you? Pretty, uh, you know, what, what your favourite movie is, uh, what, what your favourite Star Wars movie is. So pretty standard questions. Straight away, your blog's fantastic. I love reading the interviews. So where can people find your blog? It's Vintage Star Wars Collectors one word dot com that's that's the website and i guess if you type in the same with spaces in between the words on facebook you find it as well i'm also on twitter but, but twitter is basically just it's just an automatic um upload of whatever i post on the facebook page we'll put links to it on our uh, on our facebook page and we release the podcast as well it really should be checked out just before i move on from your blog why bobby bobs huh. it's pretty stupid actually um my wife and I, we have a lot of really stupid nicknames for each other, like 30 or 40, and somehow she narrowed it down to Bob, and she just started calling me Bob, and then she started calling me Bobby Bobs. I initially signed up to Rebel Scum, just signed up because I wanted to ask a question about a, the first figure I ever bought, I was pretty sure it was a reseal, and it actually ended up being a Toy Tony Snowtrooper. But uh, yeah, and I just had to quickly think of a username, and I couldn't think of anything, and I just wrote Boy Bobs and, you know, sort of write some cool Star Wars names. I really didn't think that I'd be staying on. I just sort of wanted to ask a couple of questions, and I didn't think three years later I'd have a blog and, you know, I'd be meeting these people face to face. So it's just stuck. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're also a mod on the new forum, Tentative 11. How did this forum come about? I was one of the original, but I guess about, about 10 of them probably had gotten together before I was invited on, maybe just for a week, and they were chatting about it. And then through Alex McGraw, he invited me to be a mod as well. So they had already, I mean, they had already come up with this idea to have this forum, and the majority of them were sort of, you know, old school TIG guys. A few of them were mods, and I mean, TIG's a great forum, and, you know, they didn't necessarily want to leave, but they just, you know, they had this vision of a forum they wanted to create, and they got together and started their own. They wanted it to be like a moderator-owned forum, so there's 12 mods, but it's it's owned by the moderators. So they're the ones putting on the working, they're the ones that own it, you know, everything's democratic. How have the, the powers of B at TIG reacted to the forum? We've, we've had some members from TIG um, come over and join us. We... Uh, one of the mods there, Brian, was pretty sort of active at the start. He helped us a lot with feedback. We did invite the TIG team on. We invited them to come and, you know, give a special preview sort of feedback. They pretty much, other than Brian, they didn't accept. But it, it is a sticky situation, and I can appreciate it from both ends. But, I mean, from our, I mean, I wasn't on TIG very much. I was a bit, so, you know, I don't have any issues really. But some of the guys that were mods there, it was difficult for them because they knew that a TIG would be upset, but they wanted, there was no sort of offence to TIG. They just wanted to start their own thing, you know, and they wanted to carry out their own vision. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't heard any, any bad feedback from TIG, but we also haven't had really anyone come over and welcome us. But, you know, we understand. What does this forum offer that the other main competitors don't? Well, they call it competitors. I know they're not really competitors, you know. Uh, there's a lot of naked photos of Alex. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. I wish I was. But, um, one of the main differences is, I guess, is that you know we have a couple of IT guys who honestly just 
they're just stellar. And they're really exploiting forum technologies to try to modernise our forum. And I mean, we can see that Facebook is, it's not killing off the forums, but it's taking a lot of traffic in forums. And we try to work out how we can bridge this gap between Facebook and forum. And it, it didn't have to be an either or experience. So we thought maybe if we improve the technologies, then that would make, you know, the user experience a lot easier and people would join up. And, and we have, I mean, you can, uh, we learned pretty early on to, you can attach photos like, directly from your phone, directly from computer. And that was always one of my biggest bugbears when I was on RS or Forum UK is that, you know, it was such a pain to upload photos. So we sort of sorted that one out. But also, I mean, you can you can tag other members so they get a notification that you tag them in the post. And there's always one thing that I wish that uh, RS and the other forums would do because that, that's one of the things that makes Facebook so easy. So there's that sort of modern experience as well, but, but, but we have a very, you know, we have, we have web 12 mods and they're all heavily involved in day to day side. I mean, there's no, it's not just for one guy and a few mods that maybe not too invested in the forum. We're all really invested in this and, and we're active every day. There aren't going to be guides or sort of things that are going to be outdated. We're going to update everything with a lot of people working on it. Uh, there are going to be no tumbleweeds, you know, it's, so I guess the fact that we're invested and that we own the site ourselves, there'll be a, more, a lot more interaction between the mods and, and the members. Finally, what is pretty huge is that they're building, I'm not that involved in this to be honest, I'm not the most technical collector, but guys like sort of Chris and Marco and Clint and Jay and Alex, and they are building figure guides and coup guides and, and, and the technology is amazing. I mean, if you, I don't know if you guys have looked at some of our coup guides, for example, but you can, they're advanced guides and they're, they're really comprehensive. You, you can zoom in on the coup and the, the pictures are just, I mean, the photography is amazing. It's all streamlined and you can zoom in on the coup and it's so clear. I mean, there's nothing else like it. I mean, Wolf has an amazing coup guide and I learned everything I know about variant collecting from Wolf's guide. But I mean, here's one guy, you know, we got, we got a bunch of people working on this. We're talking to members, try to fill some gaps. You know, you got guys like James who are always posting just hilarious sort of photos and videos and making everyone feel at home. But, but you have some of the best variant collectors in the hobby, but you also have these guides. The whole thing is aesthetically pleasing. I just think looking at it, 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 the whole website or the forum itself with the reds and the whites, it's really easy to use from my point of view. Yeah, it takes a while just to get used to some of the um, terminology. The R, what was it? The R2s um, projection, which is the uh, where everyone can showcase their stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, once you've got through that quirkiness, I really, really like it. The library itself is really good. Can you just tell me, what was it like in November? How exciting was it from your point of view? So you had the whole launch come up, the fact that you all knew about it, but no one else did. And then slowly you started inviting people to sort of have a quick check out before the launch, which also coincided with obviously The Force Awakens. That must have been a massively exciting time for you. It was exciting. It's Funny because it was exciting and not really that. I mean, for me personally, it wasn't nerve wracking because I didn't think we could really go wrong. I, I was really confident, and you know, the whole team is pretty confident that this was going to work. You know, we, we knew we had a good product. We knew that our guides were going to be good. We knew we had a nice bunch of people who really cared about the hobby. You know, and we were, we're not worried if if a thousand people don't join, that's fine. You know, at the moment we have like 150 members. You know, so I guess the expectations weren't weren't really massive. You know, we. We just wanted them to make a place where people were comfortable and where we were comfortable, and so we were never going to lose. But it was exciting. I mean, we didn't know how it was going to go. We thought maybe, you know, 
five people will join up in a month. We had a pretty big influx of people come in pretty early. So that was, uh, you know, it was, well, that wasn't exactly the goal. It was, you know, it's always nice to know that people appreciate what you're doing. I don't, I'm not sure if people sort of realize, and, you know, I'm not really speaking for myself because there are other guys that have done a lot more work than me, but a lot of work went into, for example, just, just the IT side of it. I mean, you had guys like, you know, we have our mechanics who, who were just, just, just IT geniuses and they set the whole site up and made it so easy to use. And that was a lot more work than, than it seems. And just putting some of those guides together and, you know, it was a massive amount of work. And the week before we launched, having a ride of the different, all the different welcome messages and it was exciting, but, but a lot of work. It was a nice relief just to get it up and we had a pretty nice reception. It was very fulfilling. Uh, don't tell anyone at work this, all right? But I, I was looking. Uh, I was having a quick gander this afternoon, and uh, and I was looking through the R2's projector screen, and I was going back, and, and I could see posts which you were all making dating back to February 2015. Yeah. So yeah. had you guys all been creating this and and building it up over ten months or so before you went public? We had. I mean, a lot of the posts that we were doing, you guys would never see because you know we have a special spot for just for moderators and you know we're we're, it was you know constantly busy every day just trying to work out what direction to take uh the best things to include you know it was yeah it was uh it was it's funny because what you guys will see is just what is public but a lot was going on behind the scenes so we were already you know 10 months into it before we launched moving on slightly something that's often debated and always has you we've already touched on it here that has two very opposing opinions is obviously the facebook versus forums debate but you have a massive involvement in both what benefits do each have and how can they complement each other in helping the community rather than being opposing all the time i agree with you. this is one of the problems with the mentality it's like facebook versus forums and this is one thing we tend to that we really that we want it to be everyone working together but i'd say but I still, with, with forums, I still find that the discussion is, is probably more intelligent and sort of respectful to each other. Because it's, it's not, with, with Facebook, you know, a lot of these groups are public and any, any Joe Blow can just sort of sign up and start trolling and just get involved. Whereas with the forums, you have to, you know, you have to take the time to sign up and usually serious collectors get involved. And if you sort of mess around, you know, you're really easily shot down and, I guess, you know, Facebook can probably learn from, from the forums, maybe, you know, be a bit more respectful to each other. And I mean, it still happens in the forums, but just not as much as on Facebook. There's less trolling. Uh, certain forums too, there's less misinformation, which is one of the problems I have with Facebook is that, in, you know, and I've actually done it a couple of times where I've written something incorrectly, but luckily, you know, the more experienced collectors there to, to correct me, but, Anyone can just join any Facebook group and one person asks a question and a thousand different answers and there's some pretty scary answers from people. And I, and I find that that doesn't happen as much on forums. You, the members seem to be more experienced. Forum too, I think there's less blatant flipping. I mean, there is flipping, but it's not like on Facebook where someone will buy a 12 back from a group and then within the same group, they'll flip that same, flip it for the same, you know, for double the price they bought it. And it, that doesn't seem to happen as much as on forums. Well, not that selling really happens that much anyway these days on forums, but from, just from what I saw, it didn't happen as much. But I guess at the end of the day, I mean, when you look at Facebook, the negatives of Facebook, it really is just a microcosm of our society, or at least sort of, you know, North American and Western European societies where the majority of collectors seem to come from. So, yeah, it's not a particular problem with Facebook or a particular problem with vintage collectors. It's just it's just different cross-sections of our society, and this is how people are, unfortunately. 
But Facebook does have its positives. I mean, I think Ross Barr actually made a really good comment uh, when you guys had a Facebook discussion before on the podcast, and he said that without there are a lot of people who wouldn't have joined our hobby if it wasn't for Facebook. And I really agree with that. I mean, it, it takes a bit of time to sort of join join a forum. You can be a bit scared off. It all seems a bit in sort of intense and serious. And let's be honest, sometimes it's a bit elitist. But Facebook's made it a lot easier for people just to join up and join some discussions. Uh, it's a lot easier, a lot easier to sell. I mean, I I don't sell on forums anymore. I don't sell a lot, but when I sell, I do it on Facebook, and it all happens very quickly. The usability of Facebook so it's so easy to scroll through. But so I I probably go on Facebook more than I do forums, even though I'm a mod. But that but that, I don't on forums. I have more of a filling experience. I think with Facebook, if you know if 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 a group is well is well administered, you know you have like the tall tall back group, for example. I mean those guys run a really tight ship, so there's not as much trolling, there's not as much sort of misinformation. So with groups like that, that they can be very positive. My main focus is the actual website, but if it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't get that much traffic. I mean, I probably get about a hundred hits a day, you know, without posting anything. And then when I post something, I share it around on Facebook. I, I can get, I can get over, you know, over a thousand easily, thousand hits in the blog. So I really have to thank Facebook for how popular my blog has become. Probably the, one of the best things about Facebook is when, when I was on forums, I hadn't really met many collectors face to face and all I saw was their, you know, fake uh, forum name. And But now in Facebook, it's sort of, it's humanized collectors. Like now I see their face, I, you know, I see, sometimes I see with, I see their families, I see where they're going on vacation. So I've gotten to know people a bit better. And then when I met them face to face, like at, in Anaheim, for example, it just felt like I already knew them. Whereas that wasn't happening with forums. I, I felt like I didn't know any, any of these guys. But then again, I'd only been on the forum for like six months before I started uh, getting active on Facebook. And obviously you started up the vintage style. Star Wars Luke Skywalker Focus Collectors Group on Facebook. I take it you started that because you are a Luke Skywalker Focus Collector. I am. Now, am I right in assuming you collect all versions of Luke figures? I do. All vintage versions. That's uh, quite a quite a broad spectrum there, isn't it, of uh, picking all of them rather than just one? Yeah, it's not really a focus, I guess. I mean, it's it's interesting what it, what is a real focus because, I mean, I have, I mean, that's that's quite a few guys there. I'm just looking over. How many are there? Two, four, there's like, what is it? Six? Seven of them. Seven, seven different Lukes to focus on. So, it's yeah, it's pretty wide. I do collect. I collect all the MOCs. And did you see what I said there? MOC. <laughs> Mint on card. It's an acronym. It's not mock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I collect all MOCs, baggies, uh, loose variants, bootlegs. Started with a couple of minor pre-production things. But I, I don't collect like beacles or sort of other paraphernalia. It's just mainly the figures, the three and three quarter inch figures, not 12 inch figures. Yeah, it's a wide focus. And how advanced are you at the moment in your collection? I have about 25 MOCs, about 80 variants, about 10 baggies. So, yeah, I'm very, very far away from completing it, which is great because, uh, you know, I wanted to go on forever. You know, I, I went my first year, like I was saying earlier, I really just went sort of health leather, just collecting everything I can. But then I really just took a step back. After a while, I just thought, well, I'm just taking it too fast. I wanted to learn more about what I was collecting. And I just thought, you know, this, this is just a hobby. And the, the amount of money that I was spending in my sort of first maybe, maybe year and a half just was a bit crazy. Like, like all of us, 
So I just, yeah, I did take a step back and soaked in what I had already and appreciated what I had. But I don't, I don't collect all the different, like I collect each card back, like with the different, for example, like a 12 back, 20 back, 21 back, but I wouldn't collect like a 12A, 12B, 12C. I might get to that point, but at the moment I'm not um, that focused a collector. So you do go down each back. You're not just going with the front, you know, like Star Wars Empire. I'm going with each back and then I have, uh, sometimes I have, you know, some variations like I have a Luke Jedi with a clip sticker or um, I think I'm just about to start it. I'm sort of halfway through a 9-num. I don't know if I said his name right, but uh, every Luke that had a 9-num nine, a sticker on it. So I have doubled up with a couple of card backs there. But, but in general, yeah, I don't. Yeah, like, like, like I don't collect each offer, for example. You know, like, yeah. yeah, it's more about the card back. At least you've um, chosen a nice cheap seven figures to go after, eh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, now every, every, I mean, it's great to have all these new, like, everyone collecting Luke's because it's a lot to talk about and to share, but, but it really has made things very expensive. I mean, I've only been collecting over just, just over three years, but prices have just, I mean, my 12 back that I bought two years ago is now double the price. And that's just, that's just crazy. But, uh, there's nothing much you can do about it. But I, I guess I just, when things were getting, when things were getting a bit too expensive, I mean, it wasn't just that it's, it's not that I can't afford to buy them. It's that I, I felt a bit sort of, sickened about how expensive things were getting you know i just i don't know it was a bit of a feeding frenzy and i just i kind of didn't, didn't want to be a part of it even if there's a figure that i really want i thought do i really want to spend that much on a figure you know and and do i want to compete with everyone else for, for this sort of 12 back loop do you think the prices will come down at all or do you think this is here to stay yeah that's that, that that's a hard one i i read something recently that someone was saying uh, and it sounded sort of right that high-end pieces at the moment are sort of really holding their value but the lower end stuff is is sort of leveling out a bit but i guess the problem is is, is high-end stuff now is so expensive that it's only a small amount of collectors that can really afford to to get into it and i don't think it's just people who i'm not going to say wealthy people because it's also some people that just choose to spend you know their, their disposable income on on Star Wars where other people you know want to travel or do other things but yeah it's sort of I just feel it's a bit unfair that not everyone can ha- can have a tall back or not everyone but you know that a lot of loot collectors can't buy a tall back for example and I do struggle a bit with the idea that my that my collection I and mean, I don't have the most expensive collection but that it's worth so much and it's really just a hobby and meanwhile the you know there's some guys down the road who are sleeping on the street. I don't feel bad for owning what I do, and I don't think anyone should feel bad for it. But just, I really wish that people would would appreciate how lucky they are that they that they can spend this kind of money on a hobby. They're not struggling to, you know, feed their families. I I feel very positive about a hobby, but just this is one thing I I don't feel good about is that people a little bit overprivileged at the moment and, and, and just, just don't appreciate what they have. And if you ever sort of complain about prices or complain about, you know, selfish selling or something you just people to say this is capitalism or this is america you know and it just to use sort of you know capitalism as an excuse for their greed is uh yeah it kind of sickens me a bit you also mentioned bootlegs how how far do you delve into the bootlegs i have about 20 of them i'm i'm trying to get every uh every different bootleg that they made for luke 
I, uh, my favorite ones are the model trims. The Brazilian, I have two of them. I've got a Luke X-Wing Sucker Jazz and the Luke Subway <laughs> with the nice little boxes. And they're actually two of my favorite pieces. But the bootlegs are, are amazing. I'm surprised they're not more popular. I mean, the prices are going up, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, they're amazing. They just look completely different to anything else. And just, I think it's so interesting that some of these countries where they didn't, where they weren't allowed to have Star Wars for political reasons, you know, that, that they were making their own, um, their own versions. I think it's amazing. I mean, uh, not just political reasons, but I guess some just, you know, they wanted cheaper versions when they couldn't afford the... the nonsense, yeah. Can I ask, did you go into the bootleg panel at Anaheim? I'm actually really embarrassed about that one because that was the one I was most excited about and I lined up. My wife and I didn't get in. We literally just missed out and I just interviewed Joe Iglesias for my blog and it was an in-depth interview and I just sort of met him face-to-face the night before and we were having a beer and I was like, yeah, I can't wait. And in the panel, he actually um, mentioned me and then mentioned my blog and he's like, yeah, Bobby Bob's is here, right? I was really embarrassed and I felt really bad for Joe. But um, I mean, I was really honoured that he mentioned me and mentioned the blog, but uh, yeah, n- not my best moment. And my wife actually said, oh, you should just go up to the door, people, and say, yeah, Bobby Bob's, and I'm, they'll let you in. I'm like, yeah. So. That was just crazy busy that, you know, people were leaving one panel and then they weren't able to get into the next one because the queue had already started around the corner. So, you know, there were all these kids, like, you know, eight, nine year old kids, like a bunch of them. And people, a lot of people were there just for the star tots, you know, you get a free star tot. They've really got to, I mean, it's great to get those star tots. I, I actually collect them, but I just think they've got to have a different strategy next time so that people that don't go there just for the star tot. Completely agree with you. In fact, I I thought that was massively selfish. The last thing I would do is take my two children, just drag them around panel after panel, just so I could build up a suitcase of Sartots to sell on eBay and on forums, which is clearly what some people were doing, and denying other people like you the opportunity to get in. Yeah, because there there were families there in front of me with three or four kids in tow, all playing on their Nintendo DSs or or what have you, not interested in the panel whatsoever, but they all just put their hands in the tub and got themselves a Sartot, so completely agree with you. And then you look what the start shop's selling for now on eBay. I mean, if you want a you want a Boba Fett, you got to pay like fifty pounds. And I mean, like I want to buy a few, but I'm just not willing to pay that much for something that was given given to you for just going into a panel. You know, Jez, do you want to make him an offer for his model trim right now? <laughs> I loved it. I, I want to see a picture of this, and you've got it boxed as well. I mean, oh man, how long have you had that? I uh, had, had that for about maybe a year and a half. There was a guy on, um, God, I don't remember his name now, but he was on RS and he was on Star Wars Forum UK too. And he had a thread that was a few years old and he had like, like quite like outdated prices as well. And, um, I can't remember his name. God, he had, he had almost a full collection and, uh, and he just bumped up his thread about a year and a half ago. And I was like, wow, you know, I sort of emailed him and said, have you still got, uh, the X-Wing? He's like, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I made him an offer and, um, I scored it. I couldn't believe it because he's. Oh, nice. Well, I got my first bootlegs at the room sales at Anaheim. And uh, I guess that's the sort of place where you can definitely pick up stuff like that as well. But I can't remember seeing any model trends at Anaheim. But I definitely got my Polish, a couple of my Polish ones there. I, I want to put you on the spot, Christian, okay? The seven Luke figures. I want you to rank them one to seven. Uh, I would say Luke Farmboy, Luke uh, Vespin, then Hoth, Jedi, X Wing. Luke Stormtrooper and Luke Andor. Okay, my turn. If I'm <laughs> you've got you, you've got Luke Hoth, 
in a bar and you've got Luke Poncho, or as you call it, Endor, in a bar. And uh, and they square off for each other. Who wins that fight? Oh. I'm not asking you, Romba. <laughs> Ah, uh, mate, it'd have to be uh, Luke Poncho because at that stage he was much better with the force. Oh, right, okay. Okay, we're talking action figures with his weird hat. That's fine. Um, so, same question, and I'm not gonna, we're only gonna do one more of these, so let's face it then. So, you've got Luke Farmboy versus Luke X-Wing in a bar, and it's just about to kick off. Who wins that fight? Oh, X-Wing, you just shoot him. Oh, fair one. That one. All right then. Okay. Thanks very much. Yeah. Moving on. The, what one Luke thing in your collection, which is totally stunning, and I don't know how where it ranks for you, and that's your glass leak, Luke. How did you come to own that? I actually bought that from uh, Star Wars Forum UK. Now, oh, did you? Do you guys remember? It was Paul. He had like Hoth, Hoth Troopers, something seventy-two or something. Really cool guy, and he used to collect uh, like foreign Carter figures and. Uh, he was selling it, and I, and I was actually the third person in line to buy it, and the first two buyers pulled out. I couldn't believe it. The price was just crazy, you know, even at that stage. But I don't think Paul was on Facebook, so I don't think he understood how crazy prices really were. It has a bit of a hole in the bubble, so it's maybe why it's a bit cheaper, but the, the car back is just, it's just beautiful. So it just looks like nothing else, and the actual figure itself almost looks like a bootleg. And it's just, it's just beautiful. To have something from Brazil, I mean, I don't know, who would have thought? Can you pronounce his name for me on the card? Oh, Cavalero Jedi, which is terrible pronunciation. My wife's a translator, so she thinks I mispronounced everything, including English. Now, back to your childhood. You say you were born in 74. Yeah. You grew up in Australia. Um, when did you first see the movie? Well, I've worked out now that it was 1979, because I, 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 saw, I saw Star Wars at the cinema, so I always assumed it was in the first run, but then I did some research in the first, you know, it was, uh, I would have been, you know, three years old and I was living in, I was living in Marseille, France at the time and I definitely saw it in Sydney. So I worked out that I must have seen it with my uncle in 1979, Sydney, where we, we had it rerun just before, um, Empire. And was there the hype there like there was elsewhere? I've got to admit, I don't, I was so young, I was five years old before the first movie that I don't remember, but I do remember during Empire, the hype was massive. I mean, I, 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 I was only like six years old or something, it was massive even at that age. We all had the figures, everyone was talking about it. I mean, the day after I saw it, me and my mate were at, were at school and we were drawing the Hoth battle. So yeah, there was a, there was a lot of hype. What was your collection like as a child? Did you have a good, a good amount of figures and toys and whatnot? Yeah, yeah, I had a lot. I was crazy about Star Wars. I mean, when I told my family that I'm collecting Star Wars again, they all just said, you know, they always thought it was so natural because I was a huge fan and I had a whole bunch of figures. I don't know, maybe 30 figures. My uncle used to take me to the department store every Thursday night shopping and buy me one figure, but it's, it's kind of funny that, you know, I read threads where people are talking about, you know, what packaging the figure had and whether it was tall toys or whether it was this or power of the force or what the packaging looked like and tearing for bubble. I don't have these kind of vivid memories. I, I don't remember what line any figures were that, that I used to buy. And I only remember actually three figures that I had. There was a Luke Hoff, uh, Chief Chirper and uh, Princess Leia. And I, I know I had a lot, but I don't remember ripping them open. I, so it's kind of funny that people have these vivid memories, but I do. The only thing I really vividly remember buying was the Darth Vader case. I didn't see my dad from the ages of five to 18. He was living in France. He was a sailor. And, uh, one of his sailor mates came over when I came to Sydney when I was about eight or nine over on one of the French Navy ships. And he called mom and he said, look, I've got some money from, from the kid's father and he wants to buy the kids some presents. 
So they took me to Grace Brothers, the local department store, and I just straight away, bang, just bought the Darth Vader case. So that was kind of the first present I remember having for my dad and had all my figures in there. But then when we went to, when you go to school, you couldn't, you couldn't take toys into the actual classroom. So I had to leave the Darth Vader case with all the figures outside the classroom. And some lovely colleague of mine stole all the figures from the case. But they did leave the case and they left a Bespin Leader because it had no head that my dog had chewed off. So I was left with a Darth Vader case with a Bespin Leader and that's basically when I got out of collecting. Couldn't deal with the emotional heart heartache at that age. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I got into Masters of the Universe after that. Well, if we've got if you've got his name, we could collectively track this bloke down. Well, he's actually a Vietnamese kid called Ni Hai. And I'm not joking, he was tiny. His name was Ni Hai. <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm not joking either, but I, I didn't know at the time it was him, and I went to his house, one of my best friends, I went to his house and took my Masters of the Universe collection about six months later, and I lined them all up along his sofa, and we all went to school, like I could stay there overnight, we all went to school, we came back, and uh, they were gone. And I asked him what happened, he said, oh, my mum threw them out, and she didn't speak English, and uh, that was it. So and she, there's, there's no way that she threw them out, so he basically stole my whole collection. Good God. <laughs> Can I ask you a quick question, just completely aside? So, Australia, now in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, what's Stoll's collecting like there? So, forget the internet, forget forget Facebook, forget the forums. You know, we all love this whole thing about, oh, in, in the wild finds. You know, you can be at a local charity store or some sort of shop in town. What's it like where you are? It's pretty bad. I mean, as far as I know, there's nowhere in The Hague, which is where I am, like the third biggest city in Holland, there's nowhere here where you can buy vintage. There's only like, you know, maybe one comic store even. But uh, in Amsterdam, as far as I know, there's one store, like a toy shop that has some vintage. I bought one Luke Jedi Carter figure, and other than that, he hasn't got much. It's a really nice store. I did get lucky once. I mean, you said don't mention the internet, but it wasn't on Facebook or anything, and it's not exactly in the wild, but I was just Googling uh, Luke Skywalker Holland, and I found this little vintage this little vintage online store that you know, had just one Star Wars figure, and they just, you know, she basically sold like dolls and brooches and really weird sort of eclectic things, and they just, and she was selling a Luke Jedi Beautiful 65A pallet toy with a, with a clipper sticker on it, like perfect condition for just a crazy low price. And so it's probably my, you know, best sort of even close to in the wild, uh, buy in Holland. And it wasn't actually in the wild, so. So my visions of clipper stickers everywhere just not really happening. Maybe if you buy collections, but like I, like I don't speak Dutch, so I know six and a half years, but, uh, I, um, so I, I'm not really, like I don't sort of post things in the, you know, I, I do sell things in the Dutch classifiers, but I sell them in English, so I'm not sort of posting things saying, hey guys, you know, bring your collections to me, but I know that some other guys have bought have bought big collections and there's been quite a few clippers in there so they're right around you're you're coming to celebration aren't you what are your plans i am i am i've got my tickets already i'm coming the friday and the sunday and the saturday i'll have a day off to see my cousins well well i look forward to seeing you in london won't we jess jess will buy a couple of pints definitely (laughs) maybe get paid well over here (laughs) well final couple of questions then christian 
What are you actively searching for at the moment? I couldn't say I'm actually look, looking for anything at the moment. I, the last six months, I've probably spent most of my money on comics. I collect comics probably more than I do vintage Star Wars. But, you know, if, and the, the prices at the moment, they're just sort of crazy. So, you know, the odd sort of baggy that I don't have, you know, maybe a blue blue saber, Luke Jedi, or, you know, I have grails, but, like, I can't imagine imagine buying any of those anytime soon. So, yeah, uh, maybe a, a, a proof, like a Revenge of the Jedi proof, actually. I wouldn't mind. And finally, if we're all being uh, transferred to another planet, money's no object, but there is r- only room for one piece of your collection to come with you. What are you taking? Uh, I would definitely take my glassly Luke. And where can everyone find you? Now, you've got lots of, uh, lots of addresses to give out here. Your blog? Yep, VintageStarWarsCollectors.com. The forum? Tantive11. That's in Roman numerals, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, sorry, TantiveXI.com. And your group on Facebook? Uh, tongue twister. It's like Luke Skywalker Vintage Focus, Focus Collectors or something like that. <laughs> Close. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, are you on Twitter or anything? Anyone find you anywhere like that? Uh, I am on Twitter. It's I think it's BSCW Blog. Vintage Star Wars Collectors acronym blog. Well, Christian, thank you ever so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, guys. I'm really, really honoured you asked. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and to be honest, I was pretty shocked that you would want to interview me, but uh, yeah, I'm really honoured. Come on. And looking forward to meeting you both in uh, in London. Definitely, yes. Yeah, mate. Thanks ever so much for coming on. I mean, you, you've been quite eloquently saying about what you're doing is just all about the friendships and the connections and and if anyone goes onto your luke skywalker facebook group they can see that because the first post you've put on is something along the lines of don't matter how big this is we just want to be able to you know make friends and and be connected and it's just like that on txi and on the blog what you're doing for the star wars community mate is brilliant and uh yeah genuinely really looking forward to meeting you again and seeing you in london absolute pleasure buddy oh thanks jez i'm really touched thank you well thank you ever so much Let's go over to Jez for this month's newest acquisitions. Hello, what have we here? Ah, good. New acquisitions. Admiral, we're in position. All fighters accounted for. Proceed with the countdown. All groups assume attack coordinates. The be with us. We are going to start straight away with Star Wars Forum UK. We're going to start on page 1874. Our friend Jimmy Woolley has posted an insane R2-D2 pop-up focus. Yeah, really interesting. It's uh, not something I come, al- come across that often, a R2-D2 pop-up focus, you know, especially with the last 17. And- don't see too many of those figures coming up in focus runs. I guess it's because you're going to have to rely on pre-production pieces more than doing a long carded run like you would with like a Star Wars or Empire figure. Incredible collection he's he's assembled already in such a short time. He's had a major pickup, and that is a glass light, uh, sorry, a glass lit, 
droids R2-D2 on the Power of the Force card. So he's got a Power of the Force pop-up R2 on the Power of the Force Glass Leak card, but he's also got the Glass Leak droids R2 on the Power of the Force card, which is, which is just stunning. He's also put together a little limelight there. Uh, some of the other stuff he's got in his collection, which I think is well worth highlighting, is he's got a R2-D2 sensor scope on a Trilogo card with a Trilogo bubble. So he's got a miss card with a miscarded bubble on that one, which I thought was also really exci- uh, a really interesting and exciting piece. Uh, he's got the Power of the Force uh, pop-up, the usual standard Kenner one. He's got a Canadian droids one. Loads of really interesting Power of the Force stuff there. He said that, you know, I asked him what his Holy Grail would be. And he, he said he liked some pre-production or uh, Uze R2. It got me thinking. I was wondering if I've ever seen a pop-up on a Tri-Logo Sensorscope card. I believe that's a miscard itself, but it's an incredible collection. Did you say you wonder if you've ever seen a pop-up on a Sensorscope card? Yeah, a pop-up R2-D2 on a Tri-Logo Sensorscope. I believe there's a miscard of that. And I thought, this is the collection it would need to be in. It'd be stunning stuff. I asked him about it. He said uh, most of his figures as a kid came second-hand from a stall. And his mum actually bought him this, uh, a pop-up, mint on card, new, but she forgot about it, and she found it several years later at the back of her wardrobe. So that was his first mint on card, and that's the reason he's got this um, fantastic obsession with this figure. Absolutely fantastic. Congrats, looks brilliant. And as we said, check it out on page 1874. It's a trap! Moving on to page 1877, we've got underscore Lee underscore... He's put on his Dairy Lee videos and a few other bits and pieces, but it was the, the Dairy Lee stuff, the Dairy Lee, not only the, the packaging, but the video which went with that. Apparently, it's rare as hen's teeth. Yeah, well, the videotapes aren't really that rare. I went and checked on eBay and I found a couple of them. So what they are was, they were, they were mail-away tape. You could get either a copy of a Droids episode, which was the tale of the Rune Comets. It was actually one of the better of the Droids episodes. Or you could get an Ewoks episode, Night of the Strangers. And I believe they were available for one ninety nine through purchasing the Davy Lee Cheese Triangle boxes. Included in the cardboard sleeve, you obviously have the video cassette, but he's also got the leaflet. Um, and I think the leaf- leaflet is a bit trickier to get. The leaflet enabled the purchaser to buy further tapes, which were priced at seven ninety nine, which had about 90 minutes worth of content on, which would have been about three episodes, I would have thought. Great purchase, and it looked as though it was in very, very good condition. Now, it's the transfers what he's referring to, which were really tough to get. And I've done a lot of reading on these transfers, and it was really interesting. And there's a website, which name escapes at the moment, which is run by Mark Daniels and Craig Spivey, that has lots lots of information on these DVD transfers. So we'll put a link up to that on our Facebook page. But the day really begun advertising these Leprechaun transfers in issues of Marvel. And they featured four exciting scenes, which the, the which they called Bespin Cloud City, Dagobah, Bog Planet, Space Battle and Hoth Ice Planet. And these were scenes which were printed on the basis of the packaging as well. So you had some of them inside the Marvel comic and you had some of them inside the, the Davy Lee box uh, sets that the triangles came in. They are really tricky to track down, so good score, Lee. He said these aren't the most desired pieces, but to someone like him, an oddball collector who actually collects this type of stuff, they are special. He said he remembers pestering his mum for these whilst out shopping. He used to open them as soon as he got back and just throw the cheese triangles back in the fridge. He said it actually represents a huge part of our childhood, some great memories. 
He's a mail away set and two transfer sheets away from the set. And then he'll move on to the empty Dairy League tubs. It's fantastic. Good on you, mate. It's a trap. And moving on. Twin 33mm. Also talking about all sorts of oddball stuff and, and bits and pieces. Letraset. Yeah, other stuff as well. Twin 30mm. Grant, I'm going to come back to you again. What have we got on this, mate? Well, he, he states on Stalls from UK that it's, he's had quite a couple of months, but he's certainly come bouncing back with lots of different things, like he's got the Factors stickers there, he's got the Return of the Jedi stickers, he's got a cracking couple of copies of the Marvel UK comics with all the free gifts. I'm especially loving the first and second issue, which is it's hard to find him with the free X-Wing and the free TIE Fighter in that condition. So he's, he's done really well there. He's also got the Letra Set writing set. So, you know, Letra Set is a, it was a UK uh, stationary license that came out in 19... 19- 1978 when it came to the stationary items i believe that they were out with the transfer sets in 1977 obviously they're they're really well known for the transfer sets i mean i think that's because it's sort of not only the transfer sets but the sort of cross-branded confectionery promotions that they had during the time as well it's letter set is a, probably a big part of the first initial beginnings of star wars in the uk letter set also published uh, transfer sets in Europe as well. I haven't seen any of the stationary sets. And what I mean by stationary sets, uh, when we had Craig Stevens on the show back in August, he came up with the best idea of remembering this. And if you can imagine that the license for Star Wars stationery was split between Helix and Letra set, well, Helix is the stuff that you write with or draw with. They're in incredible condition. He's got the large size scrapbook, he's got the C3PO exercise book, the C3PO and R2D2 writing pad the uh, RTD2 memory bank, the Princess Leia Jota, the Chewbacca Space Notes, and the Stormtrooper manual. Uh, really good condition as well. He is missing one. There's an R2D2 write, uh, space writing set as well. It's a bit different than the others because it comes in sort of like a cardboard container. But I'm also missing one of those as well. So, you know, hopefully we'll both find one together down the line. Um, I do love these pieces. Obviously, this is my sort of area of collecting. One thing I found fascinating about them, I urge anyone to go and have a look at these sets. Which page was it on, Jez? 1877. Page 1877. And if you look at them, you know that they're vintage. But if you pretend that you don't know that they're vintage, they do actually look modern. I mean, the artwork is unique to uh, Letra Set. And I think you could get away with putting those in a stall today and people wouldn't actually recognize them as vintage pieces. So I think that, that that's something that's quite unique about them. Like I said, I haven't actually found any of the stationery, any of the writing pads or any of that. I've never seen that go out into Europe at all. I have seen the transfers, the transfers that did go into Europe. The I think Letraset were based in Kent, so you know down where down where down where you are, Stu. Uh, they're a fantastic thing to collect. I really have enjoyed collecting uh, the Letraset stuff. Um, what you'll find, uh, just like some of these oddball items, is that the the prices will fluctuate quite wildly. You'll be able to pick up things incredibly cheaply or you'll be able to pick up stuff that is you know when you get a couple of them together the prices do rise quite dramatically you won't see anything over a hundred pounds obviously quality uh, is everything when it comes to collecting these i think the r2d2 the r2d2 space writing set and the big large size scrapbook probably command the most but you can you can pretty much find these stuff on ebay all the time but the the condition of the stuff that our friend Twin 30mm has on Star Wars from UK, is, it's a beautiful set and great condition, so congratulations to him. With regards to where they were, yes, yeah, Ashford and Kent, and Letra set were formed in 1959, 
but as Grant said, they, you know, they got the Star Wars license at the end of the 70s, moving all the way through all three films, and then their final bits were with Return of a Jedi Weekly, mounted on the cover issues of issue number 97 and 98 and 99, three sheets, Ewok stickers, completed a run of eight years, bringing the saga to kid collectors nationwide. Oh crap, prepare to jump into hyperspace on my mark. Right, moving on. Page 1879, The Force UK, completed is 77A run. Now, from a, from a collector point of view, when I first got into collecting, I was like, yeah, what, what is all this 77 run? Does that mean they've got to collect all 77 cards? Well, that's a bit of a hard one. Stu, can you explain what's going on here? Well, no, Adam, Adam has completed the 77A debut run. Now, the 77 backs for the debut was only for 12 figures. Uh, Klaatu Skiff, 88, Han Solo, Trenchcoat, Emperor, Nikto, B-Wing Pilot, Rancor, Keeper, Princess Leia, Combat, ATST Driver, Wicket, Tebow, and Pruneface. Now, this was the second wave of Jedi figures, which were released in 84. Um, I have considered a kind of run like this, the 41 back run, because I love the back of the card, but I've never gone, gone down that. But I asked Adam why he decided to do this run. And his response was, I completed my 12-back run about three years ago and just thought it would be great to get all 96 Kenner debut mint on cards. The 77-back run just seemed to happen, really. Before I knew it, I just needed the Emperor. Now, as we all know, Jedi cards are pretty easy to come by, aren't they? And, uh, but it did take him two years to track down the Emperor at a return of the Jedi price. Wow. Quite surprising, that, isn't it? Because people, you know, collectors just think because it's on a Jedi card that they're you know, until people go down and do these collecting journeys, you can find some really interesting information out like that. Mm. Now, I also didn't realise the 77 back cards only came on an A or a B card, because some of them, some of the backs have tons of letters, don't they? A was obviously the first one, and the, the only difference is that the B card has the Anakin off on the front and the sticker over the um, Rebo band part at the bottom of the back. He, 11 of them are on an A card. He has one. His prune face is on a 77B card, but he got the prune face in 2006, way before he decided to do the debut cards. Um, he did say his OCD may well force him to change that. I think it's a great one to start with, though, isn't it? 77, as you say there. People could start with say, right, well, I'll, I'll go for a 77. The Emperor one, yeah, that doesn't surprise me that he found that one difficult. When you consider the, the amount of Emperor, it's Emperors in Mailers, Ninum, and Akbars as well. You don't actually see many of those carded, do you? He he said the emperors when he when they came up were generally on the seventy nine back. Well, I think you got to think as well that the sixty five C had the emperor off it. So even though the emperor came out there, there were probably a lot more emperors coming out on the seventy nine back than the seventy seven because of the sixty five C offer. Mm. I don't know. I felt like I sounded like a mathematician then. Again, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I was looking at this and I was thinking. Do you add Low Grey and Chief Chirper to a 77 run, and why? Because they're blacked out. Yeah, because they didn't actually have their faces on the back of 65. That's never occurred to me, man. They still came out on the front of the 65 back, though, didn't they? Yeah, yeah but it's so sort of 77 back. But, Jez, they were printed. They've just blacked out. So, technically, they were on the... Just hiding. Yeah, well, no, they were printed. Say, say if you got on a plane, but you hid in a briefcase, you're still on the plane. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jez, you have failed. 
Yeah, Do you know what? You've had your 77th birthday and everything's just going all out. You he's know? older to be our dad. Oh, oh yeah. And he's, oh. he's just messing around now, being silly and cantankerous. And that goes for every last one against those Star Destroyers. You have to check out page 1879, the same page which had the 77 back run. Andy Go. he's put a post on which just absolutely blew my mind. He quite clearly loves Hoth. But just some of the things he's put on there, he's got QC signed samples, he's got various different proofs, he's got the poppies, he's got the palatoy stuff, but then it goes on to the very, very cool Empire Strikes Back props. He's got gloves, weapons, you name it, it's all there, all of this stuff from Prop Masters, and my eyes just completely popped out of my head. So I had to give this guy a call. Grant, you've seen this, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I have, yeah, it's... Uh, am I right in saying that he actually went out to Vince in Norway? Yeah, he, he went out there with some friends. They've got pictures on there. And I don't think they went out particularly well. They didn't They didn't go out particularly well prepared. And at one point, he thought he was going to die. The pictures are good, though, because, I mean, they've got... They've tried to find the exact places, haven't they? And then they would put, like, a little um, probot droid. <laughs> so it looks like it's in the distance. But obviously, it's just right next to them. I, the, yeah. the pictures are very funny. Yeah, I think the as well the the prop pieces. One of the things I like about prop masters, and you do pay the extra penny for it, is the amount of attention they put into the framing of props and storyboards and stuff like that. It, it, you are buying a quality piece, and I mean that frame because it's got that rifle in it. it must be huge. You have got the rifle, you got the handgun, you got the the goggles, the goggles. you've got the bit I mean, of storyboard, um, some sort of plate, probably like a. I don't know, is that a cast list or some kind of inventory list and a couple of lovely pictures? The weapon system in there is just, that's just looking the business. Yeah, it's it's just brilliant. Check it out. The photograph, which he's got at the bottom of the frame, he's also got a larger version, which is, it almost looks like something from a World War I trench scene. Uh, Yeah, I think that's one of the the most outstanding posts I've seen in the... Uh, latest acquisitions on Star Wars forum. Just mind-blowing. Yeah, you... it, look, it looks like something from a museum. Yeah. What page is it, uh, Jess? It's on page 1879. Yeah, I love it. I think that's incredible. Now, just bear with me, because I needed to find out more about this. So I've, uh, I've got some information from him. He said, it's all an interesting story, and the prop side of things comes from a variety of sources over the years, and he's been lucky enough to hang out with and work with some of the crew from the movies along the way, and to get on the film set or studio or two in his time. The Star Wars movies were always my main focus, and fortunately, I managed to turn up a lot of original props over the years, and also let a lot slip from my fingers. Yep, regrets, I've had a few. He said he almost had the opportunity, or he did have the opportunity, to get the original TIE pilot helmet, and he could have had it for £3,000, but declined as he fancied a new car. Oof. Wow. Wow. Oh, I, I would walk to work every day <laughs> as I fight the helmet. He said, the props I put up from the Hoth Rebel Soldier costume are from a variety of sources. The gloves came from a recent auction and were actually kept by a crew member after filming and stored in her car to use whenever she needed to change a tyre. And she still had them all these years later as she just swapped them from boot to boot of subsequent cars she bought. <laughs> so there you go. In an auction, people would pay you know, really, really good money for these gloves, and all she's been having them in is just in a the boot if she needed to change the tire. Brilliant. 
The pistol came from a stunt guy in Australia and was turned out by a good friend of mine who I subsequently managed to get it from in a trade deal. The rifle came from the nephew of one of the guys on production who had some great stories about visiting the Echo base sets. The goggles were from another crew guy. Paperwork was, was from a mixture of Brian Johnson, Robert Watts and the late, great Stuart Freeborn who he fortunately got to hang out with. He said Norway was absolutely amazing. He'll always remember hopping off the train in the middle of the night wearing jeans, trainers and lugging a suitcase, landing up to our knees in snow whilst everyone else hopped off the train in Arctic survival gear and skis and went off past us, looked at each other square in the face and just said, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap! Go on to page 1882. Kaza. It's put on a Gamester magazine. And this is what it's all about to me. It's all about the nostalgia. It's all about the memories. Uh, and Kaz is all about that. Well, uh, Kaz has been searching for this item from his childhood. Um, I believe his aunt actually bought it for him when he was a when he was a kid. The Games Magazine itself, well, it is what it says it is. It's just a Games Magazine. It retailed for 40 pence. He has a, a, a really strong nostalgic connection to it, but he, you know, obviously as he's become older and become a collector, he can actually think or remember what it was actually called. So he, he sort of went on Star Wars Forum UK and he described it back in uh, June 7th of last year. And then Jedi and underscore Mister came on and said, I think it's, you're probably describing this Gamester magazine, which it turns out it was. So he's been searching for this Gamester magazine. He said there's a couple of them have come up on eBay in poor condition for about £25 that he's passed on, but he's just picked up a bargain mint condition one for £10. Uh, it was made by Walton Press Sales Limited, but I also have information stating that it was published by Game Sheets Limited of London. Uh, it also contained two other games, uh, two other racist games called Nyout and Pancha Kelia. It's a 1977 book. I don't really know that much about it, to be honest with you. There's certainly not that much information about it, but I think it's just sort of one of those sort of games magazines, sort of like a maybe like a Snakes and Ladders kind of thing. It's all about the nostalgia and memories. It just remembers it as a kid. How fantastic is that that Jedi underscore Mister found it, gave him a good steer. Um, there is next to nothing online about it. I entered this Gamester magazine, and my computer turned around and said to me, "Do you mean Hamster magazine?" <laughs> and I thought, I better not click on that. The thing is, uh, is the name like, like the Gamester because of video games. I just got loads of Xbox stuff and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, no, no, I'm looking for a random magazine that happened in 1977. <laughs> so, yeah, congratulations, Kazumate. I'm, I'm delighted for you. There's another one on eBay right now for £12, or there was. And after this was highlighted to us, I was thinking, I might want to check out what this is. Uh, right, OK. Is that going to be on your your latest acquisitions next month? It might be, I. Cool. It's a trap! Right, page 1884. Pika G78, this is a first. Klaatu Skiff Mint on Card, possibly the first Klaatu Skiff Grail ever. Rich, why is this a Grail? Well, can you not remember those ones that were for sale for 300 quid a couple of years back? <laughs> no, seriously though, Jez, I mean, I looked at it, I thought it was 77 back, Klaatu, Jez, you're having a laugh here. 
but it's the history of the piece, isn't it? It's the fact it has a price sticker on it, which uh, Peter G has tied back to the same store that he bought his carded figures back in the day in Bradford. Um, so it was a Carter store, and it had a nice Carter's price sticker on it, and I think he's looking for others. So if anybody else has any uh, mint on cards with a Carter's price sticker on it, give Pikachu a shout, I'm sure he'll be interested. So nice one, nice to find that. Cool. It's a trap! So moving on to page 1889, I just want to give a quick shout out to Mr. Palatoy, because he's completed his German Empire Strikes Back car back run. He started collecting foreign car backs around 2007-2008 when the Palatoy card started to become harder to get. He started picking up a lot of German Empire Strikes Back cards pretty cheaply at that time. He said he'd been waiting about two to three years for a Lobot just a card back. Waiting two, three years for a Lobot to come up and it was his card back collecting friend Jonathan Gladwell who alerted him to a poorly listed eBay auction from Austria and it was the final one he needed. Do you guys know much about Empire Strikes Back cards? Uh, they're all 45 backs, I believe. Um, a lot of them were caught up in the... or well, three or four of them were caught up in the Toy Tony scandal. Yeah. Some of them pretty rare there, some of them not so rare. Yeah, I think it depends on... It depends on, like all things, it depends on the card back. I've seen some of the card backs go for relatively cheap around about the same price as a Paddy's toy uh, common card back, but then some of them, obviously, are a lot more expensive. What, what Jason tells me, and this is what I love about stuff like this and, and just spreading the information on the community he said that there are two types of german empire strikes back cards the first type says star wars action figures collector 45 on the back of the card above the figures the second type has this removed he said all of the cards in his run are of the second type bar two and this shows that the first card type was quite quickly phased out soon after it was initially produced so there we go. So the rarer of the Empire Strikes Back 45 German cards, say Star Wars action figures, collector 45 in English on the back. Do you, do we know if the ESP 45 uh, German ones were printed or not printed, but assembled in uh, the UK and shipped over to Germany? Hmm. Because they were know. they were caught up in that Toy Tony scandal. So I wonder if they were packaged here and shipped over. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he said Toy Tony had about 6,000 of these unused cards, which he made up into mint on cards. There's a 50-50 split on card types he had. He said, you can spot the first card type. And this is, this is again, from my point of view, uh, pretty cool. He said, you can spot the first card type from the front, even though the, the major difference is the text on the back. He said, you can spot it from the front. Do you know why? How? Um... Oof. Is it because it got, it's got the ages on the front? Nope. Cause it's all about like the punch. It, oh, is it? it? Yeah, he said the, uh, the first card type from the front, it's got the unique V-shaped punch it has. The second type has the standard rounded punch, which makes it look identical to Palatoy Ophelous Empire Strikes Back cards from a front-only picture. Yeah, they do look like the 45Bs, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, so it's only, only when you'll see it, but the original ones... The ones which have got the English text will have a unique V-shaped punch above it. So, awesome. Jason, you are the font of knowledge when it comes to card backs. So, uh, thanks very much for that. We have no choice, General Calrissian. Our cruisers can't repel firepower of that magnitude. Page 1894. Morgan King. New, uh, new fellow on Star Wars Forum UK. Two pound. Unpainted knee. Painted dart. 
Trilogo Fett. Pete, do we have a winner here or what? Jess, why do you always come to me when someone has got a ridiculous bargain? I mean, £2 is ridiculous. I mean, you can't even get a, a normal Fett for that. Um, but I, I was having a quick look at the prices of what a Trilogo Fett is going for. And Mr. Morgan King, I think you better sit down. Because this year alone, now, of quite clearly slightly better versions of them, as in you know, all the paint is in place. I know it's a few little scuffs, but still an utter bargain. But somebody in February paid £247 for one. £247 to £2. Just because of a bit of paint missing. The variations which you've got with the Tri logo. I mean, we, we talk about the, the painted knee, the unpainted knee, the painted dart, the unpainted dart, but there are so many other variations as well. You've got three different shades of, of belt. You've got the brown and the dark and the more glossy. And it, it's just fantastic. Just trying to look more and more at these Tri logos. And then there are the ones where people think that they're Tri logos, but not because the Tri logos don't have a COO. You know, they're, they're either scarred or in some cases double scarred. And whereas sometimes if they've got a COO and they look like it's probably just plastic degradation or fading. Well, that's what I think we're seeing these these prices sometimes. I mean, I've seen a couple on the forums um, over or on the Facebook groups in the last year where somebody has picked one up and said, oh, look, I've got this like a fiver. And someone goes, oh, my goodness, that's a Trilogo Fet or that's a, you know, an blah, blah, blah Fet. Because people just don't know enough about it. So you, you, you are going to get more opportunity in the loose areas for people to pick up these things, you know, because, you know, people are getting a bit smarter. But when it, when it comes to these tiny sort of variations, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't pick a bunch of Boba Fetts, you know, a year ago and would have known anything about them. I was going, oh, yeah, Boba Fett, yeah, it's worth about a tenner plus, something like that, depending on, on condition. But there's so many versions and people are prepared to really you know, lay the money out. I mean, some of the ones this year alone have gone for over £200. Just loose Boba Fats. Yeah. And in a variety, it is a crazy market. And fair play to uh, Morgan King for getting one for a two quid. Yeah, two quid car boot sale bargain. As I said, there's loads of information. I'm sure that people will want to know more and want to know why people are paying £100, £200. But it is these variations. You can get all of this information once again on Trilogo Info, you can get there's some great information on the Imperial Gunnery Forum. There's some really, really good information on Tantive 11 as well. They've got a smashing amount of stuff there on all the variations. Check your FET, as well yeah. as David. You don't know what you've got. Check your FET. Check your FET. It's a trap! Page 1894. Bonsai Tree Ent. Now, Pablo Guy's got a fantastic collection. Wow. Just wow. He has shown two six packs grant mate these six packs are unreal have you seen them before uh yes mate. these are quite a change for kenner um because usually we had the three packs previously that had sort of like the windows where you could see the figures these six packs they actually come in the boxes instead and you know the photography is much like the kind of photography you see on the back of the cards uh, the first the red background one came out in 1980 contains the rebel soldier c-3po R2-D2. I wonder, 1980, I guess these would be the solid limb ones then. I'm not sure about that. Han Hoff, uh, Darth Vader, and the Snowtrooper. And then the yellow-orange background, one that came out in 1981, which had Darth Vader, Snowtrooper, Attack Driver, Rebel Soldier, IG-88, and Yoda. 
Uh, one of the things um, I was trying to research on this, but I couldn't get any concrete information. I do believe that these figures inside came with ESB-C baggies, but I'm not 100% sure if they only come in ESB-C baggies, but apparently that that is the bag that, that they come in. But, you know, they're great pieces, and also they're also pretty rare as well and seem to command a huge price on the market. Lovely pieces, and it's just a shame that they didn't make more of these i think these were these are a lot better than sort of like the six and eight packs and three packs and four packs that came out in the return of the jedi era you're absolutely right you describe them to to a t which is difficult to do because as you say there isn't many resources online for them it does make you want to ask some more questions about them now i went onto jedi temple archives and and i had a look in and, and they only showed the one picture, which was the, the original release. You go to the SWCA, where we, we tend to go often, and they've only got the yellow one, the later one. So they, they don't even have an image of the original one. But the question which I've got here is, there are three repeated figures in both. So in both of them, they've got Vader, Imperial Stormtrooper, and Rebel Soldier. And then they've got three other individual ones. Obviously, as you say, the later one, Attack Driver, IG-88, and Yoda. It's weird. Why do you think they went with three of the same in two different packs? Totally don't, wouldn't know that one, mate. Uh, doesn't make much sense, does it? But a lot of these three packs, sometimes I think we're in the danger of reading too much into them. But it does seem strange to have the same figures in there. I guess they would have held back on the Yoda because of that was the big secret of the film, so maybe that's why he's in the 1981 pack. Yeah, not, there's no rhyme or reason, is there, really? It's a trap! So, page 1897. Ollie Suds, he's got some stellar items here. Great focus pieces. As we know, he's a he's an R5 collector. Rich, so what do you think of this, buddy? Yeah, I'm pleased that Ollie's managed to track this down because he's been bumping um, his want-to-buy threads on all the forums for what seems to be about two years now, looking for this 45 back and any leads, and he was desperate for it. So I'm really pleased that he's actually managed to get it and he's displaying it beautifully with all of his other items that he's got. He's definitely got the best 2D production, eh, sorry, 2D pre-production run for R5-D4 that, that I've seen. In fact, for any figure, this whole, I think there's not many figures that rival his collection at the moment. So, well done, Ollie. Brilliant. We've got to give those fighters more time. Concentrate all fire on that Superstar Destroyer. Went over to Tantive 11, page 13. Dr. Dengar. <laughs> It made me laugh. He's got this Playmobil R2-D2 knockoff set, really. I mean, I remember Playmobil as a kid, but I can't remember this space space series. Very much sort of copied, unlicensed Star Wars stuff. Am, am I completely wrong? What's going on here, Pete? Unlicensed Star Wars stuff? What? No, I mean, it was just a, a range of spacey toys from Playmobil. I mean, I've, I've still got my, I think it's called the Space Glider. Um, it's always called other things, but the brand was Playmo Space from Playmobil, and it was, it was just, it was, I think it was a, just try to remember, there was, there was like a space station, there was a bunch of little robots, there was two droids, there was an XY6, and a GE5P who looked very much like R2D2 but with arms, and uh, they became very much part of my Star Wars childhood because they looked very Star Warsy. Uh, people said they're obviously influenced by Star Wars, which is fine. But um, I mean, I mean, Playmobil never really—I mean, they've never had a license, a licensee. I mean, they, they were always 
I mean, I mean, I think they've been going for about 40, 45 years, I think, or something around that, that time. Um, and they've never sort of sought a license out. They've always been kind of like quite clean cut and kind of kept their own little brands. Um, and they're still going strong. I think they're mostly big in France and Germany and places like that. It's a really nice range. That, that space range is really, really cool as well. There's some really good imagination. There's, there is one robot, this blue thing with arms and legs and, and wheels on his legs. I mean, some really nice pieces. And it's uh, I can see why people do collect them sort of like as a, a knockoff R2-D2 kind of side focus. But it's uh, beautiful little toys. It's a trap! Staying on page 13, Tantive 11, Chick Tabber. He has got an amazing, toxic, green-limbed bosk. Now, I had never seen that before. I had never heard of it. And I love the follow-up information posted by the guys on there. Really, really knowledgeable. There's lots of stuff, lots of chat. Stu, you've seen this, uh, and what are your thoughts? I totally agree with you, Jess. I have never heard of this. When I when I got the show notes, I looked through and saw what you had um, designated me, and it, it just said on there, amazing toxic green-limbed bosk, and I was like, what the hell is that? And it's strangely, last week I drew up a variant checklist that I want to get for myself, and I thought, oh, perhaps, perhaps this is a bosk I've not seen. I might add it. But then I looked... At this eBay auction, which had started at a 99p, and about an hour ago, it had three hour, three days, three hours still left to go. This is a loose figure, and it's already up to £1,200. It won't be going on my list. Um, it, it's beautiful. I've never I've never even seen it. Now, the one advertised on eBay advertised it as pistachio as well, which I quite liked the, uh, that word. But these were generally, I think, according to the information under it, were released on POC ESB cards on both a 37 and a 41 back and released in 1981. And the telltale signs between this one and the General Kenner one is it has freakishly green limbs, the yellow is paler, the cross on his chest is smaller and thinner, and the figure has bigger pupils and darker red lips and eyes. Incredible. And on the Imperial Gunnery, there was a message back in 2012 that at the time there was only five or six known to exist in collections. So we're talking ultra, ultra rare here. I'm sure there's been more since, but I know you said you haven't seen one, Jez. What about the other three? Have they ever ever seen this before till recently? Grant, have you seen this in all your years of... Uh... There's that, but is that that Spanish book coming out? Yeah, Javi's book. That, yeah, there was a like an advert for it, I believe, today on Facebook, and it had the Toxic Green Limbs bosk on the front of that, so... I, th- I think what the biggest question is that I want to ask here is that, Rich, you have stated several times that you have all major variants and a complete loose collection. Do you have this, as this is without a doubt a major variant? Good point, Stu. I have never said I've got all major variants. I said I've oh, almost got all major variants. Oh. I've got the orange orange bosk and I've got the olive box. Um, the green one haven't really seen before i've heard whispers of it but it's the first time i saw it when i see it in jez's show notes um it is a nice figure but i don't know it does it is it that much different from the olive one it's yeah, green. Massively i think it's massively different <laughs> now oh, oh, the, the only words oh, amazing i'm awestruck and I've, i'm it's really nice to have seen something new with this podcast this month it's, it's just stunning thank you chick tabba yeah yeah check it out thank you to the lads on tantive 11 because there is some great information. There is some disinformation out there as well. There's a lot of people showing ones which have got uh, colour degradation on the limbs, and they, they are passing those off as toxic limbed, and, and they're quite clearly not. There are a few telltale signs as well. There's the very small, and I mean small, 
half circle area that should be painted green, but is not on the limb. It's, I believe it's on its left arm. Um, there's a few other tails, but the biggest tail is a degradation on the limbs. Look through eBay at Vintage Bosk and note that every single one that has uh, degraded limbs will have a green tint to the arm paint. The limbs go lighter and make it look greener, but it's not the same as the toxic. I, I love these Bosk variants. Have you, have you seen the big lipsticked one as well? So you've got the, uh, as well as the Polk, you've got the PBB big lipsticked one. Um, this is why we so need that uh, POC PBB uh, podcast and we need someone to come on it and, and give us a talk. I'm really looking forward to this book coming out. I sincerely hope it's going to be there for celebration and that'd be great. But guys, check it out. Page 13, Chick Tabber's amazing toxic green limbed bosk. And I wonder, I wonder what it's going to go for on eBay. We'll see. It's a trap. It's a trap. Moving on to page 14. Our, our, our friend Christian C, he's, he's put up a triple Luke acquisition. So not only has he got a DT Luke jammer, he's got a Luke prototype coin and a Luke Bespin transparency. Obviously, only a real loser would not have a DT Luke or even really want one. So <laughs> I'm really pleased that Christian took a, a nice shot of a manly looking DT Luke that every serious collector would want to collect. Um, yeah. And it's a really nice one as well, so so well done, Christian. Now, the Luke X-Wing coin we've talked about before, probably in Sean Kemper's interview, we talked about this coin, didn't it? Was it the very first prototype coin that was made? And it was three quarters of the size of the other coin? Is that about, does that ring a bell? Yeah, that's absolutely it. They, yeah. they looked into it. They one of about the... 400 or so. Do you have one of those coins yet, Jez? I've got two. You've got two of them, so you've got two of the 400? Yeah. Do you not feel greedy? No, a little bit, actually. Trade one for a DT, Luke. I'm gonna I'm gonna put one together as a trade. I do have so if anyone if anyone wants one or needs one, yeah, I do have uh, I do have a three quarter inch Luke prototype coin, which I could quite easily put in for trade. Yeah, but and he, the third item that he had in there was a transparency, and uh, it's pleasing to say that it's co- it's a confirmed Kim Simmons shot of um, Luke Bespin, and it looks in fabulous condition because some of these transparencies that we're starting to see now are starting to look a bit you know a bit faded, perhaps a little bit warped. But this one looks in quite condi- condition, so well done, Christian. A fantastic uh, post by you. So there we go. Tentative 11. They're, these guys, as I said, they're only up to page 14 from their latest acquisitions, their new acquisitions. But it is really, really jam-packed for some quality stuff. So for those of you who haven't done it, get yourself over to Tentative 11. You won't regret it. It's a trap! Then I went on to the Imperial Gunnery Forum, page 23. R2 underscore Detour, Tin Tin Comic. So he's been after this 1982 special Star Wars issue of Tin Tin for a while. It's packed with features, competitions, toy picks, and a cool poster. He managed to get a really minty and complete Belgium copy. But best of all, and he didn't know this until he got it, it came with a note inside due to a language misprint error. The article should have all been in French, but they printed one column in Dutch. He said, and the note survived with the magazine since 1982. How, how crazy is that? Yeah, um, it's very, very difficult comic to track down. But on top of that, to still have the apology note is uh, is really cracking. But I want to draw your attention to the poster, Jez. Um, you know the poster, I mean? Yep. Yep, so the poster on the middle pages was actually a shot of a snowspeeder flying above an at um, and you could see 
explosions there. And I thought, you know, that's a really fantastic piece of artwork. And they'd ruined it by sticking a picture at Darth Vader, which is a screen captured shot, where pretty much right bang in the middle of that poster. And I thought, it's such a shame they've done that. It's a Ralph Macquarie painting, and it's also featured on the front of um, the book Art of Star Wars Episode 5. And if you have a look at the book and you have a look at Ralph Macquarie's original painting, you see what they've done is they've flipped the painting, and the, so they've reversed it. It's now left to right instead of right to left in the mm. comic, and they've flipped his signature, so it actually says Macquarie, but it's reversed on the poster. How brilliant oh, is that? Great spot, mate. Great spot. I'm looking at it now. What's really weird on that is... Ah... Do you know what? Did you just say that that snowspeeder is flying above the attack? It's not. It's flying below the attack. You yes. can see on that poster mm-hmm. that the snowspeeder has got its tow cable, and the tow cable comes all the way along, and the tow cable goes in front of the attack, and it just looks like it's above it because it's smaller, and it's all about it's just all about the the illusion of it being so small, and it looks like it's further away, but actually that was the snowspeeder flying in front. And below the attack. There you go. Well, what it goes to show is how fantastic Ralph's um, paintings are. Take a base of action. Green group, step across the holding sector and each other. Admiral, we have enemy ships in sector 47. Page 25. Just want to give a quick shout out to Teak Solo. He had an emperor with two right legs. We've seen this before with, with errors and this and the other. I just thought it was really cool. An emperor with two right legs. And then someone further down comments that they've got a sealed mailer with two left legs. And maybe they should get together. I thought that was pretty cool. Check it out. Page 25. An emperor with two right legs. You rebel scum. Page 175 of rebel scum. I thought, hmm, you don't see those that often. It was two cardboard backdrops from the 1979 three-packs. Now, this was by forum username BKCHI. Now, Stu, you were checking out these backdrops and you interviewed our triple pack collector way back at the beginning of the podcast, didn't you? Episode three, yes, Chris Caswell joined us and he went into quite a bit of depth on three packs, pre-production, and he did discuss these exact backdrops. The backdrops are only available in four of the sets. It was the second series of the Star Wars ones. And I'm just gonna, right, I, have, I haven't actually looked this up, so you're going to have to bear with me. I think yep. the four backdrops, I think the creature one had a, an image from the cantina. The droid set had an image of Luke with R5 and R2. The villain set had the pictures of the Tuscans behind the rock. Now the hero set, perhaps one of you can help me out with this. Was this the hangar where the Falcon is? Han Solo, Princess Leia and Luke walking back after Luke's just landed after the Death Stars exploded. Oh, that's the one for the hero set. Yeah, and they, they all do look like complete heroes. So, uh, yeah, that's great. And you can just imagine how cool that would be from an army building point of view. I would imagine these are pretty tough to come by loose. Um, I remember Matt Fox actually recently, the bonsai tree, saying that he had also got a couple loose. Um, I think they look amazing with figures displayed in front, but actually tracking down all four would be a be a pretty big, big ask. It's a trap! So that was it for the forums. Went over to Facebook, and my word, there's just so much, isn't there? There's too much. We, we can't we can't quite mention it all, but one thing I absolutely must, Empire Strikes Back group, Paul Macklin had his FET on the Death Star Droid miscard. That, that is a miscard and a half, isn't it? Absolutely fantastic. 41A back, Boba Fett on a DSD miscard. For the, uh, for the FET collectors out there, it must be pretty difficult, because there was a... 
at the same time, there was a Jawa on a Boba Fett card that also popped up as well. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, being a Fett collector is tough enough as it is, <clears throat> let alone with these miscards. Paul, congratulations, mate. It's utterly brilliant. It's a trap! Then I moved on to the International Vintage Star Wars Collectors Group. And our friend Todd, Todd Osborne, had a Burger King Empire Strikes Back promotion. Lads, what are your thoughts on this? Well, Pete, you were quite interested in this, weren't you? Well, yeah, when I saw it, I bought one. <laughs> it just, it, it, it highly amused me. Because, I mean, one, it's just a cool-looking, um, well, to describe it, it's a scratch card. It's a trade, or it, it's a card where you scratch a little things off and you will win a prize whatever you do. The first, most people will win uh, a little trading card, but you could win a flying saucer, which I'm assuming was a frisbee, or a handheld electronic game. And on the back of the card, it actually tells you how many there are. So out of the, out of the, the odds, it gives you odds of how many of the items there were. So in 3,000, there'd be 2,931 cards. So you're pretty much going to win a card. There were 67 flying saucers per 3,000 and two handheld electronic games. And uh, it even gives you the, the value of these things as well, which is highly amusing as well. But um, have you ever seen one of the handheld electronic games? Um, no, I haven't. I've got the, the Frisbee. Uh, they're pretty easy to come across, and the cards are pretty easy to come across. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, intrigued by... I, I mean, I was Googling them. I couldn't find anything. I also, um, I also really like the, uh, the design on the X-Wing there. They've yeah. made a couple of liberties there, and <laughs> made it a bit basic. I mean, it's like a, almost like a paper airplane version. I love the Empire Strikes Back uh, US Burger King stuff. I think that's one of the greatest Star Wars promotions across the board. Whether it's There's the... loads of it, isn't there? There's loads and loads of pieces and cups and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, but it's all really well designed as well. I really like the uh, uniqueness of all the pieces in it. I think that I wouldn't mind doing a focus just on that. And you know, one of these things as well is these scratch cards. Even though they don't really hold any value, they're pretty rare because obviously people would have used them to get the. The, the cards and the frisbee and whatever so they don't pop up as often as you'd think well exactly because i mean i mean as soon as i, I saw todd had got one i went online and found that our other other todd friend todd chamberlain had a had a couple so i bought one and it wasn't that much either they didn't charge that much but I mean, obviously it's a used one but yeah i mean assume that most of these were just given back because people claim their prizes because you won with every as it says burger king everybody wins game what a what a great idea as well for a competition. Everyone wins. You know, that's brilliant. I mean, I would be spending all my time in Burger King in 1980. But also, what, another thing on the back of the card amused me was you couldn't win unless you were under 12. You oh, weren't really? allowed to hand in. And you had to be 12. You had to be under 12. Those so cards are pretty dangerous. They do come in strips, <laughs> mind. But isn't, it, but isn't it funny that you've got like a sweepstake game, which, you know, which, which uh, really kind of reverts to gambling and stuff, but you must be 12 or under to play. <laughs> 12 over. No, 12 or under to play. You must be 12 or under to play, or what it states on the back. I think it's pretty. And you didn't have to. Um, it's one of these no purchase necessary. You could actually just write off and they'd send you some cards and put you into a draw. So you didn't actually have to, to go into Burger King and buy anything. You could just write off to the, the address. But I love that sort of thing. It's just a lovely little bit of um, nostalgia. Great piece. It's a trap! Went to Troy Logo Info, Joe's group. Ludovic Bardesh. Now we've mentioned him before because he was going for his Trilogo run, and he's been saying that he's been looking out for the elusive CCP hybrid. CCP, no wrapping. <laughs> and he's finally got it. He said it'll be a day long remembered. 
He's had his on-off quest over a span of the last 22 years, trying to put together a Trilogo run, and it's finally come to an end. At one point, he'd almost completed a run, minus the IG-88, Jawa and Maydeen, but had to get let them go during a divorce a few years back. He started down the Trilogo path again a year ago, almost to the day, and the circle is now complete with the addition of the elusive hybrid CCP. He said it was awesome, really special to do it alongside with his son. Trilogos were the figures he would buy and get at the store as a kid, so they'll always been his personal vintage favourite, and he truly adores anything Trilogo. He was so happy, and it's just fantastic to see him get this. Guys, completing a Trilogo run. Is that going to be one of the hardest things out there? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, did you see he completed it in a year? Yeah, a year ago, most of the day, and the circus now complete. So I wonder, he can't have got them all in a year. It sounds like it's, it sounds like you're seeing that, doesn't it? But yeah, I agree, yes. it's very unlikely. Perhaps he's let the high-end ones go, and he's kept the common ones, and then he's just yeah. went back finding the high-end ones in the last year. But regardless, <laughs> anyway, a very, very tricky Wouldn't... set to put together. So, you know, the really hard ones, like the Maedeen, the Jawa, the Emperor's Royal Guard, very tricky to get. The rest are easy. It's a trap! So guys, that was it. I've whittled it down so much. But even over the last couple of days, there's been more and more things. More things on Stormtrooper Central getting pushed out. More things on the 12-back group getting pushed out. There are so many things all the time. We're just never going to keep up with it. If there is something which you think, oh yeah, that's definitely worthy of letting um, the podcast know, just just tell us. Please let us know. Keep, keep us in the loop. But that's it from me. What about you guys? Yeah, um, thanks to Dave Moore, who posted on our Facebook page to uh, say, guys, could you talk about the YPS or the Eeps Stormtrooper? And I think we have covered it a long time ago, but I was a bit intrigued by his post. Now, <laughs> he sent a link to an auction for an Eeps Stormtrooper with comic and gun, and it was graded, I think it was in 85. Uh, guys, how much did it go for? Uh, £1,300. You were close, one and a half thousand dollars, and my jaw just hit the floor. One and a half thousand dollars, and I know we shouldn't be referring to loose stormtroopers before somebody sends us an angry email saying that loose stormtroopers can't be referred to as Eeps, the the tri logo, and I understand that. And I thought, right, this has got to be wrong. There's no way that this could have been worth one and a half thousand dollars. So I went on to eBay and I got some facts for you. Now, a one that was the figure and weapon alone, okay, UKG85, went for 500 euros. Another one went for 330 euros. Another one went for 425 euros. And I saw a weapon alone go for 87 pounds. I was just absolutely gobsmacked at all that. So I did what people accuse me of being um, a bit cheap at times. I looked for the cheapest items I could find to put together a loose set of these to see what it would come to. Now, bear in mind, you could get a graded one for one and a half thousand dollars. How much do you think I could get a loose one, a comic, a weapon, and the figure together? Two seventy. Two seventy. Three hundred. Two hundred and eighty. Uh, one sixty. Right. If I said that at the cheap end of the scale, you could get it for forty-seven pounds. And at the top end of the scale, you could get it for £62. Does it make this one and a half thousand just absolutely ridiculous? Because what I've... <laughs> I, I was just gobsmacked, right? I found a comic on eBay, 
that was going for £20, loose, in pretty good condition. The cheapest, good quality figure I could find, yeah, and yes, people are going to scream as try logo, I get that, right? I found one for £12. I bought the weapon myself in December for £15, but Walkie was selling one on um, Facebook a couple of weeks ago for, I want to say, £30, £35, somewhere around about there. So you could put that you could put that set together at the top end price of sixty two pound, and yet somebody's paid one and a half thousand dollars for a graded one. It's absolutely bonkers, and it makes no sense to me whatsoever. So it just goes to show, look about. It's a trap. Another another brilliant month. There is so much to go through. We've just seen some cracking deals. Um, two pound Troy Lego Fett, the rare one. Uh, we've seen some nostalgia stuff coming back, and we've seen the end of some fantastic collections and some really, really great achievements. And who knows what that toxic limbed Bosk is going to go for. There's only one way to find out. Well, actually, there's loads of ways to find out. It's all over the internet. Never mind. We'll see you next month. Move the fleet away from the Death Star.
Okay, welcome to this month's oddball section. This month I'd like to welcome Peter Harmy from Star Wars The Specialized. Last month we were looking at the original trilogy on all its various video formats, and today we're going to discuss uh, something that is unique, something that is wonderful, something that I think vintage Star Wars collectors would really appreciate, and that is Star Wars The Specialized. This is what all the vintage fans have been wanting to see out there, and that is a high-definition version of the original Star Wars that we saw when we were kids. The essential ingredient to why we collect today. Peter, welcome to the Vintage Rebellion podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Normally, Peter, I'd ask, what was your inspiration to start this project? But I think the inspiration is pretty obvious. So yeah. um, what I'd like to ask is, is what, what is your role in Star Wars The Specialized? Uh, well, um, I put it all together, really. Uh, like there, A lot of the sources that I use are uh, projects that other people made. But, well, actually, like, just to uh, briefly explain what the Specialized is, yeah, uh, it's, it's all in the name, really. When you have the Special Edition, so I, and I, uh, that's the highest quality uh, that you can get Star Wars in, but unfortunately, it's the Special Edition, so it has all the CGI and stuff. So I took the Special Edition and de-specialized it, so I removed all the extra scenes and uh, CGI and all, all, the, all the changes, uh, and to do this, I use uh, as as sources several different fan projects as well. Uh, well, several different fan projects as well as uh, the official uh, DVD, which, however, is uh, very bad quality. The only official digital version of the original Star Wars is this DVD that came out in 2006, and it came out along with the special edition DVDs, and they and they just used this poor, very old transfer that was done in 1993 for Laserdisc. So the quality compared to the special edition version is very, very poor, but it's still the highest quality I could get. So I used this to remove the changes from the special edition. Sometimes I had to use uh, whole shots, like when they completely replace the shot with CGI, like for example in the uh, in the Yavin battle at the end. But a lot of times, I would just sort of, in lay terms, I would just paint out some of the changes. Like for example, when they added, uh, you know, a CGI dinosaur in the background, I would just use that area from the from the low quality DVD and and put that area there to cover up the dinosaur but everything else would still remain hd and i i did i did a lot of that it's called uh, this technique is called rotoscoping because you have to follow the uh, follow the movement of whatever object you're removing uh, with a mask which is uh, in in special effects this is called rotoscoping so i used this technique to actually remove some of the changes and some of my other sources were uh, like for example 16 millimeter transfers done by fans and in the later versions i actually had access to some 35 millimeter scans so i i actually could use some real hd footage from the original but it's still when you know a little bit about film and how it works like the print that you see in the cinema is already like four generations removed from the original negative that was in the camera when they were shooting so the quality and this and the negative is what they used to uh, make the official special edition Blu-ray. So these prints that were scanned are still uh, are very grainy compared to the to the Blu-ray, and there's a lot of dirt on them, and the de detail level isn't quite as high. So I still had to do a lot of 
a lot of you know work to bring it up to uh, to the same quality as the surrounding footage. Fantastic. Just before we go into sort of like the details of you know constructing um, Star Wars Despecialized, for the first thing I'd like to do is sort of get an understanding of what's your connection to Star Wars. What's what's sort of like your relationship with the movies? Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, I've been a fan since. Since uh, I can remember, really, like uh, I, I think I saw Star Wars when I was first when I was like five years old, and I, I can I can vividly remember watching the trench run on TV when I was like five, uh, and then we would you know play Star Wars with my friends, and then when the actually when the special editions came out, that was the first time I saw Star Wars properly. But I didn't, I unfortunately didn't get to see them in the cinema because the first the first nineties. 1997 special editions were still quite okay and especially because no one at the time thought they were supposed to replace the original versions so they were kind of an interesting gimmick really and it would have been cool to 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 have been able to see the the star wars films in the cinema uh, so i unfortunately missed that chance but around that time it uh, but you know that later that year uh, it came out on vhs and i could I actually rented it from a video rental place, and uh, uh, and because because some of my friends saw Star Wars in the cinema uh, when the special editions came out, it, it became very popular with you know in my friend group. So I, I was uh, even before the special editions came out on VHS, I uh, I managed to get the uh, first movie on VHS copied from like a copy of a copy right. uh, from from a friend. Uh, so I did see, uh, I did watch the original version of the first film quite a lot before I got to see the special editions. Uh, but the Empire and Jedi, I actually saw the special editions first. And I don't know if you remember, but those 97 uh, special edition uh, video cassettes had like a little documentary about the making of the special edition at the start. And that already then it fascinated me how, you know, the, the differences between the two versions, and I really wanted to see the original versions. So ever since then, I was on the on a hunt to, <laughs> to find the original versions, then on VHS, of course, uh, which I succeeded in uh, a couple of years later, I think. But then, of course, the, uh, like, DVD came along, and again, they, and they only released the, uh, uh, the special editions on DVD. Uh, at the time of VHS, it didn't really matter because the special editions and the original versions had the same quality home video release. Yeah, but at yeah. the point, uh, at the point they released it on DVD, uh, you could see the special edition in much higher quality than the original. Uh, so ever since then, I was again on the hunt to find the best quality version possible of the original and. Uh, I heard about this Laserdisc thing, which it, it never, like in my country, I'm from the Czech Republic, uh, and it was never really big here. I don't, I don't think anyone's ever heard of Laserdisc here who isn't interested in, you know, deeply interested in uh, home video formats and whatnot. So I, I've read uh, somewhere on the internet that Star Wars actually came out on Laserdisc. Uh, and at the time, I thought Laserdisc was like uh, an older version of dvd i didn't even i didn't actually know that laserdisc was like you know big like an lp and uh it was actually an analog format so i thought someone would just you know put it in their pc drive and then rip it so i started i started looking on uh, on, 
online and I, I found this community called originaltrilogy.com or well this website which uh, at first was about uh, a petition to release the original versions but because because so many people uh, who were looking for the original version came there soon you know these pen preservations started popping up there so people would actually do transfers of the laser discs. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would, it would be. They had to, you know, use laser disc players and uh, digitize them and stuff. But it meant already then you could actually download a passable version. If the laser disc was was worse than DVD, but much better than VHS. So these laser disc transfers were near DVD quality at the time. And then of course in 2006 they would they released the the official DVDs, which were actually just laserdisc transfers. Uh, so so uh, my theory is that they saw this popularity of all those laserdisc transfers on the internet, and they thought like, well, we could capitalize on that. Let's just release our own laserdisc transfer. Sure. And of course, because they had the masters for the laserdisc, theirs was a little bit better than what the fans were able to do. So that and that was the last time uh, the original version was ever released. Uh, then, of course, we got you know then around like 2008, I think HDTV channels uh, started broadcasting the uh, the special edition versions in HD, and so that was the first time we could see Star Wars in high definition. And for me, I think it was the first movie I ever saw in high definition. And and when I saw that, I could never go back to those. <laughs> To those yeah. awful laserdisc transfer DVDs. So, right then, I started looking for uh, an HD version. You know, the hunt continued, and there was this guy uh, called Eighty One. I don't know if you've heard of. Yeah, him. Star yeah. Wars Revisited. Yeah, exactly. So he made the Star Wars Revisited, which, uh, without going into much detail, is like a super special edition made yeah. by a fan. It's like it, he actually improved um, all of the effects and stuff. But what he also did a little bit later in uh, I, I re this was in 2010 I remember because it was it was the 30th anniversary of the Empire Strikes Back release so for for the 30th anniversary of the Empire Strikes Back he created this uh, what was basically a despecialized edition DVD uh, he took he took the uh, HD version and he would he did exactly what I would later do for the, the specialized edition using the uh, the official DVD replaced some of the uh, some of the special edition changes and stuff and uh, effectively recreated the original version. But he refused to do it in HD because he said the the DVD was too low quality to use in an HD version. And and when I when I kept you know badgering him about it, but I got uh, uh, the answer I got was if you if if you think it's so easy, why don't you do it yourself? Um, so I went, so I did, really. I started off small. I just took his uh, despecialized thing and just upscaled it and then replaced the, the scenes that weren't changed with uh, the HD versions. And I only, I only replaced like the worst changes. So I kept, I kept some of the changes uh, in, and I called this the partly despecialized edition. So that was my that was my first attempt. Then uh, people liked it, so I did it the same for uh, 
Oh, and uh, I shared it with just a few people on the uh, on the originaltrilogy.com forum. Uh, it wasn't big by any any means, um, and uh, and so I did it for the other two movies as well using the uh, 2006 DVDs. And then and then I uh, and as I uh, was doing this, I was learning more and more. I actually have no background in video editing or special effects or anything. I actually at the time uh, I was at uni studying to be uh, uh, an English teacher, so I, I I was just learning baby steps. You know, I uh, I started by just uh, using like a cutting ca- uh, cutting program to just replace the scenes, and uh, then I started because I I did play around with Photoshop, uh, even in high school, but just, you know, like doing funny montages and stuff like that. So I had, I had some experience with like still image, uh, editing. Uh, so I, I tried using After Effects, which is effectively Photoshop for video. And, and I, uh, I started slowly learning more and more with After Effects. So by, uh, by the time I finished the trilogy of the partly despecialized edition, I've learned so much that I knew that I could go back and do a lot better. Right. Uh, right. So I, I went back to the original Star Wars, and I, uh, as I, uh, as I progressed I, I figured that actually I could remove all of the visible changes I had the skill to remove all of them so I, I decided to uh, just call it the despecialized edition and did this for the whole trilogy and at this point I'm on version 2.5 when did you actually start the project yeah in in 2010 yeah that was uh that was the time 81 released his uh, DVD of uh, restoration and uh i i started working on mine uh, that was the partly despecialized editions and then probably in like 2011 i started working on the despecialized editions when you initially started out in this you were you would have been using the, the 2006 dvd release of star wars from the 1993 laser transition yes i i used that to uh remove the changes from the hd uh, special edition which, uh, which at the time the, there was no Blu-ray, so they they were uh, HDTV recordings. Okay, yeah, and people who actually started editing using the 2006 original uh, trilogy DVD, uh, they referred to that as the Gout. Gout, yeah, Gout it's, version. It that stands was... for George's original unaltered trilogy. And has, have there been many attempts of sort of despecializing using the the Gout DVD? Oh. Not really. Like I, there was eighty ones, uh, and there, then there were other projects. Like there were projects which uh, I also used. Like the, this guy who is known on the original trilogy uh, com forum as Dark Jedi. He took a different approach and tried uh, tried processing the DVDs to improve the quality and upscale them to HD. Okay. Uh, and I actually used some of his efforts where I needed to replace uh, entire shots and stuff. It was much better to use his uh, because they were already upscaled and sharpened and improved. Yeah, I, I used I used a lot of different sources, not just not just the, the DVD, but also other people's projects. So uh, Dark Jedi's uh, upscales, uh, Pago's uh, 16 millimeter transfer. Uh, I used, uh, you know, later I would also use the 35 millimeter transfers, but that didn't happen for quite a few years. Right. Uh, at first, there was only there were only uh, DVD quality resources. So in in 2011, when they released the Blu-ray, did the Blu-ray re- uh, replace the DVD yes. as the template for the Despecialized Edition? Uh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, that was uh, that was for version 2.0, 
that actually it was the the the, uh, the Blu-ray was actually the exact same transfer as the DVD and the HDTV versions. So it wasn't like a vast improvement, but it was still an improvement in quality. Especially like the uh, the special editions uh, or the digital versions of the special editions. So the DVD and the Blu-ray, they're not very good transfers. They they suffer from a lot of like bad coloring and crushed yeah. blacks. Yeah. Can't see detail in the shadows and stuff. And because the Blu-ray has higher bitrate, I was able to like cor- correct the colors better. Uh, get some detail out of the shadows, uh, stuff like that. So it was definitely a better source. Uh, so yeah, I, I used the when the Blu-ray came out, I used the Blu-ray. Uh, uh, I still uh, stuck to 720p, right. not full HD, because uh, a I was working on quite an old laptop at the time, it, which just the idea amazes me now. Like I, I would probably die having to do that now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, and so it was very slow, and it it couldn't it uh, it couldn't have dealt with full HD. Uh, the other reason, of course, was that uh, some of the sources I was using were fairly low quality, so upscaling them to full HD would make that even more obvious. Yeah, so I uh, I kept it 720p. I'm planning uh, a 1080p update in time because now we have those 35 millimeter scans. Uh, and uh, at the time I was doing, I was doing version 2.0. We only have a f- had a few scenes scanned from a 35 millimeter print, but now we actually have uh, the full film. So, so I should be able to uh, to use that and do do everything at 1080p. Um, what, one of the things, if we could just have a you know a brief discussion into some of the technical issues, because I think what will surprise the listeners is the extreme levels of detail. That maybe people take for granted when watching the Blu-ray, then you notice is different in uh, Star Wars Despecialized. For example, everyone knows about the dinosaurs walking in the background, but there are several changes, uh, technical yeah. changes that have been made to the film, which have diminished the quality. Um, mm. So, you know, when you come, come across things like color radiation, for example, if you have Darth Vader with a light behind him, sometimes that light can actually blur in front of Darth Vader and it takes away sort of like the um, the quality of the image. How do you sort of stop things like color radiation? Uh, well, the uh, the true answer is you don't. Like there's there's really no uh, like there are some things that uh, just can't be fixed, which is why it would be great if they actually made a, a fresh new transfer. You know, this transfer was done in 2004, which is now more than 10 years ago. Right. Uh, so it it uh, it would be great even if they uh, if they release just a special edition, even that would deserve a new better transfer. Uh, and there are some things like what you uh, what you mentioned that really can't be fixed. Then there are some things that can be sort of fixed, like like I mentioned the crushed blacks. Yeah. Uh, so you can sort of bring out some detail uh, in there, but because because it's again it's an old transfer and it's already like recompressed for Blu-ray. Uh, it's not uh, you. You can't really do with it what you could with like a proper 4K new transfer. Um, yeah, I noticed um, when you talk about the crushed blacks. I think it, you know, it might be an idea to give an example. And on your YouTube video, you show the difference by bringing the contrast up inside the sand crawler. Yeah, R2D2 and C3PO are captured by the Jawas. You can the Blu-ray. It's really dark, but you can really bring out a lot more detail just by 
lifting that that contrast. Yeah, that's that's basically what I did to the whole movie. And the the thing is, uh, like the the color correction is a whole big debate uh, in the fan restoration community. Right. There's no like 100% accurate source that could tell us what the proper colors are supposed to be. At one point, we thought we had such a source, uh, which was the uh, Technicolor print that came from Britain. Uh, at the, in 1977, Technicolor was already dead in America, but there was, there was a, a one last uh, Technicolor lab in Britain. So Britain got us a, a few Technicolor prints of Star Wars. Uh, and Technicolor doesn't fade, unlike... Uh, normal Eastman prints from the 70s. They just fade to red, and at this point, they're basically, they're like black and white with a red filter on them. Right. That's, that's what they look like. So so, so we, we uh, got a scan of one of those prints. It, it was like a fairly low quality scan of just like a one frame from each shot. So it wasn't usable for the actual restoration, but it was usable as a color reference. The problem is that apparently, A, the Technicolor prints had their own uh, color biases. So they're kind of greenish, which we, at the time, we didn't know this. So we thought this is what the film looked like. But it uh, it turns out that maybe it, maybe it wasn't. Uh, so I think for like the the current uh, way of thinking is like make it you know look like the Technicolor print, but without the the color biases. So like right. make it neutral. The Blu-ray actually has like a lot of color biases. It's like some scenes are completely blue, some are like magenta. So yeah, um, it definitely needs color correction. But uh, the so the the current color correction of the Specialized, uh, I think, is way better than the Blu-ray, but it still leaves something to be desired. I think as well, it's worth pointing out to people uh, who might not be able to notice how drastically different the color correction is on the Blu-rays. You know, if you look at Hoth on yeah. on Empire Strikes Back in the Blu-rays, it's like this bluey color, and in the original release, it's, it's white snow, it's Norway. Oh, well, actually... Uh, it, it is bluish, like, from all evidence points to it actually having been bluish uh, in the original prints as well, but it's not as blue as it is on the Blu-ray, and the Blu-ray actually makes it, like, cyan rather than blue. It's like yeah. this neon blue kind of thing on the Blu-ray. So, yeah, like, when you when you look at the, the specialized edition of The Empire Strikes Back, the snow is kind of bluish in most shots because uh like when you photograph snow normally it does have this blue tinge especially when it's dark so the darker scenes that's that's how you make something look like night right that's quite that's quite common so it's supposed to be a little blue but not as like neon blue as the blu-ray makes it so, so when you're doing the sort of color correction for a scene where multiple uh, color correction changes have to happen for example if you had luke holding a lightsaber and also you wanted to color correct his face how, yeah. how would you do that? Would you do that by doing the lightsaber first, rendering that, and then going back and doing the face? Or do you do rotoscope these? Uh... Most of the time, uh, uh, the color correction was done by just, you know, doing something to the, the whole image. Most of the time, it's possible to undo this. So, and it's sometimes it's actually surprising. It seems like all the colors are, are all over the place. But then you, like, adjust them, and all these colors... Like, it's... Uh, I, I had this shot from inside uh, the Echo Base on, uh, in Empire, and it seemed like everything was basically just shades of blue. 
and when you start removing the blue, like all these colors suddenly start coming out by just removing that blue blue tint that's all over the whole thing. Wow. Uh, and it's, most of the time it's like that. There are, there are cases where I had to do some rotoscoping to get the colors right, but most of the time it's uh, adjusting the whole image. Yeah, I think um, the, the one, one thing that really sticks out to me is the the level of rotoscoping that's gone into the project. Um, yes. I think you know, it's a good idea. Yeah, for, for example, you actually mentioned the, you mentioned the lightsabers. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the lightsaber shots were redone in the special edition. Uh, and not only were they redone, they were redone badly. Like, a lot of the lightsabers look worse in the special editions than they did in the original. Uh, so I actually, I actually rotoscoped in the lightsabers from the Gout DVD. For like, I think every shot in the original Star Wars uh, and some shots in Empire, because I I think in Empire they didn't uh, replace the lightsabers in the special editions, but they screwed up the the colors of the yeah. lightsaber duel so much that you just couldn't uh, just do it by color correction. So sometimes I had to I had to actually replace the lightsabers there as well, and the same goes for Return of the Jedi. I think. Uh... The, using the lightsaber as an example is probably the best example if people don't quite understand what rotoscoping is. It's sort of like an animation of taking 24 frames yeah. a second, you're using PAL and drawing the lightsaber on every yeah. frame and then putting all the frames together and there you have yeah. an animation that has been rotoscoped, rotoscoped onto. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, you, you basically, you sort of frame by frame, you cut out, I, I cut out the lightsaber from the Gout DVD and placed it over the... Uh, HD special editions, yeah. So yeah, for for each frame, so yeah, that's 24 frames per second. So it was thousands of frames probably in the end. You also uh, rotoscoped sort of ways of constructing environments for some of the establishing shots or some of the environmental shots, where you've actually taken multiple images from multiple yeah. sources in which to construct a scene. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I call this a custom mat. Uh, it's basically uh, like for example, uh, uh, there were there were some shots where they changed the background, but but they didn't change it completely. So I would use the parts that weren't changed, and I, I would I would sort of reconstruct the whole background. Uh, and then again, using rotoscoping, I would put this still still image that I created as the or recreated the original background as a still image, and then I would have to put the actors or ships or whatever was in the shot in front of this background, again, by rotoscoping frame by frame. Yeah, I think that, that seems to be such an incredible amount of work, especially when you're looking at the Vontos in Moss Eisley. There's so much in the foreground, so much in the background that has to be taken into consideration. That must have been an enormous task to despecialize those scenes. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, like for the later versions, I had the uh, I had the 35 millimeter uh, scans for this. So I, I uh, for most of those shots, I didn't have to use uh, a static background, but I still had to do the rotoscoping because the 35 millimeter was lower quality than the Blu-ray. So I would just replace the part where the where the roto was. But there's there's this one shot. Uh, R2 and 3PO are hiding behind that door, and the stormtroopers are looking for them. Yeah. And they added this floating droid. Yeah. That starts. Uh, in that shot, the floating droid starts on one side of the screen and floats all the way to the other side. And I didn't have a 35 millimeter source for this, 
So I did exactly that. I reconstructed the whole background uh, and I replaced the background behind the, the stormtroopers. Um, and then I had to, because, and where, whenever the droid would fly in front of some uh, object in the frame, like, or, uh, you know, like another droid or uh, a stormtrooper or uh, uh, an extra walking in the background, I had to replace that part with the gout. So, and that was actually like uh, people. People. Uh, people often ask what was the hardest shot to despecialize, and this was the one. Even though it seems like on on paper, when you look at it, it seems like it wasn't changed all that much. But because the the droid flies throughout the whole scene, you have to. Well, replace uh, the whole background basically and uh, do all this stuff so I to, to get it it's still not perfect like I still can see some problems with it but uh, the, those are probably problems that only I will ever notice but to get it near perfect uh, it, I, I had to redo that shot like five times and I always had to start from scratch because it became so complicated uh, with like you know 50 different layers and stuff so no, that, that, that's amazing um, how did you actually maintain by using several different sources how many how did you maintain the quality of the image um, yeah well that's uh, that's really the whole point of the rotoscoping too uh, like sometimes uh, so, so, sometimes this little part of the little part of the frame will be lower quality but because it's in the back background and you're not focusing on it it's not very noticeable and so that that's really the point of the of doing the rotoscoping because even though you replace part of the image with uh, a lower quality source uh most of the image is still the high quality of the hd footage uh so it's very uh, if, if if done well it's not really noticeable that Part of the image was replaced by a DVD quality uh, source. In regards to the 35 millimeter film, um, how did you source that and manage to get that sort of digitized? Yeah, so uh, I really had nothing to do with that part. Like again, like I said, I used I used a lot of other people's projects as sources in my uh, in, in my project, uh, and this was one of them. Uh, this group called Team Negative One got hold of some 35 millimeter prints i think on ebay and uh, it's and it's quite it's quite difficult to get good prints of star wars uh because they're really rare uh, and not only difficult it's also very expensive they they sell for like tens of thousands of dollars but they managed to pull pull together the money and they actually built their own scanner wow using like an old projector and uh, uh, a digital camera uh at this point, they I think they already have the, the prints scanned on a professional scanner, but this first version that I used in the Specialized was actually done on this home-built scanner, um, you know, frame by frame, taking a picture of each frame. Yeah, that, that, that's an incredible amount of work. To make a, to make a, uh, their own scanning system, it kind of reminds me of sort of like in the original Star Wars where they made their own go-motion video cameras in which to capture the film. Yeah. It's the same kind of inspiration. Yeah, talking about that, uh, actually, uh, it, it actually is funny how I'm actually using some of the same techniques of like rotoscoping is a technique that that's been used even back then now it's done digitally they had to do it manually like painting on on glass and stuff uh but but I think it's uh that's one of the most important things about not just the specialized but preserving the original version 
is to preserve the work of all those people yeah. who worked on those visual effects back then. Uh, and they did an amazing job and they got uh, an academy, academy Award for it. And, and now their their work is being erased from history well, or was being erased by Lucas. I'm, I'm still hoping that Disney will change this approach and give us an official release of the original version but but so far we didn't get anything so you know may, maybe maybe when their uh new trilogy is done they will release like a whole saga kind of thing well that, that's what i find so shocking these days is people like yourself and Addy when star wars revisited is doing the job of what you'd expect a major corporation a major studio would be able to do and the fans that's what i really like about it is the fans have taken control we haven't yep. got what we what we wanted and people like yourself have gone out there and the, the the serious level of attention to detail is far beyond i've seen star wars a thousand times i've yeah. never seen stuff that people like yourself and people like adiwan are pointing out to me yeah. uh, which i think uh, is fantastic there's, a, there's actually this guy uh, uh his name's mike verda right i don't know if you've heard of him nope no uh so he's like a He's actually like a, a professional uh, visual effects artist as well as a, a, a film uh, composer. He, he makes music for, for films, but uh, he's also a, a visual effects artist and he's been working on the restoration of Star Wars for like the last 10 years. The difference there is that because he's part of the... He actually did some work for Lucasfilm, which also enabled him to get some resources that no one else can dream of. But it's still a fan restoration. He's doing it for free. Uh, and he's he's actually scanning those Technicolor prints, and uh, and he he has some amazing software that was made ta- that was tailor made for him for this restoration. Wow. Uh, and he's I think he said he's finished now. And of course, there's no way he can actually release this on the internet. But he actually said he would try and uh, get Disney to release this officially. And I think they'd be crazy not to take it because no one will ever make a restoration like that because uh, he's a he's a fan. So he did have that attention to detail. He did go through every last frame and looked at every last reference. And he spent 10 years doing it. And that's exactly what you're talking about. The, the attention of, to detail that fans can afford the studio can never afford because it would just be too expensive and too too time consuming so even if we get an official release uh the the the, the attention to detail will never be such as yeah. uh yeah. But, the fans can do. I think they'd be really smart to get the fans to uh, to help if they if they decide to do it, and they should definitely buy the restoration from uh, from Mike Verda. I, I or even take. I think he's offering it for free. Well, I think they, they've started getting the fans to make the droids for the film, so you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Last month we touched on what's now known as the Pogo Grande versions. Hmm. of the film that's using i guess it must be from the the 16 millimeter ken films home film versions uh i I think uh, i think the kenner films were uh eight millimeter right yeah uh the 16 millimeter prints are an an interesting story because i don't think there ever was an official release so these are probably just some homemade copies from 35 millimeter prints uh that again get traded on eBay from time to time, and uh... um, I think there's a. Uh, I'm not actually. I can't remember. Even though it was only a month ago, we had a, a video collector on called Nathan Butler, and I believe he said that the 16 millimeter versions were versions oh. that were given out to places like the military or prisons oh, or libraries. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so how did you use the the sixteen uh, millimeter Pogo Grande versions? Because obviously the quality would have been greatly diminished. Uh, well, actually, like uh, I think the the problem with the Pogo versions uh, was that uh, they weren't scanned on a professional scanner. They were again like using this sort of device, which I uh, I don't quite know how to explain without like visual aids, but. Uh, it's basically uh, it uses it uses a video camera uh, that shoots through this device. It's like optics and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like it's not like projected on a screen and shot off the screen. It's actually like it it it, it uses a, a device, but uh, the camera is like a normal NTSC camera. So it's actually the quality of the transfer isn't as good as uh, it could be. Like. 16 millimeter can hold some good detail. It's not going to be as good as 35 millimeter, but it could very well be better than DVD. And in some cases, it actually was even transferred this way. Uh, the one of the things that the Gout DVD suffers from is aliasing. Right. So it's like those, you know, they're like edges on uh, on oblique lines. And uh, because because the uh, the the Pago transfer. Uh, was uh, anamorphic, so it had a little more resolution. It it actually had less aliasing. So in some cases, I would just like, for example, there's this, this shot of uh, of the X wings uh, coming into frame, uh, and then there that had terrible aliasing on the Gout DVD. So I would just replace the wings yeah. with uh, with Pago's version. Forward to using the 35 millimeter print for, the, for those shots because that's gonna make them look so much better. The alienation, that's almost like a like a almost like a flicker, like a resolution issue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a byproduct of the low resolution of the transfer. Really. Amazing. I'm so gonna sort of bring this sort of interview to towards an end now, Peter. Mm. I do have a few more. Uh, questions I'd, I'd just be interested to find out um, your point of view on. You discussed the scene in Moss Eisley where the stormtroopers and the floating robot were, were, was really difficult in which to despecialize. Were there any other scenes that were really tricky to despecialize? Well, there were, of course, quite a few that were similar to this one where uh, I had to like replace a whole big piece of the background or for example when uh w when luke uh ben and the droids start walking towards the cantina uh and they they replaced the uh the dewbag the rubber figurine that they had originally with uh a cgi uh monster and uh so i uh, and for this is where this is where the HD scan I had cut off, so I didn't have that scene. Right. Uh, so I, uh, but what I did, what I did have was a still image of that of that shot in very high quality HD. Uh, from uh, it actually came from a 70 millimeter frame. So so I, I had to I, I had to replace uh, the the dewback in that scene and rotoscope all the characters in front of it and. And there were a lot of characters walking in front of it, not just the heroes, but also like the extras in the background. So that was a lot of work to do. I also actually, because it, there's a little bit of movement to to the original rubber figurine, I, I think there was like a guy with a inside it who would just like move the head up and down. Yeah. So I, I had to actually like sort of animate the movement of the head. Uh, and I guess like when you know about this, you can actually kind of tell that it's like 2D animation that I use. So that uh, again will be better when uh, I can replace it with a 
full 35 millimeter shot. Though again, I will just be replacing the dewback, not not the the whole scene. But that was quite a difficult one. Uh, then also the the shot uh, before when uh, it's like one of the worst shots in the original version because it's really dirty and it has this the the shot where the speeder goes towards the cantina and it's sort of the camera pans with it. Yeah. And it had this, you know, like grease blob underneath to cover the wheels originally and to, uh, and they cleaned that up in the special edition. So I had to re, re, uh, redo the, the original compositing, but they also added this huge uh, dinosaur in that, in that shot. And I did have the 35 millimeter source for that one, but it was still quite difficult to uh, line up those two sources and make it seamless because I didn't want to just use the whole 35 millimeter shot when I had that. The Blu-ray was uh, a lot better quality generally, like it was clean and sharp. And so I didn't want to replace the whole shot. So I had to, again, rotoscope out uh, the dinosaur using the Ronto using uh, the 35 millimeter scan. That was a difficult one. Uh, then, of course, all the uh, space battle shots, because so, uh, uh, in the... I, I had to use the gout, and in the gout, a lot of those shots had a lot of dirt in them, so I had to do some manual cleanup. Uh, but also the stars would flicker and stuff, so in some in some shots I had to actually replace the star field, like recreate uh, the star field and put it in, uh, in the background so it wouldn't flicker. Yeah, so shots like that took a lot of time. Oh, and rotoscoping the lightsabers was really time-consuming as well. More different versions of Star Wars has come out. They've changed the speed of the things like the transitions. If you if you're going back to a despecialized version, have you chosen sort of like a version of Star Wars, like a 1970 1977 cinema release, or a, you know sort of like a 1982 yeah, original no. video release? Is there any sort of actually? I think this is a common misconception. Uh, until 1977, the only uh, the only change that was done post the original 77 release uh, was replacing the uh, crawl at the beginning of the original Star Wars because originally it didn't have the a new episode for a new hope it was just Star Wars and then uh, straight to the text so in in 1981 I think they replaced this with the episode four crawl uh, and that was actually the only change made uh, um, until 1997. Uh, except for like some some of the home video releases had like different colors, right? But that was quite that's quite typical. That happened to basically all movies because for home video they would like boost the reds a little and make the whole thing bright brighter uh, to look good on CRT TVs. Uh, but in terms of like cuts and, and effects, it stayed the same until 1997. There were a couple of shots that were replaced like a couple of weeks maybe after the original release uh but those when you if you saw them side by side you'd be really hard pressed to see what the differences were but yeah so there, there were a couple of changes like that but that was uh it's probably like a difference between another thing uh, is the audio because yeah. they have three different mixes at the big uh, with the original release uh, so, uh, and first they released the 70 millimeter version, which had a surround mix, like today would be like a 5.1 mix, but it was actually like 4.2 or something like that. Uh, and they then they had a separate stereo and a separate mono mix, and the mono mix was done last, 
which also means the prints that had the mono mix were produced last. So it's quite likely that those tiny changes were made for the mono prints. When when you're actually constructing the uh, the sound for it, though, are you are you conscious of which version you're you're choosing? You know, there's different dialogue for. Um, Baru, there's some audio missing from certain scenes. The audio, I, I deal with very simply. I include all three original uh, mixes, and uh, you can choose between them. Yep. So and the main mix is the 5.1 mix, which is a recreation of uh, the original 70mm mix. Then you have the stereo mix, which is the original stereo mix, and then you have the mono which is the original mono. Uh, I should point out I had nothing to do with those uh, sound recreations. I'm not, I'm not an audio person at all. I mean, I uh, I can't even like really hear the differences. I can hear the the obvious differences where it's different dialogue or something, but but like those minute differences where it was like just mixed a little differently or something. I uh, I can't even uh, really hear those. Uh, so uh, this guy called Harry Hen did the recreation of the original 70mm mix uh, and uh, uh, restored the stereo mix as well. Uh, And this other guy called Belbacus did the original mono mix. And the only source, actually, of the original mono mix that uh, is available is like a a British TV recording, I think. Wow. So it was once, somehow, it was broadcast with the original mono mix in Britain, and someone recorded this on VHS, and so that's the only source we have of the original mono mix. Well, it uh, had been until we got the 35mm prints, which actually have the mono mix on them, and uh, I think uh, the original mono mix is now being restored by guys who know what they're doing with audio. Yeah, that, that's, that's fantastic. Um, just a f- very few final questions here, Peter. The, the changes made in the special edition, you know, some of them are quite drastic. It changes things like the editing, some of the art direction. Do you think if the the special edition changes would have received an Oscar? Because the original Star Wars had, what was it, six Oscars? Do you think that these changes affect it so much that the they wouldn't have received those Oscars? Uh, well, some of them absolutely. Like uh, you know, like the visual effects, for example. Like I guess art, not you know art direction wasn't changed that much, but still, it's Oscar-winning work that has been changed. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, I don't think it wouldn't receive the Oscar because of those changes because they were tiny, but. Uh, but definitely, like the the visual effects, uh, because at the time the original visual effects were totally groundbreaking. The effects that were added in 1997 were already fairly commonplace at the time. Yeah. So I doubt the the film would be getting any Oscars in 1997 for those effects. That's fair enough. Is there are there any changes to the special edition that you actually that you actually like that you think that it has value? Oh. Uh, well, sure. Like, uh, I always say, like, I, I have no problem with uh, the existence of the special edition. I have a problem with the suppression of the original version. So, sure, there is some merit to, uh, you know, do uh, fixing some uh, things that were obvious errors at the time. If it's clear- clearly labeled as a special edition or director's cut or something, like, it's clearly said that this is not the original versions that people saw version that people saw in the cinema and the original version is available as well. Like it is for a lot of other movies, like 
when you buy Alien, the Alien movies on Blu-ray, you can choose which version version you want to watch. Blade Runner, you can choose from like five different versions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I know it's uh, that's the problem really that the original version isn't available. Not that there is uh, that there is a, a special edition version. So yeah, like to to name some changes that I I think are okay is actually like maybe you know replacing replacing some of the old effects with CGI uh, is is fine for a special edition. Like uh, I can see some some of those shots where quite uh, bad quality back then and not necessarily just the effects but like they were grainy and dirty and whatnot uh, so so I can see I can see like for a, a, a special edition modernized version that's okay to do as long as the original Oscar winning uh, winning version is uh, also available uh, for not only for like enjoyment purposes but also for educational purposes like when when you know people in film school, watch Star Wars, they should be able to watch the original version to see the uh, evolution of uh, visual effects. Um, and there's there were actually cases where, uh, you know, they would have like, they, they would have like, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, when someone speaks about... A presentation? Uh, yeah, let's, I, I was looking for a different word, but yeah, like, like a presentation about uh, the history of ILM. Uh, and when they were talking about Star Wars, they showed pictures from the CGI special edition shot. Uh, and they were talking about the history and how they made the models. And, and at the same time, they were showing... Right. I actually recently watched this documentary about ILM. Same same thing. Right. They were talking right. about the original model work, and they were showing 1997 CGI. Yeah, it's one of the things I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview. The original unaltered version of Star Wars lasted for 20 years, and now the special editions have lasted for 19. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, Exactly. It's they, the the special edition by now had already existed almost as long as the original version before. So yeah. Well, Peter, I want like everyone who listens to this, who are vintage fans, to really check out the kind of work that you've done. Where would where would people be able to check out Star Wars Despecialized? Well, uh, of course, uh, the whole uh, fan edit and uh, fan fan preservation. Uh, thing is kind of in a legal gray area so i can't just you know post links willy-nilly anywhere uh but if they go to uh facebook slash despecialized uh they can find and go to uh you know the information section they can find instructions there on how to download uh, or you know just use good good old google if you just google uh how to download star wars despecialized uh i'm sure I'm sure you're, you'll find uh, what you're looking for. Yeah, I think is uh, if if they message us at the Vintage Rebellion as well, I think we can provide some handy directions oh. and help out a lot. Is it true that they need for the legal reasons that you have to own a? Oh company? yeah, yeah I, I yeah I should have pointed this out straight away. Yes, uh, the the condition to download the despecialized edition is that you own the official Blu-ray version. Or now the official like uh, digital version from like Netflix or Hulu or uh, iTunes or I, I don't know where where you can uh, you can buy the digital version. But you 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 have to uh, the the whole point is that that uh, in order to download this version you should compensate the uh, the 
actual copyright owner by buying the version they're offering. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't count that I've got nine different VHS copies and each one. Unfortunately, it doesn't because you're downloading an HD version, and that's the that's the value added to the Blu-ray or the digital version. So even DVDs don't count really. Like I mean, uh, there is obviously no way I can enforce this rule, but from what I can tell, most people do abide by it, and I'm very I'm very happy that they do because it's important. I don't I don't want to support piracy. You know that's uh, that's not what this is about. It's about it's about people getting to see the original version that uh, they can't get to see in any other way. If they could go to the shop and buy the original version in decent quality, I wouldn't encourage anyone to go and download it. But because they can't, I I try to encourage everyone to at least go and buy the. Uh, whatever the current official version is before they download. Excellent. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the uh, Vintage Rebellion. And, um, you know, keep us informed. Let us know. I, I love your work. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And your version is currently my HD version of the original trilogy. And I've got Adi Wan there for my special edition. So it's brilliant that the fans have stepped forward and done what major studios don't seem to have the ability to do. So once again, like, thank you so much for coming on the show. And let us know if there's anything we can do for you. Again, thanks for having me on. And uh, I hope your listeners enjoy this interview. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, Peter. This month's Market Watch is giving you a break from the usual format. I have the first part of a project which has been tracking down the two owners of independent toy shops who are extremely popular in my hometown of Royal Leamington Spa back in the day. I want to try and get a feel for what it was like for the people on the other side of the counter and those who try to meet the demand of the collectibles that we still love today. Toy Town was a large two-floor shop run by Gordon Dobson and that was north of the river on Regent Street in the posh bit of the shopping area and Jordan's who was south of the river under the railway bridge in a tiny little store run by the Jordan family. Jordan's is still going today but sells fireworks, confectionery and foam for your DIY upholstery projects. David Jordan was kind enough to be interviewed in his shop. I had many, many fond memories of visiting Jordan's and took my micro collection Bestman control set to show him along with some other parts of my collection to try and jog his memory so you might hear reference to various pieces. Please excuse some of the background noise as David kept popping out to serve customers. Staff came into the room as we were talking and I didn't realise upholstery foam was so popular in my hometown. Dad had the toy side built um, a few years after he bought the shop here because they had a few toys in this side but it was never enough space and so what was an open courtyard on the side there he'd had that 
built as the toy shop bit there uh, and and that was uh, where the toys were but we were always because we didn't have much space anyway yeah. we had to concentrate very much on the things that we did we had to do well and we couldn't keep everything so you know, there were several products that, that we said yeah, we'll do that and we'll do it well um, rather than trying to keep everything because obviously at that time Toy Town were in town which was <laughs> one of the biggest well, toy shops yeah. in the country but they were obviously they uh, they didn't have sort of like the, the passion for certain products sort of yeah, thing yeah. there they just kept everything sort of thing there but we could we could steal the march on them by doing for instance you know Star Wars and Action Man that we went in and we said right we will keep all of the Star Wars we will keep all of the Action Man uh, and things like that which they didn't sort of thing there and they let a line run out whereas we would always be trying to keep things because it's a really tiny store oh, oh it was yeah is, yeah is, is, is normally you have to kind of well occasionally if it was a busy day on Saturday you'd have to kind of wait to get in get in yes I yeah. start, I be, it might be new I don't know yeah Oh yes, it was. I mean, you know, half a dozen people and you've got a shop full sort of thing. <laughs> so I mean what what kind of profit did Star Wars toys make? I mean I mean uh, what's the markup on things like the three and three quarter figures and the ships? You would make I mean you'd make probably about a third of the retail would okay. be profit. So if you were selling a thing for ten quid, you were making three pound on, yeah. on on it there. What then you know made a, a lot of things sort of you know not worthwhile in the toy industry was um, the, the likes of Argos just coming in and, and giving it away, yeah. uh, and they pick the core lines. And uh, I mean, one of the reasons that I mean one of the reasons we moved away is that, that things went more electronic rather than being proper toys to yeah. be paid with, which yeah we didn't want to do. Um, uh, and also yeah the margin on on some of the the very popular products would be in pence. Um, I mean, it would be not not worth selling, to be honest. Yet the joke was, if you had something, I mean, I can remember a set, several lines that we had um, in the Transformers, Optimus Prime. Yeah. Nobody else had got it. It was in the in the uh, the Argos catalogue at fourteen ninety five, and it was in the Asda book at fourteen ninety five. But they'd not got any. And we sold them all at £22.95. <laughs> but we've got it. But somebody would say, oh, it's cheaper there. I said, well, go and buy it there. Said, yeah. But they haven't got any as well when we haven't got any. Well, yeah, that's what, I, mean, I mean, that's what I memories of, of, I mean, we'd always, you know, on a, we're on a hunt, you know, as in it was a birthday or Christmas yeah. or some, some reason, or, you know, mum said, all right, we're going to go and get you a toy. It would be Toy Town First, which yeah. is kind of the, the, you know, obviously the, the yes. larger shop. And it's all right, it's, it's not there. Because obviously, you know, so someone of, of my kind of standing was, was you know we you, you'd have probably got the main toys the, the main range yeah and you, after like the, the the sort of side characters yes and yeah. we'd be heading down to Jordan to see if yeah. you, you, had, you normally did have it yeah some yeah. of the, some of the, the slightly crazy ones yeah yeah well we also I think sort of being enthusiasts we we knew about the product as well sort of thing there rather than it just being a box that you well, bought you knew where it was in the film and you knew you know you knew you know either it's rarity or or whatever sort of thing there and that's what brings me on to showing you the micro collection thing yeah. I can remember seeing there was a catalogue. It was probably you, and you, you were going to this catalogue yeah. and showing a bunch of kids yeah. like this going, what yeah. was that? Yeah. Yeah. And, I was, and I was just obsessed with it from then. Yes. And I never found it because I mean, we didn't understand the things like, you know, it was only sold in the States or, yeah. or this. Yeah. So we always just assumed that it would be here. And yeah. that's the only time I saw it. Yeah. And I remember telling friends, oh, yeah, I saw these little figures, and no one believed yeah. me for yeah. years and years <laughs> until obviously, you know, you're late on the internet yeah. comes around and you go, yeah. yes, that was it. Yeah. So that's why I sought yeah. it out at the, at the celebration the event last year. I mean, yes. You know, I mean, it's weird how something like that stays with you for years and years. Yeah, yeah. I think as soon as I saw it, I, I think I must have seen it in something else. Yeah. I remember 
pryo. Yeah, well, we, we used to have, so we used to have the, the, the brochures, and of course, you, you'd, you'd sometimes we'd get like a can of brochure, and they would say, "This is what we're buying from." Yeah. And he's like, "Well, I've got you go to a trade show." So, well, could I have the can of brochure yeah, yeah. and bring it bring it back there? So um, you, did you get people, you know, like Palatoy reps and stuff coming in to see you and say? Uh, yeah, well, pa- Palatoy at the time were the big toy company. Yeah. I mean, they and and to be honest, um, they were in fact they were quite hard to deal with because they really they knew that they had got particularly with Star Wars they had got winning products and they really did lay down the law and I would say almost made it a bit you know it was quite difficult they would you'd say all right uh, you know I want you know. Uh, I want your know, hundred cases of Star Wars figures. Oh no 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 no! You're allowed. You're allowed five. Okay. And you say, well, I, 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 you know, five will be gone in a day. I say, well, you're allowed five. <laughs> or it would be a case of, you know, if you want, you know, um, if you want that, then you've got to buy this as well. I say, well, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. When you come in for your your Star Wars yeah, figures, yeah. say, yeah, I want a Yoda. Oh no, you can't have Yoda. You've got to buy. You've got to buy this bit of rubbish that we can't sell. <laughs> and that was it. It was never. It was not like the fact that they were saying, yeah, well, if you buy that, you you can have these. Well, as in as, as in Star Wars figures that weren't popular, or just other ranges. Other things. Other things. Oh, there'd be like a whole. There'd be a package deal sort of thing there. Yeah. For for every you know for every ten of them you buy, you can have one case of Star Wars. Figures. And there were lots of things like that that were. Um, and certainly, I can remember the the, the cases that you'd, you'd place your order in for the figures were very much rationed. You couldn't just have, uh, you know, what you'd want. Yeah. You'd say, oh no. And of course, Palitoy were getting in. They were obviously, I presume, only being allowed so many anyway there, because Kenner would, I presume, would take the lion's share, and then you know the UK can have what's left over, sort of thing yeah. there. And uh, I presume they'd only got so many cases to distribute across the whole of the country, and were having to you know try and make it fair that everybody got them. Uh, but it was, I mean, sometimes it was ridiculous. We'd only get like two cases here, and, and they'd be, yeah, they'd be gone in a weekend. Sort of thing there. And in in the end, it all sort of backfired on them. Because they were, um, they were obviously. They, they, I can remember the, the, the almost like the final year of them. They were selling the product on the basis that the film was going to be on at Christmas. Yeah. And so we were, and everyone was going, oh, we better order this sort of thing there. If the film's going to be on at Christmas, so everybody stopped up with loads of the stuff. The film didn't come on the telly at Christmas. And it was, <laughs> it was a bit of a case that you know um, everybody had got tons of Star Wars stuff left over after Christmas and it was not wanted at which all. Year, which year was that? I can't remember. remember what year it was. It would it would have been I'm sure well it would have been after Jedi. Yeah. It would have been after Jedi. And it was probably something like Jedi was going to be shown on the telly that Christmas yeah. and it wasn't. Okay. And of course that basically meant all your stuff that you know, everybody bought the stuff stuff in and everybody got tons of it. And um, I can remember, you know, that, I mean, whether it ever happened or not, is that, you know, of course, you, you, you've got your terms and conditions from Palitoy, which, you know, they would be very strict on the sort of thing there. And, um, uh, you know, you've got to pay for things by this date and all that date. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, one of the terms and conditions was that, you know, if you don't pay for your stock, we'll come and get it back. And people say, there it all is. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they then did the following year... They, they, it was, it was such a dilemma um, for the the trade because everybody got just so much of this stock yeah. uh, that they couldn't shift. Because then I think He-Man had come out, yeah, yeah. and that was the thing that was wanted. That was the next craze, and not Star Wars was then old hat no longer wanted. Um, and they brought out um, some figures, and it was a case of they took the stock. They said, "How many, however many cases you've got, 
we will give you one case of these free so you can reduce the price down of the things there as a case of you if you've got 10 cases of, of, of those figures we'll give you five cases of the new ones free to try and move the stock sort of thing there on, on that Hanitor were very funny on, on, on this thing and say at the end yeah. I mean whether it was ever true but I'd heard they'd got that much stuff at Colville of, of, the, of the things that they just landfilled a load of it well this is this this is the, this big myth and yeah. believe me collectors from all over the place yeah. have descended on Colville Colville Divide, and have actually yeah. been trying to find yeah. this landfill yeah yeah. I mean do you reckon that was true I mean is it well it was certainly yeah it was certainly at the time it was certainly it was rumoured that they got that much stuff left I mean we sent about uh, what we did I think a third of ours went back because what they'd done we'd ordered the cartons in 60s so we ordered like 20 cartons of 60 figures yeah. they upped the case figures to 96s so they said, oh, we've delivered you 20 cases of 96. He said, just, just, just a sec, I ordered 20 cases of 60 here. Oh so you're goodness. getting a third back to start off with. Yeah. And then uh, I can't remember that the figures that they then brought out free um, to, to give away. But there was a new set, I think, uh, uh, probably almost must have been probably the last set of the old figures. Well, they're that, called the last 17. Yeah. Right? And these, some of them would go for a silly prize even now. Yeah. For a yak face. At the time, I mean, as a kid, I wasn't interested in no, it at all. No, But if you buy it loose now, you, you pay an average of £180 for loose. And when you think they were given away free. Yeah. They, exactly they, were, they were just given away free to help people clear their existing stock. Well, I think at the end, it was something like eight for a pound or something like that. <laughs> they were, the figures were you going now, out. If you them. had those boxes. Oh, God, right. You, you would literally retire. <laughs> yeah. You know, did, did they tell you to put up, you know, were you given store displays? The only thing I could ever remember us having, and in fact that came from the cinema actually, because we used to, at the time we used to put the cinema poster up for the moment, yeah. there, and we had a cardboard cut out Darth Vader, but the rest of the stuff we made, we made I mean I can, re I can remember us making the, uh, the, the the Rebel Ice Hanger off hot sort of thing there, yeah. and we made that out of paper mache and put the figures on it, <laughs> and then awesome. I had one of my customers build a scale Millennium Falcon for the figures. So this thing was like, you know, five foot in diameter. <laughs> what happened to that? That he scratched. I don't know. He he lent it to us to put oh, in the no, window, no. and it was only on loan, sort of thing. There. But we put this this scratch built Millennium Falcon, and, and yeah, I mean, bloody, enormous thing. You can imagine the size of it, because of course you got four in the cockpit, sort of thing there to start well, off with. Well, so what's so what the promotion stuff? There? Now I remember winning the competition. I come in here, twenty-five pounds I had, which at the time was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. And bought, I, I bought two, two of those light, weird lightsaber things. They weren't like official ones. Yeah. For something or other. Yeah. A, I've still got it. Um, it's the land speeder. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the snow speeder. Sorry. Yeah. And um, Darth Vader was here. Yes. And yeah. that's where, <laughs> slightly disturbing that he was a little bit too strong with the old strangle. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that's a little bit. Maybe I just because I was a child, but yeah. he, he he went for it. Well, we had, th I think we had three visits from Darth Vader in the end. The first one was the best one because we, I mean, you, you never know how, how we, but the, the, the first one like came with an entourage really as well sort of thing there. And this was right at the peak of it sort yeah. of thing there. Um, and uh, whether it's true or not, you never know. But he, he was apparently like one of the stuntmen from the film and was doing it, you know, in the, in the yeah. costume sort of thing there. there. Uh, but the, the, the next guy that we had come, he was a bit on the short side, to be honest. I mean, he was, you know, six months something, but he was not as imposing as the first guy that we'd had come there. Uh, then we had a Transformer come. That was from Hasbro. Oh, that was, and that was quite a good one. 
good costume sort of thing there. We had uh, we had that come. And I'm sure we must have had something like a Care Bear come as well on the girls' <laughs> side of things there. So, I mean, how did they come about? I mean, did they, did it, was, it, was it like through Palatoy or was yeah, it? Yeah, you, it, you do it through them. And this is why we were so, we, you know, um, we were quite surprised that you know, we uh, we got in first because I think Toy Town were not Toy Town were not overly interested in Palatoy sort of thing there at all. They didn't really get on that that well with him. I think he was he was um, more. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think he liked. I, I could only imagine he didn't like. You know, Palatoy would come in and lay the law down. This yeah. is what you're going to. And if they brought something out, um, if they brought it, they'd bring a new range out, and you were going to keep it. It was a bit like Lego, you know, I don't know what Lego's like now, but Lego, you were committed to take the new lines, whether they were rubbish or not. Yeah. You know, well, if you don't, then you don't have a Lego yeah, yeah. account. They they contacted you for these for these um, promotions. I mean, did you? I mean, apart from obviously people come to your store, did you get any out of that? Or was it just literally a promotion you were obliged to do? No, I mean, I mean, on those we we went for them because we could see, we we could see you know, that they were a great attraction sort of thing, yeah. and you'd got to do something you know to get people to this part of town at the time. Yeah, yeah. Thing. It was not like it is now, where it's you know now it's a huge hub of student yeah, exactly. population. At the time, it was it was hard to get people there, uh, and um, uh, so yeah, we went out for these promotions, and the, the, the cost was pence. I mean, I think something like the the dark Vader one, I think it used to cost us something like 150 quid or something like. It really was, <laughs> you know, you'd pay pay pence there for it. It was we struggled to actually take money on the day because you were just too busy. Yeah. I mean, the queue was right the way up the. Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest thing that we sold were the photographs. We had a, you know, I mean, you know, taking a, a photograph of people. That was the. There that's, you go. That's my souvenir. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that that was it. It was the. Um, uh, I'm sure we didn't sign any. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was getting you know it was literally you you really didn't sell much because you just couldn't you couldn't sell much the thing down there. But you then you know people would know where you were and things. Like because everyone, I mean, it doesn't matter who I ask. Like people might say about my age. Yeah. Everyone knew Jordan. Toy yeah. Town, that was yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, there must have been other places like Woolworths and stuff that sold yeah. Stars, yeah. but those are the two places, you know, yeah. north of the river and south of the river. That was, that was yes. it. That's, that's yeah. I, I mean, what, what was your relationship with with Gordon Dobson? At I didn't really have any relationship no. at all with him. No, no. I mean, we really didn't didn't really didn't have anything to do do with it because obviously, you know, he was not not out to do us any favours. No, we no, were probably absolutely. a bit of a thorn in his side, sort of thing <laughs> there. Uh, and um, yeah, so we, we really didn't, didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, you know, he would have his, his customers because, of course, he, he could basically, you know, have got the space to keep everything sort yeah, of yeah. thing there. Whereas, you know, we would get, we would say, right, well, this is what we've got to go for and pick these bits and bobs sort of thing there uh, uh, on it. But um, I did feel that, I mean, he was always very expensive. There was never never anything cheap yeah, there yeah. sort of thing there. Uh, and I can always remember after, he, after they'd closed down and one one person said, she said, what she says, I can't understand why they've shut down. We always used to go in there and look round. I said, I think you've just answered the question, you know. Where did you go and buy your stuff? Oh, we went to Argos to buy it, you know. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that was it. It was, uh, uh, you know, we, would, we could beat him on price, no problem at all. Yeah, yeah. You'd only have to do a little bit off and you'd be under him. He would always be top whack. And things like the, uh, the Star Wars, you know, it was going to be in the Argos catalogue. So yeah. you've got to be fairly competitive. Unless you've got something. I can remember, you know, um, a year that we, we were the only people with Millennium Falcons. And you could you, you could sell it for what you want. 
I mean, it was there again. It was in the August book at 1995. We sold them all at 2995 because it was one of these things. You can only have so many. You say, well, exactly well, we'll sell them. It's supply and demand sort of thing there on, on that. The ships aren't that different in price. price I mean, I mean you can get a, to get like a, a reasonably nice condition on your fucking you just over 100 pounds, maybe yeah. a bit more for the box as well. Obviously, yes. if they're mint in the box and sealed. Yeah, they can go for you know. Yes, but, the, but how pounds, many of those are going to be? Yeah, well, I don't know. There's a lot. I mean, <laughs> remember, they, they, they produced a lot. Yeah, but I mean, to get them sealed in a box, box mint, yeah. yes, they're, they're, they're slightly rare. Yeah. But remember, these things were churned out by the million. Yeah. Well, I can remember we had a customer come in and she bought two of everything and she bought one for him to play with and she, she bought a sealed one as well. There. See, if they've kept those, yeah. I mean, they're probably lying on the beach somewhere now. <laughs> well, well, I think they were 99p when yes, they first they were, yeah. came out, weren't they? Were. they? Yeah. Yeah, because I can remember when it had gone like to 149 sort of thing there. And I think about 149 was probably about the end price yeah. of them, realistically. Well, I can remember Toy Town, and he's funny they said that price. Yeah. I remember them charging over two pounds. Yeah. My mum was yeah. like, we are not buying a Star Wars toy yeah. for over two pounds. Yeah. And it, yeah. Was, it was like a, yeah. yeah, I can remember it in the shop saying, not going to happen. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. what? Yeah. And then that, that's why like, yeah. Jordans or Argos or wherever. Because you see, this was a funny, when they brought out these half dozen here, because that was a funny thing, because everybody thought they were going to be in the new film and they didn't realise that these ones were, I mean, where's that one there that you never actually see in the film? Well, yeah, he's in it for like two seconds. And the, and the thing was, was when they came out, some of them you couldn't get, I mean, you know, General Medine, nobody wanted him. In fact, that was not a, that was not a popular no. that was not a popular it's, character yeah, exactly. when it came out. Exactly. I think was that was that one of the ones because they did several ones. There's like a freebie one that yes, you could get, yes. isn't there? He was one of them. One of the freebies was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I thought he was. The yeah. Emperor was another one. There's, there was quite a few. Yeah, nine them was another one. Yeah, some yeah. of the rarest of the I can. I mean, there was some of the rarest of the. There was the the uh, the Bespin cloud car. That that was always quite because the, the damn thing never would stand up. It'd always slide down on those legs. I can remember when we sold them, we actually stuck strips of cardboard <laughs> on the front of the legs to give it a bit of friction, so the thing wouldn't slide down. They were quite uh, a, a yeah. rarity. And then there was that Hoth playset as well that um, uh, got the cannon. Things yeah. like that there, but there was uh, some of the things were quite. Right. And do you remember they did that little range of vehicles, little one man and two man the vehicles. Mini rigs, yeah. The the Imperial shuttle. Ne I mean, it was a nice model, but yeah. never sold in huge quantities. Sort of, it was quite. I think it was about fifty quid then, yeah. sort of thing. There, exactly. it, was, it was not cheap. Sort of thing, right? That's one of the yeah the, the desirable things at the moment to find those in boxes. Yes, if you do. I mean. Even loose, I'll go for 250 quid, just yeah. a, a loose one. But they, yeah. Yeah, they don't come around very often. No, well, they, that was at the end of the thing, because I don't yeah, think yeah. it first came out when Jodo first came out. It was probably a year or so after, by which time it was, you know, the, the product was on, on its way yeah. out then. So the antiques of tomorrow are the rubbish of today that people don't throw away, yeah. isn't it? And at the yes. time, I mean, it was just another, it was just another commodity that you just sold sort of thing there and, and you know and, and when it had gone and, and it had died you said thank heavens we got shot of all that sort of thing there um, and if you kept one of everything that you ever sold sort of thing there you'd have warehouses full of, of stuff of which you know probably you, know, you get the, the odd thing that becomes valuable and the rest of it is is bin fodder sort of thing there so I mean when, when did you stop selling Star Wars toys then when, when, what year and, and did it coincide with like the store stopping selling toys uh, no, I would, I, I would, I would say it was, it was after that, whatever that bad Christmas was. I don't think we, yeah, when that stock had gone, it was never replenished again yeah. there. And I don't, I don't think it was then in the, it, it was not in the where, it, where the Palatoy then became Kenner. I think it was because everything was then branded Kenner. We were starting to get stuff coming branded Kenner, uh, and I don't recall us having Star Wars then. But we then I can remember us running Transformers and things like that afterwards, sort of thing there. But it was at the time, I say, the, the sort of like when the electronic age was. Coming in when Toy Town closed, um, you know that the trade would pick up, and it didn't. 
didn't really notice any yeah. difference whether Toy Town had gone or not sort of thing and you think well you know maybe he wasn't doing that much sort of thing and and then we sort of plodded on and the children's day that's what we did <laughs> yeah that's my nephew uh, yeah. age four yeah. that's what and, and, that, and that's what the, what you know that's what they do they don't play with toys yeah. and this has become an adult market product not well, a kid's product I mean I bet I bet the new <laughs> figures that are coming out are bought by adults probably more than you children. should say that huge thank you to David for his time. In a future podcast, I will be speaking with Gordon Dobson about Toy Town. Right, now I want to welcome back Christian Connors for this month's Rapid Fire. Are you ready, Christian? I am. Your favourite Star Wars movie? Caravan of Courage. Can I say that? Or equal first, I'd say, between... I don't have a favourite between uh, A New Hope and ESB. Favourite Star Wars scene? It would have to be when Luke is watching the sunset at the Lars homestead uh, on Tatooine. Your favourite on-screen character? Absolutely. Your favourite new character from The Force Awakens? Oh, Ray. No, that's easy. Ray, all the way. And your favourite scene from The Force Awakens? Uh, the lightsaber battle between Ray and Kylo. Which actor or crew member would you most like to meet? Uh, I've met Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, so it, it would have been Mark Hamill, but I would say now Harrison Ford. Your favourite lightsaber duel? Empire, Darth Vader versus Luke. What character would you choose to have for a standalone movie? Luke. Favourite figure as a child? Luke Hoth. What's your favourite figure now? Probably Luke Farnboy. And which character do you wish they'd made a figure of? One of the rebels on the Chantive. What's your least favourite figure in the vintage line? The Emperor. Which figure do you think has the best accessories? Say probably one of the Ewoks. I don't know their names, the Ewoks, actually. <laughs> I don't know who's who. They look the same. One of the Ewoks. Favourite vehicle or playset? The Snowspeeder. Vehicle or playset you wish they'd made? I would have liked to have seen a Lars Homestead playset. Really? Yeah, there's not much you can really do with it. It's just my favourite sort of scene as a kid. So I don't know what you do with that. Maybe just uh, farm some moisture. <laughs> uh, which character's car back image is your favourite? Uh, it's actually the Tri-Logo Hoth Leader. Which vintage figure best resembles you? God, maybe Luke Farmboy because we're both blonde. What's your favourite convention you've attended so far? Celebration in Anaheim. Just because I got to meet Jess. It's amazing that, because my (laughs) first time I met him was my worst convention ever. (laughs) Um, What was the last vintage Star Wars item you purchased? It was either my loose Luke DT or a transparency I have of uh, Luke Bespin. And finally, just to confirm, what's your Holy Grail item? 12-back Tortoise Luke. Well, Christian... Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Right, so our rapid-fire question for this month is kind of following on from last month's question, where I asked you for your top three Return of the Jedi figures. This month, I want to know, which figure would you like to have seen a figure of from Return of the Jedi? Grant. Himuro. Nice. Rich. The Sarlacc. Is that a figure, or would that be a playset? No, the figure inside. The Sarlacc inside, yeah. Cheers. Mon Mothma. Oh, yeah, that would be exciting. They could have conferences with General Maydeen. <laughs> um, and Pete. Well, there's only one, isn't there? Slave Layer. Yeah, see, I I had Hermude or I had Slave Layer, but, or Ula. I'd love to have seen a figure of Ula, but I would have actually gone for a three-pack of Ooh. the spirits of Anakin, Yoda, and Obi-Wan. Oh, know. really? I would have thought you would have gone for a Princess Nisa or something. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> um, Rich, do we have much feedback for episode 2-2? Yeah, well, I had a lot of feedback on episode 22. The two big hits were the VHS interview with Nathan Butler. That interview went down so well because we were a little bit worried that it might have been a little bit too technical, a little bit too highbrow. But the amount of feedback we got on that was phenomenal. And I think a lot of that not only was it down to Grant's research and great questioning, but it was the fact that Nathan come across so well. You articulated all these points and it was it was fantastic, a cracking interview. So we're really pleased with that one. And the other one was Rock and Fire and Fett interview with Daryl and Brandy. Um, a lot of people, you know, were really pleased with the story, the background, the, you know, being able to follow the whole thread without scrolling through Facebook posts and things. So, um, thanks to all of those collectors. It was an absolutely great time to have them on. Lots of great shout outs to the Mark Daniels interview. A lot of people getting quite nostalgic, thinking back to, you know, a lot of points that Mark brought up. Um, both Jamie Brown and Matt Fox um, said that they wanted to shout out about his artistic perspective on Patterson. They thought it was really good and that they followed it really well. They found it very interesting. We've got a nice little quote here from a new guy on the forum who goes by Decipher28. And he said, My highlights of the interviews that bring out collectors as personalities and reveal even more tidbits of information that usually only come out in free-flowing conversation. And, and how many times have we banged on about this? The reason why people enjoy our podcast is not because of us five numbies. It's because of the guests that we get on and it's their personalities. It's their kind of relaxed nature. It's their kind of, you know, friendly banter. So thanks very much for that to save a 28. I hope you keep on listening. I hope I'm put you off. Now, over on um, Tantive, Commander Clint has posted a fantastic breakdown of all of the relevant shout-outs. He's put links to different sections, links to the newest acquisitions on there. They really put us to shame of what we do on Facebook. So so thanks, Clint. You've, you've put some fantastic things. We're going to direct more people over to TX. Um, I still can have a look at that. And finally, over on Take, we had Paul Ford and Nico both giving us some absolutely great feedback. Paul, though, has destroyed whatever reputation he thought he had by announcing that he rented young guns when he was uh, younger and he left it on the bus um, and he got charged £30 by the video rental store. So, ouch, expensive mistake. So, jazz guys, thanks for all your feedback and keep it coming. Yeah, also, in addition to that, Rich, I got some feedback from Lee when he was giving me the information on his Derry Lee stuff. He said, lastly, I'd like to say a huge thank you to yourself, Rich, Stu, Pete and Grant for such a great show. We've come on leaps and bounds and it's great to finally have something like this to hear each month. We're pushing the UK Star Wars universe worldwide, which is a great thing. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much, Lee. If you want to contact us or leave feedback, you can email us on show at vintagerebellion.co.uk. Find us on Facebook by searching Vintage Rebellion, on Twitter at SWTVR Podcast, on Instagram by searching Vintage Rebellion, or find us on any of the forums that we all frequent. Remember to enter our contest to win £100 worth of credit with Ian. Quick reminder, all you need to do is log into the iTunes store, look up Vintage Rebellion, and leave us a review. Competition will be open until midnight on May the 31st, 
and the winner will be announced on the June show. As we've already discussed, Jess takes on his marathon challenge dressed in full Stormtrooper armour on Sunday the 24th of April, with all sponsorship going towards a tremendous charity, Make-A-Wish. If you have yet to sponsor Jez, please, please do so. However little or large, every penny helps. You can sponsor him by going to his Just Giving page, which is www.justgiving.com, The Force Awakens. Jez, massive, massive best of luck with the event, and uh, we hope you're here next month to tell us all, because obviously just celebrating your 84th birthday, it's uh, <laughs> a bit of a struggle. Also, don't forget, the weekend of the 23rd, 24th of April is also farthest from 11, is it? Yes. Yep, got that right then. Uh, if you haven't attended this event, it really is the ultimate event in the UK for vintage Star Wars collectors. It may seem a long way, but seriously, you won't regret the journey. It's worth the effort. Huge thanks to Christian Carnus, Ron Salvatore, Phil Heeks, Peter Harmasek and David Jordan for taking their time to speak with us this month. It really was a fantastic, eclectic mix of guests. So, until next month, it is goodbye from Rich. Later, guys. Goodbye from Grant. I'm a rebellion. Goodbye from Jezebel. Damn it, I was going to say that. You're going to say goodbye? <laughs> Cheers, everyone. See you guys. Uh, good, good pie from Peedy Weedy. Good, good pie? Yes, we've got a lot of good pie. Especially, you know, like a, a nice meaty one. And it's good night from me. And remember... Only you can decide with Star Wars toys. This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All of the original content of this podcast are the intellectual property rights of the Vintage Rebellion. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swtvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't enjoy this podcast, tough. Are Star Wars products going to have the durability of, say, that old favourite, the teddy bear? Right, let's, let's move on. Whoa, whoa, just one more thing. Go on. Just totally want to throw this by you guys. Okay, this is my little theory I've got going on. Ray is Leia's daughter, but she's not Hans. And that is why Kylo left. Is it Luke? There's a breakup of the family dynamic, um, and Leia has a child with someone else, and that obviously ostracizes, broken home ostracizes Ben Solo, and he looks... To control things, so he goes and finds someone who's going to help him control things, control his life and all that, and he finds that in Snoke. There we go. Just putting it out there. And that's why Leia walks straight to her. You know, uh, so yeah, that's what I think. Wow. Grant, you spent some brain power on that one, didn't you? It is. It's true. Uh, See, they've gone. Like, once they split up, Ray is post-hand. Okay. Bam. Check mm. it out. Think about it. Do you know what? I'd like to think that there are, are more people in the universe. <laughs>